G'day, mate. Luke Ford here. I'm talking to Matthew. He's a history PhD student at London School of Economics. He uses the moniker on social media of History Speaks. He's on YouTube. He's on Rumble. He's on Twitter. And uh, Matt, talk to me about the direction of your online posting since October 7. Well, before 7 October, a lot of my content was devoted to debunking Holocaust denial, which is a subject that I didn't have any particular passion for um, beforehand, the Nazi Holocaust, but I just got into because I thought I'm kind of into right-wing spheres online. I thought, wow, they're really getting this wrong, the far right, this is dumb, meaning Holocaust denial. So I kind of got obsessed with debunking it and ended up getting a lot of Jewish fans. But uh, since 7th October, although I, I certainly condemned from the beginning the Hamas uh, attack, I've been advocating on behalf of, of Palestinians against Israeli war crimes um, and uh, for a, ce a ceasefire conditional to the release of the hostages and other factors. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never seen you this passionate about uh, current events before on your social media. Is that fair? Yeah, fair. About uh, current events before. On and is there anything that you've learned? Because I'll admit, like, everything that is happening in this Israel versus Hamas conflict just seems to confirm my prejudices about how the world works. Anything that has surprised you? Um, I was uh, surprised by how uh, brutal Hamas was. Um, I, I knew they were a terrorist group. I didn't have illusions about their willingness to kill civilians, but the level of brutality did, did surprise me. And I think uh, subsequently the openness with which Israeli officials have engaged in, in uh, murderous or even in, in some cases genocidal rhetoric has uh, surprised me as well, even though I, I knew they had no love for the Palestinians. And have you, have you learned anything from all your interactions online about this conflict? I have. I think that a number of people um, are operating on a very identity politics driven, who have deprecated identity politics like Gad Saad, Nathan Kopnis, are actually, Nathan, Ben Shapiro are actually um, very much plugged into the identity politics uh, software and have made arguments that uh, may be emotionally understandable um, uh, given the horror of 7 October, but are so uh, flabby and unrigorous that uh, they'd never make it in other contexts, but for their identity concerns. So it's important to you to be rigorous in addition to being passionate. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, so I believe uh, that, and this is just from my engagement with relativists like uh, Foucault, I believe that in some sense, objectivity is a, is a myth. But because we have biases and our biases will inform the narratives we construct. But I also believe that we can care about factual accuracy, right? I, I think that whether our analysis will always be biased at the margins, uh, whether our politics will always intrude in our analysis, maybe so, but we can still be committed to factual accuracy and analytical rigor in a way I think many people have, have failed um, uh, the last uh, several weeks. Are there any commentators, historians that you admire with regard to this conflict between Israel and its neighbors? 
Uh, definitely. Um, um, so in terms of, uh, uh, and this, I think, informs my, uh, bolsters my last point. Um, uh, this, I think, bol- bolsters my um, last point about how politics isn't always a guide uh, to analytical rigor. Uh, I think Benny Morris's um, Righteous Victims remains the best comprehensive treatment of this uh, crisis, despite the fact uh, that Morris is a passionate uh, is a passionate supporter of Zionism, uh, um, for example. Um, um, I also um, uh, admire the work of, of Rashid Khalidi. I think he is kind of the. Um, I've actually been re- rereading his work uh, uh, lately, and I think he um, he like Morris is is very passionate, has an ideology, but unlike some other Palestinian um, uh, commentators, he's able to confine. Uh, he's able to have a scrupulosity about factual accuracy. So I would say those two gentlemen are are uh, men I admire who write on the conflict. Now, I remember when I went to UCLA, I was studying economics. And during an orientation, I was like holding forth with all sorts of views. And the advisor said, well, what you're describing are normative positions, and that's kind of frowned upon in the economics profession. Now, you, fair and square, you have a lot of normative views on the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. Is having normative views, meaning taking moral stands, is that is that in conflict with the profession of historian, or is that a compliment to that profession? Um, I don't think it, it's either. I think it's something that you can, you, you can do, um, but you have to subordinate your passion to the epistemic standards of history. You can't, um, so for example, I have a bias on the Palestinian side, right? I want to, uh, vindicate the Nakba narrative, but I can't vindicate it within the, um, the typical framework of everybody was ethnically cleansed in 1948. There was a big plan for it because I don't believe there was, there was a plan for it. I believe that plan D or plan Dalet, uh, was, gave license for ethnic cleansing, gave permission, encouraged it, but didn't order it systematically. Uh, so, uh, but I do justify the, uh, the narrative of, of ethnic cleansing based on the, of systematic ethnic cleansing based on the 1950, uh, Israeli, uh, absentee property law, which took all the, assets of the refugees they'd left behind and refused them a right of return. Uh, so I think you're going to be biased uh, based on the narratives you prefer, but you have to be subordinate to the facts. And to, for your overall question, I think advocacy is okay as long as you are a good liberal, a good Westerner, and <laughs> are subordinating your narrative to empirical reality. I would have no argument with describing the campaign that uh, Israel launched 1948, 49, 50, and going up to, to the present as ethnic cleansing. I think it's, it's fairly clear that the current government of, of Israel would like to ethnically cleanse Arabs from the West Bank and from the Gaza Strip, if at all possible. Do you have any quibbles with that? Oh, no, I think they surely want that. And I, I believe that uh, for the vast majority of Israeli history, there have been a couple exceptions. The the government has not been interested in a two-state solution, but has been interested in 
the ideological project of, of greater Israel. And obviously the Netanyahu government, which other than one year has been in power since 2009, um, that is their uh, interest. Now, if I were living in the Gaza Strip, if I was, say, a 17-year-old boy in, in, in living in the Gaza Strip, I mean, what exactly would I have to look forward to? Like, what would tempt me away from a path of pursuing terror against Israel? Right. Uh, I, very little, I think, um, particularly because um, Israel has uh, numerous occasions uh, in the course of your very short life in this um, uh, circumstance you're outlining, launched uh, uh, murderous and indiscriminate attacks on civilians, on your, you know, your family and um, and uh, your friends and so on. Uh, so I think that the, the uh, a big cause without, uh, you know, we, we can't justify the fruits of the hatred massacre, but I think the hatred is very comprehensible. And if Israel is serious about improving its security situation, it will address the hate. It will prioritize um, reducing the hatred over the greater Israel project. And I think these two things clash. We saw Netanyahu, there's videos circulating that Netanyahu says we have to support Hamas and other people on the Israeli right said that because they prioritized undermining politically the Palestinian image and therefore undermining the two-state solution. They prioritized that over security, right? Because if you want to improve your security, you would not <laughs> support Hamas. Uh, so I think there's a clash between, I think that the Israeli policy leads to this murderous hatred and uh, the murderous hatred leads to what we saw on 7 October and will likely lead to it in the future unless the policy uh, uh, changes. One side of your family comes from Egypt, is that correct? Are you guys e Egyptian mm -hmm. Christians? Tell me more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I have uh, relatives in the, yeah, my mom is an Egyptian Christian immigrant. My I was raised with her and my grandparents and my uh, white father. <laughs> so interesting household. Uh, I went to Coptic church. Uh, sometimes I went to Catholic church. Uh, uh, sometimes I preferred Catholic church because it was shorter, but I have much more sentimental memories about Coptic church. I think that it was more godly an experience. I think uh, the Catholic church has gone a bit uh, politically correct and flabby. And then it also had the, the pedophilia. Uh, issue, uh, which was a was a hammer blow to my uh, belief in the religion in my father's as well. But yeah, I mean, I definitely look, I mean, Egypt is one of the worst countries in the region for for um, Christians like Jordan is much better. Lebanon is much better. But um, there was a poll, I think, where only 51 percent of Egyptians had favorable views of Christians. So um, there's a lot of negativity. But you're always going to view people who you consider by and large to be your co-ethnics is, you know, the cops I've talked to when push comes to shove, they do see whatever negative views they have toward Islam. And they often do, they do see the Egyptian Muslims as their co-ethnics. You're going to have sympathy for them and the Palestinians for that matter, very closely related people. You're going to have sympathy for people like you, uh, regardless of whatever uh, theological or, or social uh, pressures push you away from them. Um, so that's, that, yeah, that's part of my stance. And then also I'm concerned about, I, I lived in the Near East for a couple of years. I'm concerned about uh, Palestinian friends of mine in Jordan and uh, who have relatives in Gaza. And I'm also concerned about Egyptian family um, potentially being drawn into regional war. Although I think uh, if, if Hezbollah doesn't come in, that will be uh, a less likely occurrence than I had feared maybe um, <laughs> before a week ago.
And what about your your friends, your friends who care about the Middle East conflict? How do they line up? Well, um, in my program, I, I know I know an Israeli uh, who is, um, uh, I, I believe, uh, I don't want to characterize his views. Um, I do know Arabs uh, who are being a little quieter about what they think. Um, I think there is a, an environment of intimidation uh, that affects uh, Palestinian advocacy. I think it's gotten a little easier this week as opposed to a few weeks ago, but there is some constraints in what people feel comfortable saying because they don't want to be vilified as you're pro-Hamas, you support rape and, and murder, which has been happening really glibly by um, uh, by media and by the political right, ironically, because they're the people supposedly who have criticized this kind of thing when it came from uh, the left. So there's no strong slant on on the part of your friends on this conflict. Oh, I think most of my friends are are much more sympathetic to the Palestinians. I think uh, a number of them have been less outspoken because of uh, career implications, not wanting to be a student you're teaching, for example, you know, PhD students teach, right? Not wanting a student you're teaching to be, uh, feel offended. Um, So I think a lot of people who may be sympathetic to the Palestinians have been afraid to be too vocal about and if you were to say live in the middle east for a year which countries would you most like to live in for a year um i would i think um before i think uh, there, there's four i i would uh like i would uh, be happy to live in um egypt just because i have a lot of family um that would be number one just because of family uh, Lebanon, Beirut is a very fun city. It's, um, you know, <laughs> um, you, you can live a totally Western lifestyle there. You know, most of the Muslims are secular. Um, and most of the, you know, 30% or so are Christian of the population of Lebanon. Um, you, uh, I could live in Dubai quite easily. It's mostly expat and I know Arabic for the natives. And um, Jordan as well. Yeah, those would be four places I could I could live and teach, and I wouldn't mind doing that, provided my income were were adequate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, l- let's uh, let's examine some some first principles because I've been doing a blog post on the principles by which I understand reality. And one of my foundational principles is that uh, essentially nobody cares about out groups. Now, for people like you and me who speak publicly. We're not going to generally display, you know, complete apathy or lack of empathy for out groups, but uh, people speaking privately generally tend to convey a lack of interest in the, in the welfare of out groups. I grew up an Australian, and there was a general feeling among my fellow Aussies that unless you're Australian, you weren't fully human. You didn't really count. You weren't. You weren't much. And I just noticed that among all strongly identifying in groups and i would wish for everyone to enjoy the 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 pleasures of belonging to a strongly identifying in group there is a strong tendency to have negative views of out groups so there are exceptions particularly among intellectuals i mean the smarter you are the more capacity you have for empathy and so the more capable you are of feeling some empathy for out groups but as a general principle, the way the world works is that uh, most people don't care very much about 
foundation about how I view the world. Do you have any thoughts on this principle? Well, I think we've been, I think that uh, in-group preference is very powerful and that uh, the behavior of a lot of intellectuals has reminded us of how salient that is even among intellectuals in the West and so on. Um, you know, some of the people I mentioned earlier in, in regard to this conflict um, and how they're, they're, they're emotionally driven. They're not engaged in rigorous commentary, even though they're quite capable of, of, of good analysis. I do though want to push back in part on what you're saying. You're definitely you're describing something very real and overwhelmingly powerful, but I do think humanity has made progress over the last few centuries in cultivating a greater compassion for the other. And I think this is, this spills over to uh, the public at large, not only um, uh, intellectuals or highly cultivated uh, minds. I think, you know, the abolition of slavery around, uh, you know, at least the old, <laughs> sorry about that, Luke. Uh, the abolition of slavery around the world, um, you know, it, um, movements against uh, human trafficking, for example, which are obviously going to be generally affecting foreigners, right? Um, these are there are strong indigenous movements against this in in various countries, not just the Western countries. Um, I think that various institutions that exist uh, exhibit the fact that there's more compassion for the other, for the traveler, for the person who looks different than there was. And I think we should keep moving in that direction. Nevertheless, we'd be fools to deny, as I think we often do, the overwhelming power that in-group preference still exercises on on how people think about the world and. A lot of people, I think, are being disingenuous by arguing that no, the only the reason I stand with Israel is just an expression of Western values or uh, sober political analysis. Clearly, they're emotionally driven and driven by identity issues. Yeah, almost all my friends are Orthodox Jews who tend to be quite right wing about uh, Israel, and so I'm reminded of the Jonathan Haidt observation that ties bind and blind, and. So I am I am blind to the Palestinian cause. I I just mm. I just am. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think about this notion that ties bind and blind? Of course they do. Um, one illustration of this, I think, is the fact that uh, quite understandably, people are horrified by these images of um, Palestinians celebrating uh, Seven October, right? Which are real images, right? In 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 Gaza. But then they're celebrating or calling for, they're not just calling for support for Israel's uh, effort, which is, of course, based on their historical practice and, and the fact that like dozens of UN employees being killed and, and so on, um, the indiscriminate killing of civilians. They're not just cheering that, but they actually are, many are actually calling for genocide or war crimes or mass murder, including Israeli officials. So. Uh, yeah, they don't. Uh, they see the savagery of the of these people in Gaza cheering a woman being murdered, and uh, with her body, uh, you know, her corpse is, is is visible. But they are cheering for similar things and don't realize it um, because of, of of this blinding effect that you reference. Right, I'm not horrified by supporters of Palestine or critics of Israel who celebrated the Hamas attacks because I don't believe that overwhelmingly they were supporting the specifics of the Hamas attacks. They were supporting their team. And it seems like we just mm -hmm. evolutionarily developed to instinctively root for our team and to 
make excuses for our team and to see everything through a filter that uh, favors our team. Any thoughts? I think you're right about that. I mean, I mentioned I mentioned Lebanon earlier. I mean, if you, you were to go to Beirut, you'd, you'd, you'd see people who, you know, other than looking a little different uh, in terms of physical appearance and ethnicity and racial background, uh, you know, mostly looking Western, right? Uh, most of the Muslims are secular, and then there's a bunch of Christians and Druze and so on. But among the Lebanese people, um, uh, polling indicates that the vast majority supported 7 October, including uh, 60% of Christians, 86% of Druze, and 98% of Shiite uh, Muslims. So, uh, and this is from this is um, uh, data from the Consultative Center for Studies and Documentation, which is a major research group in Lebanon, which the UN, um, you know, the UN cites. Uh, so it's quite credible. You know, so yeah, people are are lining up with their team, and they're not thinking about the ethical the ethical implications are a very distant second right um whereas the first it's my team struck a blow to um the other team it's humbling to realize how little americans for example care about the war crimes committed by americans you have the my Lai massacre around 1968 in vietnam where between 300 and 500 vietnamese civilians were, were murdered in the most horrific way and the architect, the director of that massacre, Lieutenant uh, William Calley, I believe, received four years of home <laughs> detention as as punishment. And Americans really didn't care. Uh, and I, I don't think that's unique to Americans. I think that is the general human tendency. I don't expect Japanese to really care much about the war crimes committed by uh, Japanese. I don't expect the English to care much about the war crimes committed by the English. I don't expect Germans to care about war crimes committed by Germans. I don't expect Israelis to care about war crimes committed by Israel. Uh, can you think of some major exceptions to this where where people in, in a nation are really, really upset about war crimes committed by members of their own team? Um, I think that this phenomenon of shame, which we see especially in the West, uh, tends to come more and more mainstream level after a conflict and cultural change have occurred. Whereas contemporaneously, you do see, so like in Germany, for example, you had the White Rose Movement that was talking about the shame of Germany. You even have some of this in the, in the, um, uh, in the July plot, uh, 1944 to uh, kill Hitler. But this wasn't a mainstream uh, sentiment until really in the 1960s um, uh, with the Eichmann trial, the Auschwitz trial, and then the 68 or kind of rebellion. Uh, so I think I think you're actually right that this doesn't reach mainstream sensibilities until uh, until cultural change has occurred. Um, another example is the Sabra and Shatila massacre of um, was it 82 or 83? 82. Um, it was 82. Thank you, Luke. Um, it, so this was carried out uh, by uh, the Lebanese Christian Falange uh, militia against uh, Palestinian refugees. Uh, the Israeli, the IDF, um, and I absolutely believe we can talk about this, but I absolutely believe uh, uh, knowingly on the part of Sharon, uh, the, uh, the Minister of Defense, uh, facilitated the massacre by letting the Falange into the refugee camp, guarding the exits, and also shooting flares into the sky to light the skies to carry out the massacre. There were Israelis who protested after the massacre, who protested the IDF and the government 
But if you look at polling, like how much of the public was actually, um, you know, um, uh, angry with Sharon, only 4% uh, supported the commission, which called for his resignation. And the majority said it was too harsh. So I think, I think the general pattern is, um, yeah, there can be a, a culture of guilt, particularly in Western countries, this has happened uh, for past uh, crimes, but it's usually not contemporaneous with the war. With regard to Vietnam, though, I think that would be an exception on the American side because of there was very strong, um, not just fringe, but bourgeois moral opposition to the war and to things like my lie, which which actually did arise from our, our policies there because um, we had the free fire zones policy where because so much of the population, especially in rural areas, was against us and would shoot at us, um, we would uh, we had curfews. And if you were out past a curfew, we um, shot you, shot anything that moved, um, provide warning was given. And we ended up, I think, killing, according to Gunter uh, Levy, uh, you know, in a, in a considered work on the Vietnam War, we killed, I think, over 200,000 civilians this way and falsely labeled them as um, combatants. So, yeah, um, uh We've done terrible things, and I think that with, with some exceptions, um, with I think the United States and other Western countries being among them, this guilt doesn't generally uh, accrue until after the war. While you're in the heat of the war, you're going to support your tribe. There's a, a great book on forgiveness called Forgive for Good by a professor at Stanford University, Fred Luskin, who leads something called the Stanford Forgiveness Project. And Fred Luskin's now in his 60s, and he won't work with groups where there's still an ongoing conflict. So he'll go work with people in Northern Ireland because there's been a political solution to that conflict. But he, he makes the, the point that there's just no reason to try to engage in forgiveness while there's still an ongoing conflict. Mm. Unless there's a political solution, it's it, it's not worth it. And he also would, would make the point in, in daily life that if you're fighting your life in a dark alley, there's, there's no point in you know, having humanity and forgiveness for the person who's trying to kill you, that forgiveness is something that you need safety for. So the people of Gaza and the people of Israel, for varying reasons, don't feel much safety right now. So it would strike me as implausible to expect uh, either side to have a great deal of forgiveness for the other right now. Right. I mean, I'm sure you're right empirically that during an active conflict, uh, the idea of uh, forgiveness uh, or even, um, you know, excessive compassion for the other is going to be um, marginal generally, depending on the society. I think if you have a very liberal westernized society, you could have that perhaps, but, um, in general, I think I'm sure you're you're correct. I do think, though, that following these um, tribal impulses of vengefulness uh, can actually be against a group's interest, uh, paradoxically. Uh, for example, I think that the, strat the siege strategy Israel is employing right now is is a doomed strategy. The problem in Gaza is not the military potency of Hamas or the fact that it's some distinctive. Uh, specialized ideology, but the problem is you have a radicalized population, a lot of whom support killing Jewish uh, civilians, right? That's the underlying problem. And killing and maiming Gazans in, in colossal numbers is not going to de-radicalize them. They've been de-radicalized by being in an opener prison where poverty is rife, where 
food, extreme food insecurity is rife, where they score 18 points lower on IQ tests than, than Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, these are the material where, and where they've been subject to murderous uh, military campaigns and war crimes for uh, for decades. Uh, these are the material conditions that are leading to the problem. And uh, a, a, a conquest of, of Gaza by ground is not going to, which, I, by the way, I think is militarily unlikely to succeed anyway um, in terms of wiping out Hamas. It's not going to liquidate the underlying problem, which is the the hate uh, and support for violence uh, many Gazans have against Israelis. Now, another foundational principle I have is that uh, that there really aren't essential peoples. Like knowing that someone is Gazan or Palestinian or Arab or or Jewish or Australian doesn't really tell you much. Or Christian, you need to know more about them and how you know Gazans operate or how English operate or Australians or or Jews operate depends a great deal on context and what type of Christian, what what type of Jew. So some people who watch this will have the perspective that, oh, you know, Gazans or Palestinians are just inherently violent. Other people have the perspective that uh, Jews are just inherently uh, violent and and bent on waging war. Uh, Would you agree that there's no essential nature to, to the Jew or to the Palestinian or to the Muslim that their tendencies in all likelihood, you know, largely derive from the the situation that they're in and the situation that they're coming from. Yeah, I agree. I emphatically agree with that. Um, So here's what I'd say. I think uh, for an individual with some very uh, particular exceptions like height um, or intellect, right? Uh, that most of what we do, intellect would be an exception where there's a very strong genetic influence. Uh, but I think most of what we do is largely determined by our cultural circumstance. I mean, and, and for people who are who are shocked by this, I mean, if, you know, people who were living uh, 300 years ago in the United States, uh, well, two, didn't exist 300 years ago, but let's say 200 years ago, lived in a society where you, know, you got a slap on the wrist for raping your slave, for example. These people were, and I think the age of consent was like 10 to 12 or something like this. I read an interesting book about child marriage in the United States uh, recently, actually, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but the point is, I think our most, our core values, so let's say like the two most, the two things that people think are most repugnant, uh, slavery and, uh, uh, you know, uh, child marriage um, are lawful in the past, right? People didn't have a big moral problem with it. So I think a lot of our moral intuitions are shaped by our particular cultural circumstances. But I think an exception uh, to this would be, um, uh, there are exceptions to this where genetics, I think, went out like intelligence. But generally speaking, I think how we behave is very much determined by uh, experiential and cultural factors rather than intrinsic properties of people. Right. I just, go ahead. Hmm. Go ahead, look. Oh, oh, okay. I was just going to say for, from my own life, if I'm running late for an appointment, I am going to run roughshod over everything in my way. I am going to be brusque. I'm going to be lacking in empathy. I am going to put everything else aside to minimize the amount that I am late to an important appointment. So you just simply... Let's say I'm late 
to give a speech on the importance of empathy. All right. I am going to be completely lacking in empathy. I'm just going to ride roughshod over everything in my way to try to get to my important speech on empathy on time. So simply being in that situation of running late for an important appointment makes me quite rude, quite brusque, Mm -hmm. uh, completely lacking in empathy. So too, I understand the behavior of Gazans and the behavior of Israelis is going to be significantly shaped by the amount of of threat that they feel that they're under. Anything you want to add on this theme? I I agree with that, but I think we can create cultural institutions, perhaps including a greater shame accorded to you for being a jerk and me, you know, I do the same thing, right? Uh, And me for being a jerk if I'm uh, riding roughshod over people to get to class on time, to teach on time or whatever. Um, And you as well to give your speech on empathy. I think we can create cultural incentives that train people to find the, the behavior you're describing repugnant. Um, and I, I think we've done that to some extent, right? To some extent in, in the West, maybe not regarding your specific example, but in other contexts. Um, I think it's very difficult to do that when you're about to die a torturous death. Uh, so like Douglas Murray the other night tweeted these Gazans who are, who were, I think, watching uh, highlights with, Obviously, that term is escorted by scare quotes of 7 October, which, you know, very savage. But, I mean, how are we going to deprogram these people when they're they're thinking these are the people who are about to kill me in a torturous fashion or my mother or sister or whatever? So, yeah, I mean, we should do it, but I don't know how you, you do it exactly. It's very difficult. There's a biologist who made an observation that in nature you don't find two subspecies in the same place, that one subspecies will inevitably went out over another species and drive drive it out. Now, I don't think that's an iron law for how people have to behave because we can look around the world and even if you view different races as different subspecies, I, I can go to Sydney where there are all sorts of races, all sorts of diversity, and there's a very tiny rate of, of crime. So obviously different uh, subspecies can, can exist uh, together without uh, wiping each other out. At, on the other hand, I, I do understand that there's some uh, biological primal uh, tension between different groups forced to live in the same place and some groups will get along better than other groups depending upon history context and and incentives but uh, do you you recognize kind of the the primal uh, competition that is reflected among people that also we see in the in the non-human natural world where subspecies tend to go to war with each other over primacy in a particular place? Yeah, I think we have this impulse from uh, the lower animals, but I think we've, not just Westerners, but other peoples have overcome this to a fairly uh, striking extent in in recent uh, centuries. I mean, you know, take... Palestinians, a lot of them want to kill uh, Jews, and all the Jews want to kill Palestinian civilians now, right, in, in Israel. But uh, if you look at Jordan, for example, same Palestinian population, um, mostly Palestinian, rather, not entirely, you have a Jordanian minority, um, and they don't want to attack Christians. In fact, Christians are treated very well in Jordan by, by regional standards, and just generally, I think they're treated well. I mean, they don't, they're economically overrepresented, they're not attacked or discriminated against, and uh, you know, uh, in economic life 
So, um, yeah, I think it's quite possible. I think the world is moving more toward it. Nevertheless, I think we have to keep in view these biological drives uh, that are powerful and that become more powerful in moments of crises, uh, which we're seeing, as I say, in the West, like Nathan Kofnesism is uh, very much engaged in, in the identity politics software right now. He he doesn't think he is, but it's it's obvious. I mean, he he um he he, he said an octopus is is an anti-Semitic dog whistle. An octopus doll that this um artistic Swedish left-wing girl Greta Thunberg uh, was displaying. She he thought that was a dog whistle to Nazi propaganda. Um, and it's it's not because he's dumb or anything. It's because he's he's very much on the identity politics software right now because he, he sees his group as in a crisis, which, which they are, right? Um, so I think to give a, a kind of, to split the baby in half, there are strong biological drives and these become more powerful in times of crises how, how, for in-group uh, identification. However, I think that we've overcome them to a dramatic extent and not only in the West over the last uh, few centuries, especially. Now, would you say that Nathan Kofnes is more locked into the identity politics prism right now than you are? Um, yeah, I would actually. I think uh, I think I am. Show. I mean, I, I want to debate Nathan. I want you to moderate it actually, because I think he's made just absurd a series of absurd arguments. I don't think he. I think the problem he has is he doesn't. So I, I think I'm conscious of my bias, and I don't think he is. I think he thinks he's he, he's somehow um, uh, just expressing views. I mean, he told you he doesn't think he's he's biased. I think the reason his bias is allowed to run riot is because he hasn't he doesn't even have the self awareness to realize it. And um, yeah, so I think he's he's because he's he's less conscious of it. Um, his uh, the degree to which it perverts his ability to analyze the situation is, is, is far worse as, as in the octopus incident, right? Um, he also was liking a, a tweet that was referring to a hate crime hoax, right? This, um, uh, this issue at, uh, what's the name of the Cooper Union, where, um, you know, it, it, there was this claim that these Palestinian protesters were, were hunting Jews in the library. It turns out the vast majority of students in the library were not Jewish, um, that they were, had no intention to harm anyone. They were just wanted to walk through the library and go to like the president, university president or so on uh, was their ultimate goal. So yeah, he's basically falling for things in terms of really shoddy reasoning, hate crime hoax that he wouldn't be if he were, uh, weren't so uh, plugged into the identity politics uh, game. And I think, yeah, I think he's unaware of it. To another example of this is he made just a terrible. So I, I cited, for example, in exchange with him, Cited the fact that over and over and over again, um, uh, the that Israel in its uh, wars um, targets civilians indiscriminately. Right? I cited I cited various UN reports to this effect, and Kavnis responded by basically saying the UN is is engaged in systematic racism because or systematic anti-Semitism because of um, uh, the UN General Assembly votes that are very targeted against Israel, but. And then my thought was, hey, that doesn't make any sense. Sure, I agree that there are, are states in the UN General Assembly that are biased against Israel, Arab states, and that may account for why there's so many votes against Israel, right? But the fact-finding missions that I was citing, like the Goldstone Report in 2009, have nothing to do with um, Arab states. So this is just a, a, a flimsy argument. You haven't drawn a connection between anti-Semitic Arab states and these UN fact-finding reports, which show 
overwhelming, uh, uh, indiscriminate attacks on civilians. And then he just got mad at me and, you know, said I'm unserious and so on. Um, I, I really want to debate him on this because I think his knowledge is very uh, superficial. Would you would you host it, Luke? Um, oh, absolutely. I've, I've reached out to him. I'll do my best to try to arrange it. I, I saw a comment, something like that you're a troll and you're mm -hmm. not that's that's not the best description for you. I mean, we all have trollish aspects to ourselves, mm -hmm. but what, what you're doing is not primarily trolling. Right, and remember, he 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 wanted to debate Eric Stryker. So, um, if if he, the claim is I'm unserious, he, he'd have to believe not only that, but that I'm less serious than Stryker for that to be a consistent criterion. So, no, I, I again, I think that would be a case too of of um, identity politics driving the you know driving the show for him. But I hope he changes his mind. And uh, just if you're listening to this, Nathan, I'd be willing to do a no ad hominem rule or or yeah, obviously Luke would prevent interruption, but I think we should debate. I think our, our viewers would, would benefit from the from it. I often hear it said that uh, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Do you think that's fair and accurate? Um, well, Lebanon has a uh, Lebanon has a democracy that you know they have um, elections. People um, you know vote. Uh, within the confessionalist framework, there are elections. So I think, I think Lebanon would, would constitute a democracy. Um, now it doesn't mean Lebanon has a <laughs> remarkably liberal uh, system, but I, nor does Israel and Israel, I would call a democracy too. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't accept that. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think it matters that much. <clears throat> I think, uh, think a, a dictatorial society could be better than a democracy in some circumstances. Uh, for example, I like the direction uh, in, I mean, he's a murderer and has done horrible things to people, but nevertheless, uh, Mohammed Ibn Salman um, is moving Saudi Arabia in a better direction. He's um, marginalized radical clerics. He has given women more rights. Women can now live on their own. They can leave the country on their own. Um, he's improved the, the, the situation, still bad for uh, foreign uh, workers. And he's kind of opening, you know, relaxed address code, the concerts and movies. And, you know, he's moving the country in the right direction. And he wouldn't be able to do it in a democratic system as easily, right? Um, so I think that would be a case where positive reform can be made by a dictator, right? Um, on the other hand, there are advantages to democratic system, too. There. So the horrible things MBS does, um, torture, murder, would be more difficult to get away with in a system with um, divided um, uh, institutions. Although, of course, Israel committed torture systematically for many years until 1999, their democracy. So, yeah, I think I think it matters that Israel is a democracy, um, which is rare in the region. I think I'd call Lebanon one, too. But um, I don't think that is a, as powerful a talking point as one might think. Now, another foundational principle I have for understanding the world is I just don't see many examples of strong in-group identity that doesn't substantially also have a strong victimhood identity. It seems like in-group identity depends upon victimhood identity. There's no strong Jewish identity. There's no strong uh, Christian identity, to the best of my knowledge. There's no strong Muslim identity, to the best of my knowledge, without an accompanying victimhood identity any thoughts 
a very interesting point. I, I think I, I'm, I'm very tempted to say that you're exaggerating, but I think that you've made a very interesting point that victimhood, we, we, we sometimes talk about victimhood as if it's a contemporary phenomenon that the West fetishizes victimhood. But in fact, a notion of, of you know, the kind of heroic epic where the hero is victimized and then rises and becomes powerful and, and, and smites his oppressors. This is, um, this has broad cultural resonance. And you even have a case of, of like Nazi Germany, for example, right? You know, uh, they had a victimhood narrative from Versailles. You have the, the Soviet Union that has a victimhood narrative of the uh, oppression of the uh, proletariat under the, the hated SARS. So I think, I think a, a, a victimhood narrative is very, this is very powerful and consistent source of identity. I wouldn't say it's the only source of identity, though. Um, but it, it does seem like groups very quickly go to that. Um, even even groups that you think of as, as privileged, uh, like the Gulf Arabs, for example, they, they will go to is, Islamophobia or whatever, um, if need be. And that will be a unite, unifying mechanism. So I think you've pointed to a, a very interesting um, uh, group uh, dynamic, which which very much strengthens the group dynamic, a sense that one has been victimized. Maybe not that one is victim now, victimized now, but one has been victimized and one is in some kind of spiritual sense still a victim. Because, of course, if you were a victim at one point and you're powerful and mighty now, that makes you a hero, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and there was a very strong sense of uh, victimhood among my, my fellow Seventh-day Adventists. Like, I was raised on books like uh, Fox's Book of, of Martyrs, which describes tens of millions of Protestants being murdered mm -hmm. by, by Catholics. And, and I remember my, my father, when I was on my journey to Judaism, said that, you know, what the, what the Catholics did to the Protestants made the, you know, the Holocaust look like child's play. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that's a dominant ethos in Seventh-day Adventism. I heard like 20 times more negative things about Catholics growing up than I did about Jews. I, I checked with my siblings. We didn't once have a conversation about Jews when I was growing up in my Seventh-day Adventist, you know, theologian father's uh, home. It, it was all about how uh, Catholics had, had victimized us. So that once you have this strong sense of victimhood, which seems to be empirically, you know, everywhere you have strong sense of in-group identity, what, what always accompanies that is, is a predisposition towards a lack of moral inhibition in overcoming that perceived victimhood. And I'll give you an example. I reacted very strongly against Donald Trump and Republican claims that the 2020 elections were rigged. By, by the Democrats that it was a, a stolen election. And one of the arguments I put forward is, if you believe this, if you believe the 2020 elections were stolen, then there are no longer any moral inhibitions. Like, you can do anything once you believe that the 2020 elections are stolen. And so what accompanies a strong sense of victimhood is usually a strong in-group identity, which has many beautiful parts to it, but also what accompanies a strong in-group identity and this strong sense of victimhood is a complete, complete lack of, of moral inhibitions with how you redress this perceived victimhood. Any thoughts? I agree. I think that 
the greater the perceived level of victimization. I mean, you even you even see this with uh with with, with Black Lives Matter. So, um, in twenty uh, twenty, of course, we had riots that where a lot of people died in, in in arson, for example. A lot of people were burned alive, right? Um, and this was justified because of the the sense that African Americans have been so victimized that these murderous, uh, often murderous, not always, of course, but but but. Uh, often murderous uh, protests or riots were the expression of this victimization. So, yeah, I think people, uh, not just by any means, not just the African-American community in America, but all, all kinds of communities, um, you know, in Europe and the U.S. and uh, the Middle East, will relieve themselves of moral inhibitions if they think that uh, they have been oppressed enough, that that justifies uh, this kind of outrageous behavior. And I think I'm, I'm sure you're seeing that in Gaza and you're also seeing that frankly in Israel, because uh, you, you, you're seeing people call for genocide and call for, you know, not deliberately not discriminating between civilians. And I mean, you even have Herzog talking about how there are no civilians in Gaza essentially. So yeah, I think, I think the, the sense of a group being victimized, which may be true, of course, to some extent um, leads to more outrageous and, murderous uh, expressions of of um, outgroup hostility. So uh, Admiral Bill Halsey was a big uh, favorite of the press and of many of his uh, soldiers, members of the U.S. Navy during World War II for his attitude towards the enemy. And his war strategy was summed up in the, this one sentence, the way to win the war is to kill Japs, kill Japs, and kill more Japs. Uh, that... Mm -hmm does seem to be a dominant attitude of, of people in war, particularly when they feel like they've been victimized. So Israel certainly feels victimized by October 7. Palestinians feel victimized by their living conditions over the past uh, 70 years. And so I would kind of expect this attitude to be, to be huge among both groups. The, the way to win the war is to kill the enemy. Right. But you have to, at some point, be rational and think, sure, I mean, there's um, certainly some impulse there, but I, I think Israelis have fallen prey to this to such an extent that they're not embracing the kind of uh, military or political strategy that actually will prevent this kind of thing from happening again. I mean, as I say, the, the major problem in Gaza is not... <laughs> the brilliance or military power of Hamas. I mean, these are like a bunch of ragtag thugs. The problem is that there are tens of thousands of these Hamas fighters. And why are there? Because they hate, because the people of Gaza hate the Jewish Israelis by and large, right? Um, and you're not going to solve that by this bloody, um, uh, vicious uh, siege and, and indiscriminate targeting of civilians. And, and they have a, a history of doing this. I mean, in 2021, you know, when they were uh, 2021 um, airstrikes on Gaza, air wars found that 70% were that killed civilians. 70% of the strikes that killed civilians had no killed no militants or military targets. So Israel has a history of doing this. They seem to be more extreme even uh, now. And I think it'll lead to more hatred and in the long run to a worse security condition for them. Even if they ethnically cleanse the Gazans to Egypt, you're still going to have a problem on your on your border. I mean, that's what led to the... Israeli invasion of, of, of Lebanon that, uh, you know, culminated with the Sabra and Shatila massacre. So they're going to 
this is not going to improve the security situation. Um, and another reason is like the victimization narrative and also, you know, the, the real suffering, of course, all the people who had relatives massacred or kidnapped have, right? They're not, it's not just a narrative, it's a fact. Um, this, I think, is blinding them to how do we actually, to the likelihood of this happening in the future. I mean, this was a preposterous security uh, breach. I mean, they need to fortify their border. It's ridiculous. How, how did these people with paragliders get across the Israeli border? It's just ridiculous. I mean, all the, all the people in the security apparatus should be fired immediately. You know, it's so, so I, in other words, I don't think there's, I think it, these impulses of, of victimhood, however true they are, uh, are blinding the Israelis in this case to what would actually be good policy to, prevent this from happening again because the Palestinians are going to keep engaging in terrorism so long as they're treated like this. It's just going to, that's just what's going to happen. Now, maybe this, this expression of it was more brutal than we had thought, but the terrorism in and of itself shouldn't surprise anyone. That's, that's what they're going to keep doing. So I, I heard one comment that the news media in the United Kingdom has become even more pro-Israel than the news media in the United States. Do you have any sense about this? I have noticed that like publications such as The Guardian, which is like, you know, left, kind of woke, not far left, not leftist, but like left liberal, um, has become more pro-Israel. They even fired a cartoonist. Um, they even fired a cartoonist for caricaturing Netanyahu in a way I don't think it was anti-Semitic at all. Um, I try to look this story up and I could give it to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they sacked a, a, a cartoonist who worked there for decades because he caricatured Netanyahu. So yeah, I think I think the the British establishment, including the mainstream media like BBC and and uh, the Guardian, have become much more pro um, Israel. I do think though that there is um, a lot of this is top down in the United States and in Britain. Now, I'm not. I think most of the public would support Israel right now, but I, I also believe that there's a lot more more dissent than uh, is being indicated by uh, the media and by public officials, right? And I think that dissent will continue to grow as people learn more about Israel and also see the radically indiscriminate targeting of civilians. I mean, we, we talked about Vietnam earlier, and yeah, in Vietnam, you know, we killed, we killed hundreds of thousands of civilians and as I say, the free fire zones. But we have evolved, though, beyond since Vietnam, uh, beyond this kind of uh, indiscriminate targeting of civilians. Like in Iraq, for example, I get the exact figures. Um, Iraq body counts. Oh, I'm looking at a tweet I did on this. Oh, the, the, yeah, there are various numbers, uh, uh, tens of thousands right, to so, a million no, no, people no. died as a result of the 2003 invasion. Sure, sure. Well, a million is probably a little high, but many hundreds of thousands died. But the coalition, but the one thing that's not talked about in this connection is that the the coalition uh, between 2003 and 2010, um, according to Iraq body count, so we're not talking like a shill pro-American source, killed 13,807 civilians total. Um, obviously, the total civilian death was way higher, but most of that was caused by the people we were fighting. It wasn't caused by us. That's just a fact. I mean, it's leftists often say, oh, we killed a million people in Iraq. We killed, no, it, we killed, you know, uh, the, between 20, 2003 and 2010, there was a little more data there from the end, but... 13, about a little under 14,000 civilians. Israel's going to pass that in like some little strip of land the size of Chicago, probably by the end of the year. So uh, we do not target civilians nearly as indiscriminately as Israel uh, as Israel does. Um, they're really 
they're completely out of the Western mainstream. We know what they do. I mean, in, 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 in Cast Lead, for example, in 2008, 2009, um, uh, the United Nations found 90% of deadly attacks on civilians had no articulable military justification, whatever. I mean, they, they do this all the time. And this is a big reason why they're hated uh, indiscriminately killing. I'm not saying indiscriminately killing civilians is um, the same as, as what Hamas did, but we're, we're getting in the neighborhood of of murder here, you know, um, and, and no, the United States doesn't in the past we did, but we don't uh, target civilians so indiscriminately anymore as, as Israel does. And that's part of why um, Biden is, is having cold feet. And I remember there, there's a senator who's supportive of Israel who's starting to have cold feet too. I mean, they've killed like dozens of UN aid workers. They're not, they bombed a refugee camp or a na- whatever you want to call it, neighborhood. Residential people are mad about that term, but it doesn't really matter much what we call it. Uh, and I think, again, uh, this is going to lead to more hatred um, of, and I think this is part of the problem they have, that uh, the, by indiscriminately killing civilians, you know, people are going to hate you, right? Um, and so w- which nations, say, waging a war for what they regard as mm-hmm. their, their own survival, would you regard their conduct as more exemplary than, than Israel's? Well, I mean, y- the the... the key qualifier you put in there is waging for own survival so that would that would open a a can of worms that may be why they're more um look okay so that could be the reason why they're more indiscriminate but if we're just raw if we're just comparing raleigh like the united states and iraq to israel the u.s and iraq is much less indiscriminately killing like they killed you know um um, many more, far more, about twice as many more militants as civilians. Israel's killing, <laughs> kills far more civilians than militants in these in these um, in these exchanges, um, like in Cast Lead in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, Protective Edge. Um, by the way, Protective Edge, forty percent of cases there were uh, where civilians were killed. There were uh, no explanations. Uh, the United Nations found for for why this happened. Um, like not, we're not talking about a good one or a bad one or disproportionate, like zero. So this is like a long-term practice of Israel's. Now, you may have have highlighted the motive that they feel existentially threatened in a way America doesn't. Fair enough. Uh, first, I'd say they're wrong um, that Hamas did massacre all these people, but Hamas, Hamas is not a military threat to Israel. Hamas, Hamas is a terrorist threat to Israel. It's the idea that these people could defeat Israel militarily and de- defeat the state of Israel is a joke. What they could do is murder innocent Israelis and torture innocent Israelis as they did and um, the current tactic being used against them is not going to disincentivize them from doing that. It's going to incentivize them to do it. Um, so I, what I would say to your question is, yeah, you may have identified the, the cause of, of why they're, they're, they're so much more indiscriminate than Western nations like America. But first of all, it's not true. Uh, they're wrong to think that they're existentially threatened. They're threatened by terrorism. And second of all, um, it's making the problem worse, this perception and this practice. So Israelis would say that this Hamas attack has rendered life in southern Israel next to Gaza impossible. And so tens of thousands of Israelis have had to be evacuated. And so that is their perspective on the existential threat that you know mm-hmm. a, a significant portion of their country is now uninhabitable due to this attack. Uh, what do you think of that reaction? No, I don't think it is. Um, I would do. I would do the same if I were Israeli. I'm not trying to diminish 
their sense of facing a security risk. What I'm saying is Hamas doesn't pose a, an existential threat to the existence of the state of Israel. It's just way too weak. Israel's way too strong. What it does pose is a threat of terrorism, and people on the border after a massacre are going to be horrified of that, and very understandably. I'm not saying they're acting irrationally. Yeah, I mean, I think we both agree that if, if for some un, unthinkable reason, Mexico made life uh, unsafe for people in the southwestern part of the United States. So California, Arizona, Texas, no longer New Mexico, no longer livable. And, you know, tens of millions of Americans had to move out of those states. Americans would regard that threat as an existential threat. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, if if there were a massacre of of, of you know uh, a thousand American civilians and a few hundred soldiers died or whatever the figures are, um, well, I don't know what the figures are. Over a thousand civilians, let's say. We'll know we'll know numbers, I'm sure, after the fact and as this is investigated with more precision. But um, yeah, it would be totally rational and human to move away from the border completely. I'm not. I'm not deprecating that. What I'm, what I'm saying is it wouldn't be rational to think that the existence of America is threatened by, uh, let's say, some gang that commits a massacre, right? Um, right, but if California became unlivable, just California, if California became sure, unlivable, no. that would be experienced by Americans, even though it's only California. But if California, one state in the union became unlivable, that would be experienced by Americans as an existential threat to its existence. Yeah, sure, but it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be well if it became unlivable because there's a terrorism threat and like the woke people won't enforce the law. If people murder, or rape, or is that hypothetical? But because just, I don't know how. Just I mean, transferring could, what happened to southern Israel to the right. southern United States, but we'll just right. limit it to one state. California becomes unlivable because there's such a powerful terror group in, in mm -hmm. northern Mexico. And so 40 million Californians move out of the state because the United States, for whatever reason, lacks confidence that it can defend its citizens in California. Even though it's only one state out of 50, that would still be experienced by Americans as an existential threat, even if there is absolutely no chance that this powerful terror group in Mexico is going to be able to overcome the United States as a total uh, militarily. Sure. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not deprecating the reaction of Israelis in the South. I, I, I bet I'd do the same thing if I were Israeli. What I am saying is that for people engaged in political or military analysis, it is very important to understand what exactly the threat is. And the threat is one of terrorism, not of some military power akin to Nazi Germany that we need to liquidate, right, uh, to defeat. It, 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 and the terrorism arises from a radicalized population. They're going to keep they're going to keep supporting terrorism against Israelis until they until they're let out of their open air prison, until they have a, a state. There are going to be continual uprisings, terrorism, uh, outrages, uh, murders. So it's just the wrong approach to conceive of it as militarily. It doesn't mean that, and, and to conceive of it as this existential military threat rather than a terrorist problem. It doesn't mean it's not a big deal or that people are irrational to be afraid and move away and outraged. So I often hear the description of Gaza as an open-air prison, and I, my, my view is that that's moderately hyperbolic, but that it touches on important truths. 
However, I think if we were to survey people living in a actual high security prison and say you can continue living in a high security prison or you can live in Gaza, I, I wonder would would most of them. So I, I would regard Gaza as an open air prison, just uh, moderately hyperbolic. Uh, would you would you say yeah, it's it's clearly literally true because most people in a high security prison in the United States would not you know, take the opportunity to live in Gaza instead of being in a high security prison. Talk to me more about that description of Gaza as an open air prison. Well, I think I would prefer to live in, assuming I, I knew I'm not going to get uh, assaulted, you know, that it was a euphemism. Um, there are prisons in America. I think I'd prefer to live in than, than uh, uh, Gaza, given the risk of death in Gaza, not just right now, but over the years given the lack of clean drinking water, given the, the extreme poverty and, and food insecurity. No, I don't. I mean, they can't leave. Um, there is this, this, this blockade uh, preventing them from engaging in, in, in open air, in, in open commerce. Of course, the, the cutting off of waterways and, and blockades, this is like considered under international law cause of war. Um, that should be noted. It isn't a cause of massacre, of course, but it's a, it's a, it's considered a just uh, cause for war. Um, so no, I, I don't think it's hyperbolic. I mean, right now it's kind of like, <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, the, the, one of the more striking pieces of data, which Richard Lynn has found is that Gazan children are 18 points lower in IQ tests than West Bank children. I mean, that shows a level of, and, and Lynn is no politically correct actor. He, he believes this is a, this is an environmental explanation, which, which makes sense because they're the same people. Like the Gazans are mostly not from Gaza, they're ethnically cleansed elsewhere in the Nakba and ended up there uh, and their descendants. Um, so I think, I think the material conditions as, as evidenced by poverty rates, by food insecurity rates, by rates of anemia among children and, and uh, pregnant women um, and uh, lack of clean water. And of course the, the periodic uh, killings uh, and maimings of these people at very high levels no, I think I think God, if if I knew that I'm not going to be like sexually assaulted, I think I'd prefer an American prison. And I, and also like I know I'm not being falsely accused of some crime. Like I'm not being told I'm a murderer, right? Um, but if I just have like some just purely living conditions, yeah, I mean, yeah, you could you can ha you can make love, you can you can uh, do all sorts of things in Gaza that you can't do in, in prison. You can make love to a woman in Gaza. I think it'd be a lot harder in prison. Sure, but there's also, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to die a torturous death in Gaza, as we're seeing right now. I mean, and have your family die a torturous death. You know, a lot of, a lot of I think it would depend on the prison. If you're in a Swedish prison, that's better than Gaza. Um, I mean, yeah, sex would be one thing that you can do in Gaza that you couldn't. That's, that's, that's an important difference. But I don't think open air prison is, um, is hyperbolic, really. Um, there also can be conjugal visits in prison, um, but yeah. Anyway, so, I, I think I don't think it's hyperbolic because they can't yeah. leave. I mean, okay. they they can't leave. I mean, David Cameron called it an open air prison. Mm -hmm. um, you know, conservative British Prime Minister pro Israel. He's he's called it that. Uh, it's, it's. I think it's a reasonable analogy. I mean, and and, and you could even say it's worse than the prison in the sense that the people are all stuck in prison. There's due process and so on, and you're you're convicted of a crime and you're there usually a pretty serious crime. If you're a first-time offender and you did something bad but not horrible, you're usually not going to go to prison. But um, these people are all 
there's many innocent people who've done nothing wrong who are just in this prison because of their of dint of birth. So you could argue it's much worse. Than, it's internment camp, I think, would be a would be an appropriate even concentration camp. Although concentration camp, the problem is it has the extermination camp um, connotation, which is not well, maybe accurate in the future, but isn't accurate has not been accurate in the past. But um, the uh, but it kind of is a concentration camp or internment camp in the historical sense of those terms. Right. If you look at, like, for example, how the, what the British did to the Germans during World War Two does look a lot like that. I mean, there were camps where in India, British India, where I've stayed, where there were families who could live together. So you could you could if you're a Nazi and and you had a family and kids, you could see your kids and have sex with your wife in the internment camp. But it was still an internment camp or concentration camp. Right. Um, in in uh, India. Right. But you didn't get to vote for your uh, political overseers i would assume in the internment camps but the gazans did have an opportunity to vote in 2006 they voted for hamas uh, apparently how much of the, the misery in gaza is the responsibility of gazans i think very little because um i think uh, it depends on what you're talking about so i think the people who vote for hamas do have a responsibility but I would say the overall responsibility is little because of the fact that the vast majority of people in Gaza didn't. They either weren't born, weren't old enough, or didn't vote for Hamas, which just won a, a, a plurality. Um, so I think, uh, not I don't think very little would be a little too strong, but I think it would be pretty modest the level of responsibility they have. By the way, remember that the the big uh, kind of propaganda line used um, to vilify the Palestinian cause is that the um um the uh that in 2005 israel removed all the settlements and was making a serious gesture for peace remember who the israeli leader was at the time it was ariel sharon who in 1953 in Quibia, um committed a massacre literally committed a massacre and um, people don't know this but literally committed a massacre i'm not talking about severance deal i'm talking about a massacre which he which is unit one carried out of Palestinians. So he, this guy is massacre. He's a massacre man. He's massacred Palestinians. In 1982, he, as compelling evidence shows, uh, which we could talk about if you wish, uh, he knew about and facilitated the Sabrin Shatila massacre. I'm not saying he knew about scale or all the details, but he knew in general terms that, that they were uh, murdering people. Um, and th this man was always against a two state solution um, um, ideologically through his whole career. The idea that he just changed at the end. Is implausible. This was obviously a, a, a propagandistic game he was playing to try to create the talking points. First of all, he thought Gaza was not worth the security risk. But the second thing is, he um, he, he believed that uh, this would be a, a good talking point. I mean, a lot of the settlers that he kicked out of Gaza were then moved to the West Bank. So it wasn't as if he had given up the Greater Israel Project. Um, uh, but in terms of your question, no, I think for the large majority of the citizens of Gaza, there isn't responsibility because they simply didn't vote for Hamas. They didn't, um, uh, they weren't alive. Um, or they, they may have done so in just a state of total ignorance where they didn't know the much about the program um, and, and so on. Um, the people in Hamas who carried out a massacre, yeah, they have, they have responsibility or people who are corrupt and swindling the public there. Yeah, they have a, they definitely have a responsibility for it, but I think most don't look when you're, when you're totally controlled by by another power, as Gaza is, I mean, they're they're blockaded. Israel 
controls everything that goes in. They just control the economy, essentially. If you control all imports in the modern world, there's not um, autarky. And <laughs> autarky is not a viable model for Gaza. So Israel basically controls the economy, controls uh, the society. Then, yeah, Israel has the primary responsibility for what's going on there. And if they don't want that, then they should support a Palestinian state. If they don't want to take that responsibility, then support a Palestinian state. It's not that difficult. If you're going to be the the colonizer or controller of an area, you need to take responsibility for it. If you don't want to do that, then give them independence. So th- there's no controversy that uh, Hamas rules Gaza. I don't see anyone disputing that. Uh, to what extent are Gazans responsible for Hamas ruling Gaza? Why, why are they so weak or ineffectual that they can't overthrow a, a regime that is inimical to their own welfare? Well, I mean, uh, if you look at polling, Hamas is pretty unpopular in, in Gaza. Even most of the, the poll by the Washington Institute, which is pro-Israel, by the way, showed a majority were against breaking the, the ceasefire, too. So uh, the inference that most of them supported the massacre, I think, is wrong. Although I think they're clearly we, we, we've, we've seen expressions of support. So they exist. Right. I'm not saying there aren't popular support. I think that, um, I mean, sure, they could have a coup d'etat and overthrow the Hamas. Uh, it's very difficult to do that when you don't have access to weapons, um, you know, uh, as a society because of the blockade. Obviously, I'm not saying Israel should allow weapons in there. Even I wouldn't, right? And I'm very pro-Palestine. But, um, you know, the, the Hamas have the weapons, right? Um, and regular people do not. And there are tens of thousands of fighters. So, And you have a, you have a much more salient enemy in Israel. So I just don't think there's going to be a a strong popular movement to fight Hamas. I think that's an unrealistic expectation. And, you know, generally in history, when you have authoritarian regimes or totalitarian regimes or oppressive regimes, people do not, there are not successful coup d'etats that overthrow them. Um, and those that do arise are, are generally fairly special circumstances with foreign help uh, and, and so on. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't hold them deeply uh, responsible for not overthrowing uh, Hamas. Um, people who voted for Hamas do have uh, responsibility. But by the way, um, you probably know this, but the, there are many people in the Israeli right, including Netanyahu, who said we have to support Hamas because they they undermine the optics of the national Palestinian movement. We can't support the, the PA because the PA, since the Second Intifada, has denounced violence and the West would be willing to negotiate with them. So we can't make them more powerful. We have to make Hamas more powerful. So there's a responsibility on the Israeli government, too, because they wanted to empower this group and undermine their security in the process uh, for the sake of uh, destroying the Palestinian cause and preventing a two-state solution and pursuing the greater Israel project. So I think Israel has a lot of responsibility, too, not not Israelis, but the government officials who supported uh, Hamas. So since COVID, I've become increasingly discouraged by the low intellectual quality of most right-wing discourse. Mm -hmm. And one example is the widespread contempt on the right for virtue signaling. I I just simply read Mm -hmm. a paper by a philosopher making the argument virtue signaling is virtuous. And I read it and go, yeah, of course, like signaling plays a huge role in nature. Like animals are constantly signaling to each other. Why would not people signal to each other? And is it not better for people to signal something virtuous than something, you know, non-virtuous? 
And so virtue signaling, I just suddenly became convinced, is, is a good thing. Now, it, it's complicated in this war with Israel in, in Gaza because it strikes me that a large part of the conflict between, say, Israel and Hamas is about signaling. Uh, Israel must signal to its enemies that this kind of destruction is what awaits you if you hurt us. If you attack us, we're going to be you know, brutal to you just as we are in, in Gaza right now. Also, Israel was able to obtain uh, peace treaties with various other Arab Middle Eastern nations over the past three years because it essentially signaled that we are here to stay, that we have the most powerful military in the Middle East. And so if Israel is as incompetent as it appeared on October 7, then Arab states are strongly not incentivized to make treaties with Israel because it doesn't look like Israel's going to last if it is indeed as incompetent as it was on October 7. But at the same time, Hamas must signal that it's fighting for the cause of the Palestinian people, that it's not a, a paper tiger. So it seems to me that a large part of this Israel versus Hamas conflict is a matter of signaling, and that is what's driving much, perhaps most of the brutality on both sides. Any thoughts? Um, so can you repeat the question uh, in a little more concise? So you're talking about is signaling. virtue signaling yeah. driving? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Signaling. It's, it's like, not so much virtue signaling. It's maybe it's the opposite. Mm. It's, it's power signaling. Israel mm. needs to signal mm. that it's here forever mm -hmm. and that anyone who attacks it will be, will, will bear the brunt of its fury. And this is driving the fury of the Israel response because it needs to signal and what drove Hamas's attack on October 7th, in large part, was a need to signal something that it's not a paper tiger, that Israel is not here forever, that Israel is vulnerable, that Israel can be defeated, that uh, Muslims and Arabs can unite to drive out the Zionist occupier. And so th they're both engaged in signaling, and that's a significant part of the brutality. Of, of course, signaling is, is politically very relevant. I would never deny that. Um, the problem is when your signaling gets in the way of, of, of sound policy and core issues like security. I, I think, as I say, I don't think the Israeli military effort is going to succeed in destroying Hamas. And I don't think even destroying Hamas would really accomplish that much because another group is going to take up uh, the same kind of ideological banner. And violent and support violent um, extremism and murder of Israelis because of the fact that you're going to have a population full of maimed people and widows and orphans and you know the the, the sense of hatred will be far stronger. Uh, the problem is a de-radicalized population and yeah, I think definitely there's a signaling process going on. Netanyahu wants to say, and frankly, the political such situation in Israel is such that if somebody said, let's, as I proposed the other day. If Hamas agrees to um, give every um, uh, hostage, we'll have a ceasefire. Um, if you were to say that in Israel, you get lynched. You have to say, um, no, we support totally destroying Hamas no matter what, right? Um, so I think that you're right about the role of signaling in politics and, and, and human psychology, but it isn't a good thing right now. It's a bad thing in the context of Israel. Um, actually, Hamas... Um, as brutal and cruel as they are, may have had a better uh, strategy because uh, maybe their strategy was with by being as brutal as possible and 
medieval as possible to provoke uh, Israeli war crimes and killings of civilians and killings of aid workers and so on at a level we haven't seen uh, for a long time. And therefore, to get more Arab uh, support for Israel, uh, pardon me, for the Palestinian cause, and even, frankly, uh, Western support for the Palestinian cause. So um, it could be that Hamas is acting strategically while Israel is signaling. Now, when I started live streaming almost every day in early 2018, I I found a a strategy which I'd already arrived at through my, my blogging, but it really served me well in live streaming, and that is I wouldn't devote much energy, if any, at all to debating matters of faith. So, for example, if someone believes that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm not going to argue interpretations of Isaiah 53 with them. And by side-skipping debates on matters of faith, I, I found I was also able to largely sidestep debates on morality. So I don't debate who are the good guys in the Middle East and who are the bad guys or the good guys and bad guys anywhere in the world. So we've spoken several times and you repeatedly have a much more moral and, and normative approach to world events than, than I do. Uh, the advantage for me is that uh, my blood pressure doesn't go up when I talk to someone with a different hero system from, from myself, which it does go up when I'm looking at the world through a moral lens. So if I was in a mode of Israel or the good guys, my blood pressure would be going up during this discussion. It's just so much easier for me because mm-hmm. I don't take that approach. But you do take a normative approach, which means it, it's so much more, I would have to think, stressful for you because you do have a component, a very strong moral and normative component to your world analysis. Is that fair? I think you're right. Uh, I do have a have a ethical priors that inform how I look at the world, um, and uh, those are are largely informed by Western liberal values. And then here you add on top of that uh, a personal connection and affection for the Palestinian people that I, you know, that I have for personal reasons, um, familial reasons, and so on. Uh, not Palestinian, but you know, I think I talked about earlier my uh, Middle Eastern uh, ancestry and so on, but. Um, yeah, I think there, those are two, uh, the, the, the commitment to liberal values with a lowercase L, not, not the current left in America, which is very strange, uh, but liberal Western enlightenment values. And then the, the kind of uh, particular sympathy for the Palestinian people are definitely informing my outlook here. Yeah. Um, now, could that make, could that create analytical problems? I think it could. I do believe, though, that uh, and I, I believe in terms of truth-seeking in a more dialectical model. So I think people with certain biases, provided that they're acting in good faith and they're uh, subordinating themselves to empirical reality, right? Which, and I believe I do both. And I think my work speaks to that uh, even on Twitter and so on um, and YouTube and whatever. Um, if you're willing to do that, then you're contributing to a dialectical process where people with different moralisms, with pro-Israel, anti, anti-Palestinian moralism, um, will uh you'll work together in a dialectical process and, and and social process and come at the truth so i think i don't think there's anything wrong with it i do think the level of moralism i'm exhibiting about current events would be out of place in in history right um you know this isn't about history history informs my views but obviously this is a current event it isn't a historical 
piece. I think the historical pieces can have and do have a moral touch, but shouldn't have the level of moralism I'm expressing on these matters. Um, yeah, and I'm not criticizing though. having a moral approach. I'm just saying it, it makes no, your no. task so much harder because I know how convulsed I would be emotionally if I was taking a, a pro-Israel perspective in this discussion. It, mm -hmm. it, would, it would be really painful for me. <laughs> right. No, I've been emotionally engaged in it, and there's been pain. And I'm sure it's more pain that people who are Israeli uh, in, the, in Israel or Palestinian um, in in Gaza or even Jordan or the West Bank are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, it definitely um, it definitely affects rhetoric and analysis and um, uh, as well as personal temperament and interaction with others. On the other hand, I think if you're uh, scrupulous and in good faith and you care about empiricism, you are contributing to the truth-seeking process in a dialectical sense, even if you are um, <clears throat> expressing moralism through your advocacy. Mm. But I, one, one reason I like talking to you, Luke, though, is that um, you don't have the moralistic approach, even though I, I, I like, I, I think you're a pretty hard, your position on this, if I were to drill down to it, would be a very hardcore pro-Israel. Yes. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, but it, I can, I enjoy talking to you about this because it's kind of a, a relief from the highly moralistic, discourse of a of a Kafnis, for example on this i'm not trying to pick on, on nathan i'm more trying to get him to debate me but um or a dave rubin i mean there are people who have just scores of people on the right or ben shapiro or uh, douglas murray um there are scores of people on the right who claim to be anti-identity politics who have just revealed quite the opposite approach on this issue and that's okay it doesn't make them bad people but it's probably time to be a little honest about our biases at this point. It doesn't make you a bad person if you're Jewish and concerned about Jewish people being massacred uh, because of, not just because of humanistic values, but because you're Jewish. That's totally human. I, I, but what is frustrating to me is the lack of acknowledgement that this is not in part. I'm not saying they wouldn't take the same position if they were Amish, but I think they should acknowledge that part of their passion and advocacy and politics is it anti-politics driven? Doesn't even mean they're wrong. Doesn't mean they're unscrupulous. I think many of these people have been unscrupulous. But um, the lack of acknowledgement of this to me is a bit frustrating, frankly, on, for many people on the right. Yeah, and I, I used to buy into you know, the, the pro-Israel uh, ideology much more than I do now. I'm just as, as pro-Israel. I just recognize that many of the talking points of the pro-Israel crowd and not nearly as convincing as I used to find them. For example, a very common pro-Israel talking point is that there are you know, this number of Arab Muslim states where Palestinians can go and they can share the same language and same religion. And, you know, why don't they just go be happy? There's only one Jewish state in the whole world, and so it needs to be safe. But then I realize the, the real sense of pain I, I would get if there was a a gay married couple on my block. For me, you know, same-sex marriage is, it hurts me. Like, it so offends my understanding of what is heroic and, and true and good and beautiful and right that it, it actually causes me pain, even if you had the most beautiful pro-social, and I'd still be friends with them. I, I, I wouldn't, and I would certainly, I'd do nothing to hurt them. 
but it, the, the very existence of, of gay marriage causes me pain. It has changed how I feel about the United States of America, that it's been uh, legislated by the Supreme Court, that this is the, the law of the land. So it doesn't matter how many you know, same-sex married couples there are, just their very existence, particularly in my country, the United States, causes me pain. So I, I recognize now why Palestinians and their supporters would feel pain at, at uh, having been removed from their land for which they spend hundreds of years and recognize their very strong claims to the land. And, you know, why would I expect them just to, them and their supporters to just acquiesce with the, with them being moved off their land? They have a hero system. I have a hero system. Violations of my hero system cause me pain. The idea of people being out and loud and proud about being homosexual in the U.S. military, it causes me pain because it is... It is against my hero system. I conceive of the, the military as a heterosexual institution. I see marriage as a heterosexual institution. And so violations of my hero system cause me visceral pain. So, of course, Palestinians and their supporters are going to feel visceral pain at the suggestion that they should acquiesce with being removed from their land. Any thoughts? Well, f first, in terms of the, the homosexuality point, it's interesting because... Um, um, uh, I have an interesting position that I don't have a, I don't have a problem with homosexuals at all, but I don't have a problem with religiously Orthodox people in the Abrahamic tradition either. And you really, and that, that's a kind of, I have to admit, that's a kind of wishy-washy position because there was a big, uh, conflict there, whether you're talking about a, a serious, uh, traditional Christian Muslim or, or, or an Orthodox Jew, the, these traditions teach repugnance of, 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 uh, homosexuality. And uh, so there, there can be a pluralism uh, where you're friends with, with gay people and you're, um, you treat them kindly, but uh, you or a, a, an Orthodox Muslim, a conservative Muslim, or a, a, you know, a, a traditional Christian is going to have a huge ethical problem with this. I mean, th these are major sins in these traditions, right? This isn't a, a trivial issue, right? Um, so there, I think there is a conflict, and this conflict has become more apparent in, in recent years and will continue to be apparent because of, if we have a, social, a cultural norm where uh, opposition to gay marriage is just seen as primitive and cruel and barbarous and stupid, well, that has very powerful implications for, for people who believe in Abrahamic religions, right? Um, so that's an interesting point you made. Uh, in terms of the other issue, I mean, this argument, I think, is just stupid. The um, uh, the claim that oh there's all these Arab countries because first of all they can't they can't get visas and citizenship to any of these places the only place that gave them citizenship was Jordan it's like saying um who cares Poland doesn't have to exist or Ukraine doesn't have to exist Russia can conquer them I'm not saying Russia wants to conquer Poland but go with the hypothetical um uh, because there's all these other European countries it's just a, a so there's a lot of really look you can make an argument for Israel's existence that is compelling there's a lot of really bad arguments for it and. This is one of them. Another one is that the Palestinians are just Arabs from Saudi Arabia. It's like contradicted by DNA testing. Yeah, they were conquered by Arabs and they, the Muslims mixed with the Arab population. They are a majority from the land. That's just genetic fact. Um, or that the Palestinians didn't have an identity until the 20th century. I mean, like identities ebb and flow. They come and go. And, you know, the Jewish Jew, Judaism as an ethnic identity is also relatively new. It was a religious tradition. So. The, the arguments about like the Palestinians aren't the real people 
And there are all these other Arab states that are just indistinguishable for Arabs are just really bad arguments generally. Um, uh, but otherwise, you made some interesting remarks in the homosexuality thing and then the um, the conflict with religious people and um, also the um, the point about people's sentimental attachment to their land. Now, one of my favorite uh, political scientists, a man who's had as much effect on my worldview as anyone, is John J. Mearsheimer. He wrote a book, co-wrote a book called The Israel Lobby, and mm. he recently made an interesting point. Uh, he was asked by economist Glenn Lowry, uh, wasn't uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which I believe began on February 4, 2022, wasn't that... Oh, was it 20? Yeah, 2022. Wasn't that a violation of just war doctrine and a violation of international law? And Mearsheimer said, yes, it was a violation of both of those. But any time a nation experiences what it sees as an existential threat, the nation is overwhelmingly going to be incentivized to go to war to deal with that existential threat. Russia experienced the increasing westernization of Ukraine as an existential threat. Therefore, Putin's reaction was understandable. And Mishimer made the point that Putin has received a great deal of criticism in Russia for the way he's conducted the war, but almost all the criticism has been that he has not conducted the war fiercely enough. He's been too nice. And so whoever would rule Russia, they would similarly face the same sort of incentives that uh, Putin faced when he went to war uh, against uh, Ukraine. I- I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that or any thoughts on the way that uh, NATO and the United States have subsidized Ukraine's defense of itself against Russia. Well, I'm I'm pretty depressed on the Ukrainian issue lately. I, I supported, um, and I feel kind of guilty about this in retrospect, because I supported um, funding them. And I definitely agree with uh, the moral position that Lowry, I didn't watch the interview yet. I think I will, actually. But I agree with the moral position Lowry laid out. But just in terms of the military, uh, of the military circumstance right now, it seems very unlikely given the failure and, uh, frankly, the 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 very bloody failure of the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive that uh, we're going that began in June 2023 that we're going to see uh, Ukraine successfully reconquer the the, the land that Russia has annexed. Um, so I, I my position now is that we need to have a, a ceasefire. We should pressure them for it because you're just going to have more of these poor boys dying and in Ukraine and, and Russian kids too, right? And more civilian, although the you know most the vast majority of the deaths have been military, unlike the um, Gazan conflict, incidentally, um, the more civilian deaths too. Uh, Russia has a huge advantage in population armaments. Uh, just political support for them in the United States is frail right now. I think there needs to be a, a ceasefire, and we also need to, um, in the aftermath, not peace but a ceasefire, like North Korea, like a Korea style situation. Um, and then we need to we need to help Ukrainian Ukraine um, militarily, economically, politically, and so on in the aftermath of the war. Uh, in terms of Mearsheimer's analysis of this, I think he's very much mischaracterized. Um, in retrospect, he seems he is not making a moral, and his framework is very much non-moralistic. His realism, right? Yes, um, he's not saying people really. For, also, people who wanted to justify Putin um, uh, morally tended to cite him in a moral way, but he wasn't making a moral argument. He was saying, as you say, 
that they regarded uh, the transformation of Ukraine to a Western bulwark as a threat to their, uh, as an existential threat, right? And yes. because they saw that, uh, we need to we need to de-Westernize Ukraine or, or remove our influence from Ukraine or whatever to prevent the war. It was his whole view of this. It was not a moralistic view. It was, in fact, I'm sure if if you if it came down to it, he'd say what Russia did is monstrous. But he said they're going to do this because of X. X in the grand scheme of things, meaning turning Ukraine into a Western bulwark, is not that important, right? So we shouldn't do X. That was his argument, really. And it makes, to me, a lot more sense uh, now. Uh, uh, I always took him seriously, his analysis of the situation, because I understand a little bit about realism and uh, where he's coming from, which isn't like a apologist angle, like a lot of people online, right? It's kind of just an empirical angle, a theoretical angle. But I think he he looks a lot more smart now, and I think we need to try to uh, wrap the war up. Um, And I'm very supportive of of the the Ukrainian cause. I I have been, I think, they're in point of moral rectitude. But this may be a a case where... uh, moral judgments can corrupt our our pragmatic political judgment right uh because um if, if my i hope i'm wrong i hope you i hope i'm humiliating ukraine um wins and you know tomorrow but uh if i'm correct about and you know i'm relying on people who know much more about military matters than i am right not this isn't my independent analysis really but if the military situation is is not winnable um you know, then it was a mistake to to have so much death and, and resistance. There should have been a a, a kind of policy Mirsheimer favored before the war. And I feel I feel just sorry for the Ukrainian people who have suffered so much. And look, we if it ends up that the resistance effort um, doesn't succeed, uh, that they become some kind of Russian rump rump state, that the annexations occur, then I think the uh, people who advocated uh, resistance, even if in the abstract it was morally justified, as I certainly think it was, will bear some level of responsibility for for the, the what happened to the Ukrainians right? and the and the Russians as well. Now, of course, Putin would have the the chief responsibility, but you know maybe we should have listened to Mearsheimer more. I don't know. I hope yeah. I hope I'm wrong about this. Yeah, yeah, but. yeah. I mean, 100% emotionally, I'm always been on the side of Ukraine. Uh, if people want an analogy. To, it, I think this is a good analogy to the Russia invasion of Ukraine. Try sending a written communication to your boss that your workplace is a hostile work environment. But, <laughs> like you send that communication in a written form to your employer in the United States, you are saying that you are about to sue him. And it's going to elicit a, a very strong reaction from your boss. So, you push someone into a corner, uh, they will you know, react in, in a very, uh, very strong way. Now, do you agree with me that Israel would not have been able to achieve the Abraham Accords, these, these deals with various Arab Middle Eastern states, and effectively have a, a pretty good working relationship with Saudi Arabia behind the scenes if they had not established themselves or, or given off the signal that they are here to stay uh that that's you know vital for their own best interest if if israel wants to develop uh peace with various arab states they have to signal that they are here to stay and they cannot be overthrown oh definitely um 
Well, I think the number one reason is that America wants them. There are many reasons they want to normal. The elites in the Gulf want to normalize uh, relations with Israel. I think the number one reason is that America wants them to, and they want a good relationship with America. But additionally, Israel is a powerful uh, country, right? As you say, I, I accept your explanation that they've they've shown they're here to stay. So you, why would you be antagonistic to a powerful country that isn't going anywhere? That's another factor. Um, there, the economic uh, strength of Israel and innovation sector and so on is another factor. And uh, I think the other one is that Gulf Arabs, I believe, are less emotionally invested in the Palestinian side, especially the young ones, than Arabs in the Levant. Like, you know, um, so ironically, like a secular Arab in Lebanon and Beirut, you know, some girl wearing a tank top, let's say, is... Um, uh, is probably going to be more pro-Palestinian and more engaged on the issue than some, uh, you know, woman in a, you know, in a, in a niqab or burqa, I think it's called in the American press, even though it's not right, in um, <laughs> the Gulf, although fewer wear burqas these days um, because of the reforms we talked about earlier. But I think there's less emotional engagement on the part of the Gulf Arabs in the Palestinian issue and also a lot less hatred of I mean, look, they haven't had protests, I don't believe, in the in the Gulf uh, at anything like the scale of of um, the Levant. I think there have been protests, but not the same scale. Now, of course, they have authoritarian governments. They can crack down. But um, I think that isn't all of it. I think there's less public interest in the issue or passion in the issue in the Gulf than there is in Egypt and the Levant region. I'm going to go on like a, a two-minute rant. One of the stupid parts of our discourse is saying that there are democracies on the one hand and uh, dictatorships on the other hand, because all democracies contain significant elements of dictatorship. And we particularly saw this during COVID when all sorts of rights that people in democracies took for granted were suddenly you know, taken away, such as freedom of assembly, freedom of worship. And I read this analysis uh, on this line of thought by two law professors in the Yale Law Review, and they made the point that uh, the President of the United States has all the foreign policy power that King George III had. And to extend that, I think Mearsheimer has made the point that foreign policy is something that's determined by elites, that the popular opinion doesn't really count for much. For example, according to Mearsheimer anyway, our elites have decided that we will go to war for Taiwan, even if 90% uh, of you know, America opposed the loss of American lives. Uh, that foreign policy is overwhelmingly a game that is conducted by elites with very little regard for popular opinion. And it's kind of stunning how Arab states were able to reach uh, deals with Israel because Israel is not popular uh, on the Arab street. I mean, I would expect that 99% of Saudis would be opposed to a peace deal with Israel, but it is possible that uh, the Saudi crown prince could pull that off precisely because foreign policy is overwhelmingly a game that is conducted by elites with very little respect for public opinion. And so these various Arab states that reached peace deals with Israel in the past few years, that was these were not popular policies, but again, it was conducted by elites. Any thoughts on any of this? Um, yeah, I I think you're I think you're you're factually wrong about about the Gulf. I think you're correct. This this model of like a very dictatorial 
approach to foreign policy, I think there's there's context where it's correct. An, an example would be uh, Jordan's normalization with Israel. Jordan is majority Palestinian. They didn't, the people did not want that, right? They did yeah. not want that. <laughs> to put it mildly, yeah. they didn't want that. Yet it happened. Um, so that would be a good example of the phenomenon you're describing. In the Gulf, I really believe opinion is different among Arabs regarding Jews and Israelis. Like, for example, there was here's a poll I'm just looking at right now from the Washington Institute, where 40% of the Saudi public wants some kind of uh, deeper ties uh, with Israel, economic, or, or so on. So it isn't quite normalization, but it would it would be some kind of relationship. And then the vast majority were against like Hamas firing rockets against Israel from Gaza that's has bad for the region. You would not find those data in Jordan. You wouldn't find those data in Lebanon. They'd be supportive of the rockets probably, right? Um, so I think I think the I think one important point of analysis is that the Gulf Arab opinion really is different than the Levantine Arab opinion and the Egyptian opinion, where where I think you'd find more support for this militant anti-Israel attitudes. In general, I think there's a lot of truth to the model you said, but I think there's a lot of historical exceptions too. Although, you look if you look at uh, two big anti-war movements in the United States, the Iraq War, and the anti-war movement for Iraq, and the anti-war movement. With, with respect to um, um, uh, Vietnam, um, really, you could only—I think—you could only say Vietnam was a big, had a big impact on policy. There was a lot of, of signaling to the anti-war Iraq movement, but you know, Obama stayed in there until 2011, right? I mean, he he, he largely followed uh, the advice of of, of his generals, um, you know. Um, uh, so. Um, in terms of how long he stayed, he didn't withdraw after he became president, right? He withdrew at the very end of 20... Uh, the, the war ended at the very end of 2011. And there would have been a similar endpoint if George W. Bush had stayed as president, right? Um, you know, so I think that Vietnam, there would be a counterexample where the United States did actually completely withdraw and public opinion played a big role in that. Um, you know, you, you had the scenes of, of, of people who had, who had been sympathetic to the U.S., uh, supported South Vietnam regime, desperately, frantically trying to grab on to um, grab on to planes and boats and so on to get away from the the vengeance of the North Vietnamese. So I think that would be a counterexample to this model. But I think it's a reasonable model that elite, also just because of legal the legal norms of foreign policy making in the United States, uh, give the president and the executive branch so much power. I think that this model is quite reasonable. Um, of a very heavily elite-centered uh, foreign policy. Um, on the other hand, I do think public opinion can play a role, and even in a dictatorship, uh, if the public really cares about a foreign policy issue um, and and knows something about it in a systematic way. Would you say that uh, America's foreign policy with regard to Israel, particularly since the 1967 war, has been largely aligned with America's best interests? Uh, no, I do not think that. I think that the we've created a lot of antagonisms in the region that we didn't have prior to 1967 because of uh, American support for Israel, which I think goes way too far. I think that uh, I'm not saying we should have become enemies with Israel. What I think we should have done is pushed Israel much harder for a two-state solution than we in fact did. Um, and uh, I think, like for example, since 2009, they have a, they've been completely unserious about it. Netanyahu has been in power for all but one year. Uh, in 2014, he it was either 14 or 15. He publicly said, "I'm not going to do a two-state solution as long as I'm president." Pardon me, prime minister. 
Um, his Likud party politically doesn't support it. He's continuing to support the settlements and finance them. Clearly, Israel isn't a series of a two-state solution, yet we don't put the pressure on them to do it. Um, which, by the way, would be would be, I think, a situation that would help them. It would help them their security because as long as the Palestinians are living in a state in occupation as a stateless people, um, you know, in an open air prison in Gaza or open air internment camp, they're going to keep rebelling, right? So that there needs to be a two state solution, and we haven't put the pressure on them because of I think the power of the Israel lobby and the popularity of Israel in America. I mean, the power of the Israel lobby. And Mirsheim has written about this is quite extraordinary. Uh, Barack Obama in his um, autobiography, he said that in virtually every uh, congressional district in America, the power of this lobby can be brought to bear and that people feel uh, intimidated um, uh, from going against it because they'll be called anti-Semitic or they'll be face a well-funded primary opponent. Uh, and even, I think Obama has indicated it by implication that he felt obliged to be more pro-Israel than he actually was because of the power of this lobby and and, and these institutions. So uh, for me, that's intolerable. I don't know why a foreign lobby should have that kind of power. Yeah, it's kind of insane that to effectively run for public office in the United States, you have to pledge loyalty to a foreign power. Yeah, or you're called a racist if you don't. I mean, it's very strange. <laughs> I mean, it's just, oh, it, it's crazy. Uh, I'll send you an APAC video that has like all it has basically just a who's who of American political leaders, speakers of the House, vice presidents of over the last 30 years are all speaking at APAC and just making the most categorical groveling endorsements of his. And it's just like this is not a normal situation. Even if you love Israel, just for the sake of like American sovereignty, this yes. is completely abnormal. Yeah, it's it's absolutely abnormal and it's against America's best interests. And I don't think it's a good idea to manipulate people against their best interests because uh, usually there's very nasty blowback to, to that. So I would I would prefer a more distant relationship between the United States and Israel. I would prefer that the United States not subsidize Israel and not give it billions of dollars of aid. And I certainly would prefer that uh, the president of the United States not fly to Israel during a, a time of war and embrace Israel. Uh, just uh, Joe Biden is the only leading American politician that I can think of who would have flown to Israel when he did. The only other possibility is Donald Trump, who's just completely uh, unpredictable. But I, I think the American embrace of Israel after October 7 was simply not in alignment with America's best interests. Uh, any thoughts? I agree with that. Um, I think we should have condemned massacre and uh, called for uh, international humanitarian law, meaning the laws of war, right, uh, to be respected. Um, instead of this full-on embrace, no, no red lines. It's it's just a, a weird dynamic. Um, we should be able to have some emotional distance from this and be able to give them insight about how their behavior is creating hatred. Doesn't justify massacring people, of course, but. Even if they don't care about these Gazans, if you want a better security situation, you have to reduce the hatred. And kill, bombing people indiscriminately is not going to do that. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're, again, you're fighting a, you're fighting the problem they have is they have all these people who hate them in Gaza. It's not that you have these ideologues that have a, like an ideology like Nazism 
um, or a powerful uh, a state, right? Um, the problem is terrorism, and the root of that is people who hate you and want to kill you, and this is this is going to feed that. It's not going to uh, stop it. You know, um, I I think that um, the U.S. will eventually come to a view that this relationship since '67 with Israel has been, frankly, bizarre, right? Just weird. I mean, why yes, is this a very small nation? Why are we like cucked to a very small nation? It's strange, um, but um, and it was not in our interest. Um, you know, um, doesn't mean we should oppose them, but we should be neutral. I think, and while condemning atrocities, and you know, I mean, here's an example of this, just bizarre. So, in 2009, a report was released um, by the United Nations. I don't know if you're familiar with it, the Go the Goldstone Report. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, you are. Um, about Operation Cast Lead, and it found that 90% of deadly attacks on civilians in Cast Lead, which Israel's operation in Gaza, had no justifiable military objective. And, and actually, the authors actually accused Israel of deliberately murdering civilians. We're not talking about like indiscriminate bombing like Dresden. We're talking about like, let's go, Luke and Matthew, let's go kill that guy over there, right? That's what they accused him of. Now, the main author retracted this accusation two years later after a harassment campaign, defamation campaign by Israel. Uh, the three co-authors never retracted it, but nevertheless, uh, that was the claim. People can make what they want of it. We know Israel was totally indiscriminate. We do know this guy retracted. Here are the circumstances. Who knows whether it's true or not? I'm not saying it's true or not, uh, that they actually intentionally murdered people. Nevertheless, though, after this came out in the United States, like the Congress voted to condemn the Goldstone Report. I mean, they clearly hadn't read it. But why are we our, – our response should be we're troubled by these findings. We look forward to more investigation. That should be like a sovereign country's response. And also it's not really our our issue, right? I mean we're a leader of the world. We're a superpower so we can express that we're troubled. Instead like Congress people who hadn't read it were told by APAC you have to vote against this. And like the United States Congress condemned it. This is before the Goldstone report was – by the author, at least, was was retracted, the the main charge, right? That's just a strange phenomenon. So, like, the UN fact-finding mission by eminent jurists, none of whom are Arab, by the way, accuses Israel of deliberate murder. And people who haven't read the report get, in, get involved in some APAC campaign to condemn it. And the Congress votes, the United States hereby condemns the goal. I mean, just, isn't that just weird? Why, first of all, we, we have no knowledge that this isn't true. Uh, second of all, why is this like our policy to condemn a UN fact-finding mission about war crimes against Israel? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I don't have any expertise on the, the, the facts or lack thereof in the, in the Goldstone report. Now, thinking about the 9-11 the attacks, it, it seems to me that there's significant reason to believe that they would not have occurred if the United States had not been so closely allied with Israel. Do you think that's fair? I mean, you have to look at bin Laden's motivations, and that was a big, big stated motivation. I mean, bin Laden, uh, here's one interesting point about Islam um, that I've been called an Islam apologist for, which is stupid. Even Robert Spencer, who is not an Islam apologist, concedes this point. Um, in the contemporary world, jihad, in Islamic sense, can only be defensive. In fiqh, in Islamic history, there's absolutely a legitimate, theologically justified offensive jihad to spread Islam, right? 
totally exists, but you need the caliphate to do that. It needs to be offensive jihad needs to be waged at the discretion of the caliph. The, the leader of the Muslim world says the pragmatic conditions are such that we're going to wage aggressive war to spread Islam. Without a caliphate, there's no offensive jihad. So Osama bin Laden had to argue that 9-11 was defensive, right? He argued this. This was his, his theological argument. And uh, obviously we disagree with it, but that was what he was arguing. And one of the things he cited was um, uh, American support for Israel. He also cited American military presence in the Gulf. Uh, so yeah, I think this was part of the, this is part of the hatred and part of the source of terrorism against this isn't this level of, of, of support for Israel is not in our interest. I don't really see what we benefit from. What, what is the big benefit to us from this level? Even right now, we're lobbying the Gulf states to make uh, normalized ties with Israel. I mean, maybe they want to independently. The leaders may want to, um, but why should we be expending our political capital? with regard to the Saudis on something that is like to help Israel. Why not something that would help us, you know? Yeah, and I'm not a Middle East expert, so I, I'm equally open, I want to say, to all my friends, because <laughs> most of my friends are Orthodox Jews, very you know, pro-Israel, pro, mm -hmm. pro -Israel, that I am open to being shown, you know, evidence why America's policy with regard to Israel is in America's best interest. I simply am ignorant of any strong arguments in that direction, but I, I am open to that. Don't, don't hurt me, my friends. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'd actually like to hear an argument for that because the arguments you get from an APAC are really weak. I mean, yes. they're often honest too. They say Israel shares our values. No, they don't. I mean, half of Israelis support ethnic cleansing of Palestinians before the war, according to polling. The vast majority of Israelis want favorable treatment under the law, according to Pew, uh, for uh, Jews relative to Christians, Muslims, Jews, and so on. The um, large majority of, of Israelis in, in some polls don't want Palestinians to vote, um, uh, you know, so they, they can vote. I'm not saying they, are, they're, they don't have the right to vote if they're citizens, but they don't want them to vote, the citizens, right? Uh, the Arab citizens. So they're in a liberal ethnocentric society that has like uh, played this tune that has, I think, fooled a lot of Americans that they're this kind of outpost of Western values in the Near East. They're not. They're not. Uh, the, the other thing is um, they, they oppose intermarriage. Now, American Jews are fine with intermarriage generally, it appears. But uh, Israeli Jews are against intermarriage with Christians and Muslims overwhelmingly. And in fact, the, the law prohibits inter inter uh, uh, religious marriage in Israel. So they're, they're in a liberal and they have, a, they have an ongoing. I, I think the founding of Israel wasn't colonialism because it's like some weird, it, there's no mother country, but today they do have a settler colonial project in the West Bank. They simply do. The mother country is Israel and the goal is to expand into this uh, other territory. Um, so they're a very illiberal society. Many officials right now are advocating like genocide or extermination. Um, you know, they have a cabinet minister, Ben Gavir, minister of security who had a picture in his living room for many years of, um, Oh God, that was uh, Baruch Goldstein, who, who was a mass murderer, who just went into a mosque and shot people. Um, so they're, my big irritation, I think, with Israel in general, other in addition to, of course, the, the terrible thing they're doing to people I care about, the, these Palestinians, um, is that they just have this false marketing and manipulate uh, Bubis Americanus, as H.L. Mencken called him, into thinking this is like, you know, uh, Nebraska of the Middle East, right? When it is not. Okay, I reached out to Kaftness, and uh, this is 
this is why he says he, he doesn't want to debate you. Mm -hmm. So let's go through his his points one by one. Mm -hmm. uh, he, Matt, uh, not Matt, Nathan, <laughs> he, uh, says uh, regarding Matt's comments on the show, I think he means the show we're conducting right now, uh, where you said, quote, he, Nathan, thought that the brackets octopus was a dog whistle to Nazi propaganda. Nathan says, I said it was not impossible that the octopus could have been placed there to allude to Jews and Israel by one of Greta's handlers. Not impossible doesn't mean it definitely was or even that it probably was. Incidentally, Richard Hananya agrees with my analysis on that. So he believes that he, you misrepresented him with regard to the octopus in the Greta Thunberg photo. Any thoughts? Um, <laughs> I mean, he, he was not saying this is a theoretical possibility. He was clearly implying this, this, this likely occurred, that some handler of Thunberg's put this as a dog whistle Nazi propaganda. Um, no, I'm not misrepresenting him on that. I mean, this well, is Well, he said he not impossible. Wait, you, you, you uh, seem to be... Go ahead. Let's get the language. Uh, I'll, I'll pull up the language. Uh, no, he, 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 the language he used implied much more likelihood than not impossible. Um, okay, I'll read his tweet and you can gather your thoughts and comment on it. So uh, Nathan tweets, the Jewish octopus is one of the few anti-Semitic tropes that isn't completely imaginary. The only thing less subtle would be a bag of gold coins. Greta's explanation, the toy in the picture is a tool often used by autistic people as a way to communicate feelings, makes no sense. The photo is carefully staged, and not by her. She, of course, has no clue what's going on. Not impossible that one of her Palestinian rights handlers thought this would be amusing. In any case, when it comes to anti-Semitism, the Overton window is widening every month. And I'll just uh, read Richard Hanania's response. I first thought this was ridiculous, but the octopus is literally the only thing in the picture other than the signs. So there were like five toys and one was an octopus. I'd say, okay, but I think this may be intentional. Not that I care, though. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, if you accuse someone of maybe being a racist or maybe being a, a murderer or maybe being a sexual predator, you're making a, a serious allegation. And people are going to, especially given that he's claiming she's lying about it being a toy to convey autism, which is absurd, by the way, it is. Like, if you look up this toy, it literally is. He claims she was lying. No, uh, about you this. keep, you no, keep misrepresenting. Did. I'm not misrepresenting him, Luke. Come on. He says Greta's explanation makes no sense. No, no. I, I, she, let she, me just... Right, let right me, there, okay. Luke, that's not Luke. saying she's lying. Sure, but he does say that in another tweet. Let me find it. Correct. He, that does not say that. He says in another tweet that she is lying. So let me find it. Um, okay. No, I'm not yeah. Okay. No. And uh, and then he, he's not accusing her of uh, deliberately invoking anti-Semitism. He's saying that uh, it's not impossible that one of her handlers thought this was amusing. So that's very different from what you said, that he's accusing her of maybe engaging in Nazi propaganda. Rather, he's saying that one of her Palestinian rights handlers might have thought not impossible to think that this would be amusing. So, but if she's lying, wouldn't she be? I mean, wouldn't she be involved in the in the conspiracy if she's lying about the, the, the a, a sham purpose of the toy? 
No, I mean, I think I've made my point. I think Nathan's made his. I think you've made yours. So I won't, uh, I won't uh, bang on about it. Um, you know, I, I can understand where he's coming from. I'm going Go to, okay, but, but you said that she's, let me pull this up for a second. Okay, um, why don't you take your time? I will just play a little excerpt yeah. from Mearsheimer. Uh, you're not going to be able to hear this, so you can just interrupt whenever you, whenever you're ready. Glenn, can I return to the issue of uh, just war theory and how this applies to this yeah. particular case? Sure. Uh, a lot of people argue that uh, this was this invasion in on February 24th, 2022, uh, violated just war theory, or it violated international law. Uh, I think that's correct. Uh, I think that just war theory rules out preventive war. You can fight wars for self-defense, or if the other side is about to attack you, attack you, you can preempt, you can strike first before the other side strikes you. But a preventive war is unacceptable according to just war theory. And this was a preventive war. So it does not accord, in my opinion, with just war theory. Furthermore, I think preventive wars are impermissible from the perspective of international law. Uh, it is possible that you could get a UN Security Council resolution that allowed you to launch a preventive war or something that looked like a preventive war, in which case that would be legal because it was sanctioned by the UN. But I think the war technically was illegal, and I think it was unjust. But the point I would make to you and to others, of course, is that if you're a state and you are faced with what you think is an existential threat, and there's no question that the Russians saw Ukraine and NATO as an existential threat. They made that very clear. If you see an existential threat and you launch a war we go. to eliminate that more. Okay, okay. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, you know, just, look, I'm, I'm just going to link this to you because it's, it's only fair for me to say this. Um, because you said I was Mr. Bazang when I said she lied. No, I, he says this outright. Greta's account doesn't make sense. How does the octopus help her express her emotion? Let me finish this completely because he says this explicitly. Why has she never needed the octopus before? Is she not expressing her emotion just fine in the picture? The fact that she lied about this, lied about this, quote, increases the likelihood of the various explanation. So he accused her of lying with no evidence. So I didn't mess up his end by saying she was. Yes, I, I stand corrected on that. Yeah, point. yeah. Okay. But, but do you I, see Nathan's other point that saying not impossible is, you know, very different from the way that you've phrased his position. I think if you, if you, if you throw out an accusation, if I say it's not impossible that X is a child rapist, um, if it's an inflammatory accusation like this and you accuse her of lying and say it's an obvious dog whistle, you know, the, the colloquial interpretation is that you're accusing her of anti-Semitism. It's not that you're Whatever, whatever uh, legalistic caveats. You Look, this whole thing is so ridiculous. It's not a, okay. What do you think of the substance of it? Do you think this is a, very plausibly a dog whistle by 
Greta or her handler. I mean, that seems crazy in poll level to me. I mean, um, this is like a, a white girl from Sweden who's like really left wing. She doesn't hate Jews. Well, it's again, like it's very thing. clear. He never accuses her of choosing to place the octopus. He says that this possibly was done by one of her handlers. So, but why? But she's involved in the conspiracy because she's lying. He says so. She is culpable. Mm, no, she's lying about. I guess apparently he said that she's lying about why there was an octopus there. But uh, uh, we'll, we'll just leave it for the audience. I, I think we both. Uh, both made Let's talk about the it. substantive. So, so you you say I'm 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 misrepresenting uh, the octopus. No, um, I said you misrepresented Nathan's tweet on it. I don't think I did. Okay, so I mean, we we both said so. He's um, accusing her. He, he's accusing her of lying. So she's in on the the, the scheme. Right? He's accusing her of lying post facto with regard to the octopus. He's not accusing her. Of coming up with the idea that the only toy in the in the uh, picture is uh, an octopus. Okay. Whatever. Maybe, maybe. So she inadvertently. So, so his claim is that she inadvertently did an anti-Semitic dog whistle because of some Palestinian enabler. Do you find he that said it's to be not a impossible? I agree with the idea. It's not impossible. I okay. would put the odds at maybe ten percent. Whatever. I, I find that, look, we, we disagree on this. I find it totally absurd and a smear of the girl. Um, do you think do you think that this is a, a grounds for uh, like the alleged misrepresentation of her on the octo of, of him on the octopus question, which I don't accept, by the way. But do you say I did that? Do you think that's grounds for not debating someone? No, I I. I, okay. Uh, Did he cite anything? Anything else? Yes. I mean, we yes. can we, we can we, we can talk about about that in the debate too. He can he can uh, argue that I misrepresented him on the octopus. Well, he you you accept though that he he um you know by he accusing her of lying is a baseless charge. Would you accept that? What, what, what is the evidence she lied about this being a this is in fact a toy for um she didn't lie. This is in fact a toy for autistics to help express their emotions it's marketed that way like so he's he 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 made a misstatement of fact about her that she lied or at least a charge with no evidence do you accept that yes i would say that's a okay yeah yeah and then so, uh, yeah he's not okay we could beat this one to death Let, let's just uh move on i think yeah both... all right let's move on what was the other okay so okay and then he, he's quoting you again uh, he also was liking a tweet that was referring to a hate crime hoax at Cooper Union. There was this claim that these Palestinian protesters were hunting Jews in the library. Okay, that's a, apparently a quote from you, I believe, from today's show. And Nathan says, the tweet I liked did not say Jews were being hunted. It said Jewish students at Cooper Union are in the library as protesters pound on the door which is not disputed. The video shows Jewish students in the library and protesters pounding on the door. I don't know exactly what happened, and I haven't endorsed any particular narrative about it. Any thoughts? Well, here, here's why I think it's, it's fair. So, like, in a literalistic sense, you, you could say I'm, I'm, I'm being unfair, but I think we have to look at what colloquially a tweet like that was referring to. And it was referring to the charge, that, that which was all over the Internet, that... Uh, these students uh, were stalking and attempting to harass and murder or whatever the 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 Jews. So 
just because you um you say something by implication and not explicitly uh, doesn't i think take you off the hook for for what you're clearly saying contextually that would be my response to that okay and then here's another thing first he starts with a quote from you i believe from today's show so you you apparently said i cited the fact that over and over and over again that israel in its wars targets civilians indiscriminately I cited various UN reports to this effect, and Kafnas responded by basically saying the UN is engaged in systematic anti-Semitism because of the UN General Assembly votes that are very targeted against Israel. My thought was that doesn't make any sense. The fact-finding missions that I was citing, like the Goldstone Report in 2009, have nothing to do with Arab states, so this is just a flimsy argument. You haven't... Mm -hmm drawn a connection between anti-Semitic Arab states and these UN fact-finding reports, which show overwhelmingly indiscriminate attacks on civilians. And then he just got mad at me and said, I'm unserious. Okay. And then this is Nathan's response. 100% stand by that. Okay. On Twitter, Matt cited a single piece of evidence that UN accusations of war crimes against Israel are credible and not motivated by anti-Semitism, the Goldstone report. I replied that, quote, Brackets. Goldstone expressed regret that his report may have been inaccurate. He said civilians were not intentionally targeted as a matter of policy by Israel. Goldstone also says they, the UN Human Rights Council, repeatedly rushed to pass condemnatory resolutions in the face of alleged violations of human rights law by Israel, but failed to take similar action in the face of even more serious violations by other states. In other words, Matt's one piece of evidence says the opposite of what he claimed. It says Israel was falsely accused of indiscriminately targeting civilians and that the UN is biased against Israel. As you can see, he doesn't have much of a response to this. And then um, he, he sends, a, let's have a look here. Uh, History Speaks, that's you, responded October 12th. We can talk about Goldstone's report, but answer this first. Were he and his colleagues motivated by anti-Semitism, or was there a systematic anti-Semitism affecting their work? And Nathan responds, your one piece of evidence so far says the opposite of what you claimed. You held Goldstone and his report up as authorities, and Goldstone himself says the report is wrong and the UN is biased against Israel. Let me just finish this off. Oh, no, that's that's the end of this bit. Uh, anything you want to say? Yeah, I mean, he misrepresented the the retraction radically. The retraction was on the claim of murder. Remember, the claim was murdering civilians. Like, let's Luke, let's go kill that guy, right? That was what Goldstone retracted, and I I, I made that clear to your audience, right? Um, Nathan uh, completely misrepresents this. He's still doing it. Goldstone never re- never retracted claims of indiscriminate targeting of civilians. Never did that. He he retracted the claim of like intentional murder. So Nathan is misrepresenting that. Um, moreover, he's taking a snippet of this conversation. I, I referred to multiple UN investigations earlier in this thread. Various UN investigations corroborating Israel's war crimes, not merely um, the Goldstone report. And he's, he continues to misrepresent the Goldstone report. His response to my reference to the UN investigations was General Assembly stuff, which shows he has no idea what he's talking about because the General Assembly is not relevant. And uh, the Goldstone bit it was... Do you understand the point about how one can retract the claim of um, intentional murder like ISIS would do while not retracting the claim of indiscriminate targeting? Yes. Because the big thing Israel 
freaked out about was indiscriminate targeting because like you know you can sorry it was intentional murder because you can move on the world will, will if you say that israel's you know targeting civilians irresponsibly recklessly without military justification the world will stop caring about that if you actually said they're murdering people intentionally that would have devastated israel's reputation which is why israel cared so much about this but he's misrepresenting the retraction um is my point and then he also he made this claim about the u.n general assembly when i talked about multiple fact-finding missions um so he's just again we should be debating this right the point is i brought up the fact-finding missions and his response was about the general assembly which is either disingenuous or shows just a very low level of knowledge um that, okay. that, I mean, I think I think that makes sense. And I think also my point about the I'm and, and I think it's clear from this show that I'm not trying to hide the fact that Goldstone retracted the most extraordinary charge. And I, by the way, I, I, I myself said, I don't know if it's true or not. So I don't I don't think I'm hiding that. Right. Okay. Nathan is did that was tweeting is he claimed that Goldstone retracted everything in the report, which is not true. OK, and then uh, final quote from you, presumably on today's show. Quote, uh, Nathan wanted to debate Eric Stryker. And Nathan says, I never wanted to debate Eric Stryker, and I publicly refused to debate him. This is why I'm not interested in further discussion with Matt. Any thoughts? Okay, I, maybe that was a mistake of mine. Um, I thought he wanted to debate Stryker and Enoch. Um, I, if I wanted to go on their show, is that not true? If it's not true, I, I apologize for misstating it. Um, okay. So, I mean, we, we all say... We all say things that, you know, in the heat of, uh, of a, uh, wasn't you know, a spontaneous discussion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, um, my experience of you is you do not uh, intentionally try to misrepresent people. I, I, I thought he wanted to debate Stryker and Enoch. Um, I don't know if I have, but I could be wrong about that. And if, if I am, I apologize um, uh, to Nathan for that. I, I really think we should just debate. It's so... I, I reject all the other claims. It may be I may be incorrect that he wanted to debate. Uh, I thought he wanted to go on TRS. I really thought this. Um, you know, it, maybe it isn't true. Uh, ask him about because I, I I don't remember where I read this, but I thought I remembered reading him say this. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm misremembering. If I if I am, I apologize for for getting that fact wrong. It would have been, of course, as I uh, to debate against their position. But um, um, yeah. Okay, let's let's move on to something that's related, uh, but uh, completely apart from Nathan Kofnis. Uh Many people in general, and many academics in particular, have come undone online. Well, can because... you ask, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Luke. Can you ask um, um, Nathan if he agreed to debate Mike Enoch? Because that may have been my mistake. Um, maybe that's not true too. Yeah. But but ask him because because that would have been. I mean, I don't think that'd be a huge mistake, but but it still would be a mistake. But ask him if that were the case, if he wanted to debate any of those daily show of people. But anyway, go ahead. Okay, great. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, I, I was suspecting he never agreed to debate Mike Enoch, but mm -hmm. I will maybe find out. But uh, anyway, let's let's move on to the, the broader question outside of Kafnis. Uh, many people in general and many academics in particular have come undone online. Because, you know, I noticed my blood pressure was rising up during this discussion of Nathan Kofnis, because even though you and I are friends, I am I'm closer friends with Nathan than I am with you. I've known him longer. I've, I've met him in person. We are both Jewish. And, and so I have a, a closer bond. And I am, I do feel, you know, I do feel 
you know, protective of, of Nathan. I, I'm not, I am not an impartial moderator with regard to mm-hmm. Nathan, though I would certainly strive to be. And so I noticed my, my blood pressure going up and I noticed myself mm-hmm. even getting a teeny bit upset on, on his behalf. Oh, you know, my friend, he's been, you know, unrighteously accused. And so, uh, it's really easy to become emotional online. And so many academics in particular, you know, very rational, productive, thoughtful, considerate people have come undone online. Uh, have you experienced any struggles in this department? Yeah, I think I've gotten emotional over the issue. And um, sometimes that can lead you to uh, to be a little more aggressive in tweeting and, and writing quick, more quickly than you would otherwise. I think that's, it has happened to me and I'm trying to <laughs> ratchet it back a bit. Um, as you may actually see, if we did an interview two weeks ago, I'd probably be yelling and trying to kill you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think I've, I think I've, I've, and that's another reason you should debate me, Nathan, because I've, I've calmed down a bit from this. Um, you know, even if, if, if you didn't agree to debate against uh, Stryker or Enoch, I apologize by the way, but you should debate me. Um, uh, this meme is out there, though, Nathan. So, like, you should you should also debunk other people saying it. Anyway, um, yeah, I think I think people are unraveling. Um, I think the big the big mistake some people made is uh, condoning Hamas on seven October. Um, I think some of them did so out of emotion before really understanding the situation, and now they're committed to either defending massacre or um, denialism, kind of. Um, and that's not a very good position to be in. I think also a lot of Jews and uh, supporters of Israel have condoned horrible things, uh, killing of civilians, indiscriminate targeting of civilians, and even genocide in some cases, and likely regret that. And it shows uh, the, the power of emotionality uh, with, with human beings and, and identity. And um, these are all very interesting questions. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. That, mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was just going to make it uh, personal in that, say, I, I, I enjoy your online output because, among other things, it kind of gets me out of my Zionist bubble because, I, you know, I just have a very strong Zionist bias on the Middle East conflict. I, I mean, I really appreciate the work you did de- deconstructing Holocaust denial. I've enjoyed our wide-ranging conversations on many topics. I have uh, caught your participation. I I listened to some of your discussion with with Destiny. I've listened to your discussion with Richard Spencer. And here's the bottom line. I'm concerned and worried that your online output, which I really enjoy, is not in your best interest as an academic. Do you have any thoughts? That may be the case. I mean, look, the problem, I think before uh, 7 October, I had a team, which was kind of like the these kind of edgy right wing people who aren't like who are not who are against white nationalism and Nazis, but are kind of edgy. But they but I have a, I had a team, right? I could have applied for like the Chris Rufo University or so on. Yeah. The problem is since then I don't have a team anymore. It isn't that I'm saying the most inflammatory things because I'm not right, but it, it's I don't have a team anymore, and that I do feel a vulnerability there definitely. Uh, maybe I'll have to teach in fucking like. <laughs> like American University in Cairo or or, or whatever. Um, AUC, yeah, that's what it's called. So yeah, it's probably not been in my interest. I think that's correct. 
I'm, I mean, look, I, I wrote for TAC. I had, I had like a team. I was even friendly with a guy like Confidence. <laughs> I mean, we weren't friends, but we were friendly. And I, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I learned a lot of bridges. But, you know, you, you can't, um, that's, that's, that's done. And I don't think there's any circumstance in which I was going to be just based on my personality and what I care about. I was going to be quiet on in the aftermath of 7 October. I just don't think there's any. So, yeah, does it hurt my career? I think probably because um, I think I was carving out an interesting niche. And <laughs> now I'm one of many people uh, advocating Palestine. I also just find I care less about Holocaust denial. I haven't changed any of my view. The Nazis think I'm going to be on their side. Now some of these people are like, no, I think you're dumb. I don't think millions of people disappeared from an enclosed space uh, without uh, <laughs> with no other explanation for how they disappeared. You have to provide me an explanation or evidence of them going somewhere else, right? The millions of Jews who disappeared in the Nazi camp systems. Uh, so it's not like I find these arguments compelling all of a sudden, but uh, I think there's a sense of vulnerability because I feel like I don't have a team right now. And um, with the right kind of engaging in cancel culture, that could be directed at me because uh, I will say though, there's a, there, there's a gentleman from a, from a um, journal, an editor of a journal run by Francis Fukuyama who reached out to me and wants me to write for them. So that's good. I mean, he's a pretty, uh, I'm not saying Fukuyama himself, but one of the uh, editors um, there. Uh, so I think that's good that that guy, but I, I Look, I, I had a I had a cordial relationship with uh, I'm just going to be vague. Somebody who worked at a not super high but not super low position, uh, let's say closer to high than low, but nowhere near like some kind of cabinet secretary or anything like this. But I was developed. I had developed a cordial relationship with somebody who worked in the Middle East, and they said that if you just don't talk about the anti-Zionism stuff, this is before October seventh. Um, a Republican administration might be happy to have you because they like these controversies. So it would create controversy that you've talked to Richard Spencer. But if then the Republicans could respond, wait, he's debunking Holocaust denial. Shut up, you stupid shit libs. Right. They, he, the point is they like these controversies and the controversy could actually work to your favor, given the pre October 7th work. Right. Because like, yeah. wait, you say he's so he's actually his mom is brown and he's debunking Holocaust denial. So then it just looks like the liberals are being stupid. Right. If there were some controversy yeah. over him working. Yeah, but now these people are not my friends anymore, essentially. So, no, I think I think there is a, a consequence to it, and it's just something I'm going to have to live with. Now, I've consistently received the advice since I started blogging July 3rd, 1997, that if I wanted to have a, a normal life, I'd, I'd need to abandon my blog. Of course, my, my blogging has gone through various iterations, but... Uh, there's a famous case of Daniel Dresner, a political scientist at the University of Chicago, who was up for tenure and was denied tenure. And the conventional wisdom, it was because he was operating a blog. And there's also a story about Eric Siegel, who was an associate professor, I think, at Yale, teaching English literature. And then after his novel Love Story became a popular success, he was denied tenure. They're generally is in the academy a disdain for popular success and any thoughts on what i'm talking about i agree that uh, the academy tends to prefer pedantry over popular success i don't understand why look i see my history speaks work it isn't historiography my history speaks work it isn't even strictly speaking it isn't even like academic it isn't certainly isn't academic history but i think if you know history, if you're a historian or historian in training, whatever the fuck a PhD student is, 
you're in a position to explain a lot about how the world works. Uh, historians don't can explain what happened. They're not going to explain the future, but they're all they are going to explain why the world is as it is. So, like, why is there hatred between Israelis and Palestinians? Why is there great affection between Serbs and Russians? Why is there hatred between Serbs and Croats? These are all questions that we are in a good position to explain as historians. Uh, so, I think there is a there is a role in public discourse and politics for uh, historians, even though they aren't engaged in history, qua history, while they're doing it. Uh, with the growth of the academy, I think there is resentment. Uh, and I think that may be for maybe um, less than noble reasons, but also there could be some methodological reasons that you're maintaining a kind of epistemic purity if you're not enmeshed in the ebb and flow of, of, the, of, the, of daily life, you know? Um, yes. of daily political life. So they may have an argument for for a degree of aloofness and not engaging in these platforms. I think there's an argument both ways. But overall, I think with regard to my field, history, I think people who know about history do have a role in educating the public about why the world is as it is. Because I think we have a lot of information about that. Now, in terms of what we should do, um, we are not as good at that. Uh, one of being the smartest comments made to you that you recollect with regard to your making a career as a history professor and what that might entail. Well, if you're talking about pragmatism, <laughs> people telling me to shut the fuck up in the last few weeks is probably the best advice. And I haven't followed that. Um, um, so if you're talking about pragmatic career advice, I basically like lit that on fire. I mean, the other problem is... Uh, Look, the, the, the leftists, I can't be on their team either because I just don't believe in what they say. And I've said too many things against them. I'm not going to pretend to believe because I, I just – they say too many things that are false or immoral, right, in my view of the world that I can't be on that team. And that seems to be the the only team with some level of power that is pro-Palestinian, right? Um, so, yeah, I basically um, uh, – in terms of career pragmatism, made a mistake, but I don't, I don't think there's anything else I could have done emotionally. Um, I was going to talk about the issue because I care a lot about it and I have a platform. Um, but no, people, people told me to shut the fuck up about this. Multiple people did. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail. Who yeah, did yeah. That? Uh, uh, real yeah. life of like real life people in the Academy cautioned you about your online activities. I've talked to people who are professors who have given me um, uh, certain advice on this. I haven't been canceled or uh, censored. Um, uh, I, I think that's all I'm going to say on this regard. But I have yeah. I have received advice. It's better not to. It, yeah. it's, it's 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 about like what to do. It's not yeah. about you're about to be expelled or you can't you won't be able to teach next year. It isn't stuff like that. It is um what is uh it is like advice, right? Like like you might be advising me now. Uh, what would be in your interest in the future? Um, there also have been people. I mean, I'm not going to get into all this, but there have been people who've said they're going to come after me. And, you know, this is not someone affiliated with my university with a position or anything like this. Um, but, you know, I, no, nothing has happened to me in terms of cancellation or firing or, um, but I think the the fear is that there'll be future implications because I'm not pro-Israel in this crisis. And I think that's a reasonable fear. Um, you know, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being dramatic about it, but, um, you know, I've, okay. I've received that advice from others and yeah. Now, it's not easy to get a job uh, as a history professor, even if you'd never said anything online. What what 
were your chances of getting a job as a history professor at, at a you know any any country that you would like to to be in? Um, I think there. Uh, look, sorry, I keep getting a call. I need to have to uh, message this person and say. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Do what you want. I'll just play Mish. I'm no, which you in here. I'll be like mortal threat. Um, no leader, nor his people are going to consider that to be unjust. My argument is that almost every leader on the planet. Okay, look, I'm, I'm Okay, go ahead. Yeah, um, I think they're reasonably good. I mean, look, I think part of the reason I have an advantage is I'm willing to go to various countries. I'm not just committed to the American market or the British market or whatever. Um, so I think given that I have a, I have a viable chance of getting a, a position. I mean, and also given that I know Arabic and German, there just are many markets I can apply for. So I think that is my big strength. I, I also would say though, that um, uh, a weakness is, uh, the, 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 I think the history speaks up will be used against me in a way. I, I actually thought it was in my interest the history speaks up before October 7th. The reason is, yeah, I would definitely alienate some people that have talked to Richard Spencer and um, others, but it's kind of, a, because it's a debatable point, like should you debate and debunk Holocaust denial? I think there was an argument I could make that this is a distinctive and interesting and valuable, this project um, of like deprogramming these young people who bought into denial, that it may have turned a bunch of people off, but it would have, it would have uh, attracted other people. Whereas now I feel like this is a bad strategy. Nevertheless, I think, I think I'll find something good uh, and interesting. Um, my hope is to build the internet platform into something significant, but I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be happy, even if I, I could um, make a living off this, which is very questionable, I wouldn't be happy doing so. I want to be a historian and do historical research. That's really when I have the most fun is just in the archives, finding stuff out about what happened. You know, it isn't um, uh, writing political polemics, uh, which I've done a lot of lately, obviously. Now, there's there's a, a phrase that you invoke that I have often invoked in, in my life, which has not worked out well for me but it may work out well for you. And that is, there's an argument I could make. Now, in, in reality, as I've experienced it, uh, the arguments that I can make pretty much irrelevant compared to whatever becomes the settled consensus in whatever group it is that I want to be a part of. Any thoughts on that? I mean, what I was doing with regard to Holocaust and I was really a novel thing. Because I don't think it's clear how the society would respond to debating deniers, debunking deniers, because you're engaging, you're, you're doing a taboo thing. Um, you're engaged in a kind of a taboo exercise by engaging these people. But nevertheless, your stance is on the side of the mainstream, right? The Holocaust denial is wrong, is false and bad, right? Yeah. So I think it would have, it would have just been, um, because it hadn't happened before and because you're mixing uh, something that's very good from the mainstream perspective with something that's bad and taboo. I just think it would have been unpredictable, but I thought the risk was worth it. And I also thought the risk uh, would have been kind of perhaps distinguishing, right? Especially for these kind of right-wing institutions that are very pro-free speech and would say, well, why not debate it? Why not debunk it? They wouldn't condone denial, but um, yeah, I think, it, I think it actually could have helped. Um, uh, it's hard to know what it would have be, what would happen because it just hasn't been done before, right? By someone in a, with, with academic credentials. Um, since like Michael Shermer, maybe, but, um, yeah, I think, it, I think it was a risk and, and 
I, I, my guess was it would have helped uh, because uh, it would have turned off some people, but attracted others. And, you know, most people aren't going to hire you anyway. It's a very hard market. So if you turn, if you get some people attracted to you, that's worth alienating people who weren't going to hire you anyway. Right. Um, but I think with the anti-Israel stuff, that would, that will be a problem. And I think my saving grace will probably be that I can teach in, in, in multiple markets where they're not going to care, you know, one way or in Dubai or whatever, they're not going to care one way or another about Holocaust denial or, um, you know, um, uh, being anti-Israel, you know. Now, what about my deeper point that the, I, my life experience is that no matter how eloquent and how profound the argument I can make, it essentially counts for nothing against group consensus, that group consensus is group consensus, and my arguments essentially count for nothing with regard to me making my way uh, in conflict with the group consensus. Do you, you seem to have more power in rationality and appealing to, to reason and appealing to morality than I do. I just see a world where people have their hero systems and groups have their consensus and all the reason, rhetoric, and sublime argument in the world is rarely going to shift that. Any thoughts? Um, I think in the short run, this is um, – unless you're talking about very scrupulous people like very good intellectuals, that's correct. That you're not going to change someone's opinion in real time, even if you basically devastate their factual foundation. You won't change it because we're so emotionally driven, right? Um, I do think over time, reason does intrude on our emotionality and a very compelling argument will often win in a society with free speech over a very weak argument. doesn't happen right away. It can take years, right? Like the stolen election thing we agree is really dumb. I think we both are in agreement that you voted for Trump, but you agree it's dumb. I agree it's dumb, right? I mean, yes. the, the arguments given were very bad. Yes. Uh, did you see this claim about the um, the GPS devices? Yes. So apparently, like they, they found that GPS devices crossed um, uh, you know, dispensaries for ballots a bunch of times. So they inferred from that that because the same person is taking the same route to school or work, it, that therefore that this person is is that, that crosses one of these um boxes for ballots, and therefore this person is stuffing ballots in a crime. I mean, just. It's almost childish, but they're going to keep believing that for years. So, so take the stolen election thing. People will keep believing that for years, but I think maybe in 10 years, 15 years, they won't believe it anymore because the arguments are really bad. So I would say reason has an effect, but in the short run, not so much, uh, more in the long run, uh, unless you're talking about uh, like a very serious intellectual. Um, and even there, you're going to be emotionally driven, but maybe if, if an argument is so bad and you realize you've been propounding it, you'll, you'll cut it out. Um. Yeah. And uh, I got a response from Nathan Kofnes. He says, with regard to Eric Stryker, never, meaning he never wanted to debate uh, Stryker. With regard to Mike Enoch, I don't remember the exact words I used. I said either A, I would debate him if he read my paper, or B, I wouldn't debate the kind of person who challenged someone to debate a paper he hadn't read. Either way... Enoch made it clear that he wasn't going to read the paper. So a debate was never on the table. I never said anything to suggest I wanted to debate him. 
I mean, I think we're kind of playing with semantics here. I'm sorry if I said striker rather than Enoch, but if you said you would debate him under certain circumstances, it sounds like you would want to debate him if he read the uh, I, I really think this is frivolous. Like, I'm sorry for confusing Enoch with striker. I shouldn't have done that. That's a mistake, a minute fact. But I really think uh, we should just have a debate, Nathan, and this is kind of petty. Um, yeah. You know? That's okay. my view, but but I am sorry for confusing Enoch, Mike Enoch, with Eric Stryker because Mike Enoch is a much more reputable personality, clearly, than Eric Stryker. Yeah, yeah. Now, how viable do you think a two-state solution is to the Arab, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, I think it's the only way you're going to get security for Israel, and an end to Palestinian terrorism. Is to get is to remove the the main source of the hate, which is the fact that they're a stateless community of refugees living in uh, in miserable conditions in Gaza in an open air prison internment camp, whatever you want to call it, uh, and in occupation in the West Bank. And by the way, there, there are all these attacks by West Bank settlers on Palestinians uh, lately, murderous attacks. Uh, so it isn't as if one side is engaged in terrorism. That's the, that's that's the, a big lie in this conflict. Yeah, the, the Arab side is is. I'm not going to deny that the Palestinian Arab side is more radicalized. They are, but the the Jewish Israeli side is very radicalized. You have a minister of security who supports. Um, you, you have you have cabinet secretaries who have called for genocide. You've got one guy uh, called for the annihilation of a village. Um, you know, uh, there's a former uh, cabinet secretary who's called for genocide. Like the, the, the settlers are basically committing mass murder terrorism i mean israel's a very radicalized society too the united states is what needs to come in and be firm on this because israel doesn't want a two-state solution they want greater israel we need to be firm on this say you're going to do it um we're not going to do that at least not for the short run because we're the public opinion is with israel the israel lobby is very powerful but biden likes israel but the the policy should be aggressive pressure from the U.S. to do a two-state solution on the 67 borders and the settlements. And the conditions that are that I would favor in that regard are a demilitarized Palestinian state. That is fair. Um, but Israel is prioritizing um, greater Israel over its own security by denying a two-state solution when, in fact, um, the, the occupation, the, the, the misery is what is the big cause of the hatred. I mean, the theory that it's religious doesn't make, doesn't accord with, with empirical fact. I mean, we have, um, polling from Lebanon showing that the large majority of like 60% of Lebanese Christians supported October 7th. Right. So uh, the, yeah, there may be some role of religion, like Muslim support was higher. Right. But still you're getting the large majority of Levantine Arab Christians, uh, Presumably, Palestinian Arab Christians would be even higher in the occupied territories than Lebanese, right? Um, supporting uh, this this massacre, so you have to look at the source of the hatred, and the best evidence shows it's not primarily about religion. Although I'm not denying that the forms terrorism may take are religiously informed, as is, of course, Hamas as an organization. Yeah, and uh, how how viable is a one state solution, uh, Jews and? Palestinians living side by side in the same state. Look, you never know in 70 years. Like the Holocaust was 80 years ago, right? So, um, you know, could German could Jews live happily um, in like some some Bavarian village now? Yeah, they could. Um, but in the short run, it's not going to happen. There's there's way too much hatred. This is the position I had uh, until October 7th. 
I, I would say I'm kind of post-Zionist now uh, in that I reject Zionism morally, but it's it's not going to go away. So, you know, you, you, we have to live with the, the Jewish state. And frankly, there are some arguments Jews can make for it. I mean, um, I think the original Zionist project was fairly ridiculous, but uh, like you're, you're, you're going back to land you've been, you were at thousands of years ago uh, based on claims of ancient ancestry that are like like a 30%, I think, of the ancestry is, is from the land for Ashkenazi Jews who were the original settlers in the overwhelming majority, even though Israel now is um, mostly Mizrahim Jews, um, the Jewish population there. But it doesn't really matter at some point. Like the state exists, they're not going anywhere. And there are reasons Jews would want it to exist as a Jewish state too. So we have to work within that framework and get a, um, get a 67, uh, get, get a, get Israel to basically honor uh, UN resolution 242, which they agreed to, which is withdraw from the occupied territories in exchange for um, Arab recognition of, uh, you know, Israel as a state and also the conquests of territory Israel carried out in, in 48. Um, so yeah, Israel has to get serious about a two state solution, which they, they, they haven't been for most of their history and the Palestinians do too. And they have to, the Palestinians are going to have to at least uh, temporarily um, give up on the right of return, um, which is, is something they, they don't want to do, but the Israelis are never going to accept any peace agreement without a right of, with, with the right of return for the 48 refugees who are ethnically cleansed. I think given what I know about Arab culture, I think if Israel just apologized, I'm not saying that would suffice them necessarily, but that would actually help if they said, yeah, 1948 and 1950 were ethnic cleansing passing a law saying war refugees, we're going to steal your property and you can't come back is ethnic cleansing. If they simply said that, I think that would, that would make a big difference. Even if like, if there's some kind of waiving of the right of return, even if Israel acknowledges what happened in, in 1948, that 1950 was wrong, that would make a difference. Um, I think demilitarization is another important criterion. Um, but the greater Israel project is a core cause of this, of this conflict. And it's been ongoing for, for decades. And the vast majority of, of, um, of the time, uh, there hasn't been a serious effort for peace in the part of Israel. There have been exceptions, but um, certainly since 2009, that's been the case again, and also historically, like Begin and Golda Meir and, and so on. Uh, if I believe that by recommending a friend that he, he read a certain book, let's say Kevin McDonald's Culture of Critique, and let's say <laughs> I had legitimate reason to believe that there was a 5% chance that this would cause his life to spin out of control and get him fired from his chosen elite profession. Uh, sh should I abstain from making such a recommendation? Any, any thoughts on that moral dilemma? Well, but <laughs> what a question, Luke. I mean, you throw this at me at the end of an interview. My goodness, what kind of a guy are you? It's an interesting question. I'm just, I'm just fucking with you a bit. Let me get water. <sighs> Let me contemplate in this. Hey, for why like don't you think seconds. about it, and I'll play some John Mearsheimer, mm -hmm. so you can just jump in whenever you want to. You're not going to. I'll probably use the restroom quickly, and yep, I'll think yep, about yep. this as well. Yeah, All right. yeah. Go take a break. Consider a war against an existential threat, or a war designed to eliminate an existential threat, as just from that state's point of view. So my bottom line here is, from the perspective of just war theory and international law, I think the war was unjust, uh, no question. 
But if you move beyond just war theory and you apply a more commonsensical definition to what a just war is, I think one could argue that from the Russian perspective, this was a just war. I see a husband who assaults the, his wife's lover has definitely broken the law. On the other hand, who can blame him? Yes, you, you get into those sorts of arguments, right? Uh, I mean, if does anybody seriously believe that if the United States felt that it faced an existential threat, uh, that it was not allowed to use military force to eliminate that threat? Let's just go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, there was a big debate about what exactly to do uh, when we discovered the missiles in Cuba. And there were two choices here. Uh, one was to use military force to attack Cuba and to eliminate the missiles. The other was to try to coerce the Russians or the Soviets into pulling the missiles out of Cuba. This is what we did with a blockade. But we didn't go to war in that case. Uh, Luke, are you there are lots of people? Yes, yes. So let me. Yeah. Okay, uh, is this interview with, um, with, by the way, is this interview, interview with uh, Glenn Lowry? Yes. Were you able to I, hear I it? Right after I, yeah, I, I did think about your question. I'm going to answer it. But I think, I, in point of fact, I think right after I, I, I finished talking to you, I'm going to listen to that because um, it, with developments in Ukraine, Mirshammer just seems smarter to me than ever. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, in terms of your question, I think. I think it depends on the personality. If the personality is um, well-grounded ethically and intellectually, I'd recommend the book. If it is somebody who's a little bit irascible and uh, like always is engaged in kind of extreme, is susceptible to extremism, I wouldn't recommend it because I'd be worried about uh, the person expressing extreme views or hateful views after reading such a book. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, in terms yes. of professional consequences, I would frankly, you know, I think we have to at some point leave. We're in a free society and if people are going to make certain decisions and take certain risks, you know, we can't police that, whether it's a football player or an academic, um, you know, we can we can call for a more liberal environment with regard to dissident views. But as we're seeing, though, people are hypocrites on that. So, um, you know, uh, like Nathan and others have proven to be, in my view, hypocritical on it. Uh, and this is why we need to talk toughness. Like, I'm not. You know, I mean, Kafnis soft peddled um, the um, uh, firing of this guy from a journal. Um, I'm not saying he endorsed it, but he he clearly soft peddled it uh, for retweeting an Onion article and like other tweets about Israel. So, I mean, people have people on the right. Dave Rubin is a even more extreme case and a lot less intelligent than Nathan. <laughs> but um, a lot of people on the right have. Um, shown themselves to be hypocrites in this question of uh, cancel culture and free speech. And it, it, it really provokes the question of like, when wasn't there cancel culture? Maybe it's just, we have, we got kind of weird left wing issues where you're canceled over like transgender, but um, maybe we've always had um, cancel culture, right? Um, who knows? I mean, maybe we've, maybe, maybe the discourse of anti-cancel culture was delusional at some level, because maybe we're always going to have that. And just depends on the social taboos that exist, right? Uh, so if you're opposed to um, transgender uh, movement, um, that's a taboo now in the academy. Uh, but there were other taboos before that, and there were other taboos that people on the right would want to have. So I don't know. What do you think, Luke? I'm still figuring it out, but my show has undergone a dramatic change. The more I do this, the, the more selective I am in who I bring on because I've seen negative consequences to too many people who 
who start suffering from the perils of the e-personality that once they start going online and they start getting kudos for saying edgy things that uh, it overwhelmingly tends to move them in a negative direction. So it's come to to the point where 98% of the people who want to come on my show, I won't bring on my show because I think it's, it's bad for them. Uh, so yeah. any thoughts on, on the, say the moral dilemma of the live streamer, Let's say his living depends upon bringing guests onto his show. At the same time, he has rational empirical reasons for believing that the odds are at least two to one, if not five to one, that for these guests appearing on his show is more likely to have negative consequences for them than positive consequences. Any thoughts on that moral dilemma for the live streamer? I do think that people are very attracted to content that takes a very clear view of the world that has like the heroes and the villains. I mean, look at Lucas Gage or um, who's the other guy? Um, Jackson Hinkle. Like, yeah. Even if we, we speculate, I don't have evidence of this, that there was some foreign help. I think that's a reasonable speculation, but we don't have evidence of it. So we shouldn't say that as if it's true. But nevertheless, there has clearly been massive organic growth of those accounts they're making they're, these guys are making bank right now on the monetization scheme and they tell a story of jews being evil and um um you know um uh, the u.s being i guess hankel claims to like the u.s i don't know but they tell a very simplistic narrative of the world and clear cut and they're pro hamas right uh so that is more i think there's that has more mass appeal than me saying like no we can't we can't condone a massacre people but you know, here are X, Y, Z causes of of the hatred behind the terrorism. Uh, people like these kind of, and I think it's good for viewership too. If you say inflammatory things, if you have a very clear cut, moralistic worldview, people are attracted to that. And um, I think a lot of the people that would want to be on your show right now probably have worldviews <laughs> along these lines, where you know Jews are just intrinsically evil, or or Palestinians are just intrinsically evil. We need to kill them or ethnically cleanse them. Uh, those are the accounts that are getting the most attention. The, the accounts that are kind of uh, succumbing to the rule of the jungle right now. Whereas people who have more nuanced uh, approaches are disregarded. Um, so actually, paradoxically, some of these people are not hurting themselves; they're helping themselves. The question is, are they helping a society? I mean, what what's his face? Um, what's his face? Um, Hinkle. I mean, he, he, I imagine with all of his views, given how the monetization scheme works, he's probably making like 10K a week. So has he hurt himself on this? I don't know. Um, doesn't seem like it. Uh, are there any, well, uh, premise, uh, philosopher Stephen Turner made this observation that intellectual work almost never pays for itself. So are there any, are there any public commentators who, who are not subsidized by a think tank, NGO, or university position. Are there any public commentators, you know, earning a living through their public commentary that you admire? Because I'm having uh, a real hard time, you know, finding any. The one I really admire and read regularly uh, that I would consider to be a public intellectual and does not have an institutional affiliation is, is Andrew Sullivan, who mm -hmm. has also been very good on, on this issue, the Israel-Palestine issue. He's talked about the monstrosity of 7 October, but also talked about the greater Israel and ethnic cleansing projects. Um, 
and settler uh, attacks on, uh, you know, I think he may, I don't actually want to say that because I'm not sure. I think he may have used the word, I don't know, let's let's not say that if we're not 100% sure, but I, I would say Sullivan is up there. Do you, do you read the, uh, the Weekly Dish or, or no? You're not a Sullivan uh, guy. In, intermittently, so it'd have to be brought to my attention. I don't record doing it for about six months. There was a time that I briefly subscribed to his Substack, and I, I do recognize that he does produce much uh, thoughtful content. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. I would say he's he's definitely the top tier. Um, generally speaking, I think um, I think intellectual life in America is taken less seriously than in, say, continental Europe, and maybe I'd even extend that to the Anglosphere more generally. Um, so I think I think there's just less of a place for public intellectuals and discourse, and more of a place for people who uh, get a big bright banner to wave, you know. Would you would you agree with the observation that uh, intellectual work, intellectual labor, meaning in, in the world of ideas, not in the world of, you know, concrete uh, business, that intellectual labor almost never pays for itself. That to to get make a living from this sort of intellectual labor, you almost always have to be subsidized or mm. play a manipulated game where you're feeding one side what it wants to hear. So. That's a very good point. So the, the argument is that market forces are not going to produce, are not going to reward um, intellectuals. It's going to be one weird dude who who, who takes a shine to you and, and gives you a, a subsidy, or it'll be an institution, or you'll have to just play to the peanut gallery. Um, you'll yeah. have to become a demagogue of some kind. I think that's a really, I'm sure there are exceptions, but I think as a generalization, um, it's a pretty apt one, <laughs> which depresses me because I, I like I'm not gonna become a, you know, a partisan girl. You know who that is? I'm not. Like, yes. You know, I, I, even if I had no ethical qualms uh, with that, with doing engaging in that, um, it just is is boring to me to say things that aren't true. It's same with Holocaust denial. That's why I tell these people. It, it just it's boring to talk about an imaginary world to me. I mean, I'm happy to go to a movie and, and, and like, you know, the other day I went to this really bad movie about uh, escapist kind of fast food films I like to see about two children who are demonically possessed. And it was a, it was a, it was like a new version of The Exorcist. And it was, of course, multi-ethnic because it was a black girl and a white uh, girl. He was talking, I'm not talking about like young women as in girls, I'm talking about like children possessed by demons. But I'm not going to I'm not interested when it comes to my analysis of the world to pretend things are true that aren't. So it's it, to me, obviously, it's unethical, but it's also boring to pretend Hamas didn't kill civilians because it's it's you're, you're just not engaging in the world, which is so much bigger and more interesting than um, than some cartoon you have, you know. Um, so, yeah. And uh, what was your experience like going on Destiny? Uh, I was actually surprised by how so first of all, I, I didn't think it was going to be a debate. It kind of turned into that. It was supposed to be a conversation, but it's fine. He he has been like reading really frantically the um, um, data on the conflict. He didn't want to talk about anything, I believe, after the 1973. So that kind of limit, even though I, I snuck other stuff in there, that kind of limited the scope of the conversation. What was weird is how he was like, oh, you're bad faith. Oh, you're totally wrong. And you know what? When, in fact, we didn't disagree on many factual questions. The, he agreed the Nekba was ethnic cleansing, for example. He 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 agreed Israel didn't share our values, although he said it, he said it's because of their 
situation and they share it more than the Arab states, but he still agreed with me that Israel does not share Western values. Um, he agreed with me on the settlement. So it was, there weren't that many disagreements actually. Uh, he disagreed with me on the, on whether Israel was justified in the preemption that of, of the six day war and the preemptive attack on the Arabs. But we didn't disagree on that much yet. He was, I think, signaling to his audience so aggressively your bad faith. And I really wasn't trying to be, I mean, if you listen to that conversation, you can, you're totally open to critiquing my performance, but uh, I mean, I think I did well, but, but if you don't think so, that's, I'm totally willing to listen to you. But I, I think what is, what is crazy is, is the idea that I was acting in bad faith in that conversation. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I didn't make any, there was one factual error I made in real time and I corrected it myself. Like I was confusing the name of two authors, but um, I don't think I was acting in bad faith and I don't know why he seemed to think that, or at least was playing that game to his own. I mean, the thing about destiny is he has to have content going all day. And, you know, that requires sometimes to have confrontation and taking a side and moralizing. And I think, I think I may have fallen into that speculating, but I hope we do it again. I hope we have like a moderated thorough debate that isn't like circumscribed to one. If you watch it, look, what do you think of it? I'm curious to hear your, your take. I, I kept thinking, you know, I should watch this because I'm going to be talking to Matt. And then another part of me is just like, I don't want polemics. I just have no interest in polemics. I haven't, to the best of my knowledge, consumed any polemics about, you know, Israel, Palestine. I, I'm only, you know, generally trying to seek, you know, fairly disinterested academic perspectives. So I, I have less and less interest in polemics. So I heard uh, 15 minutes, but it, it did seem to be fairly polemical, which is not something I'm interested in. The polemics means just you no know, argument. And uh, I, I mean, I, I listened to about 15 minutes. Uh, what do you think? Am I right that uh, Destiny needed to make it polemical? And therefore, that's not a genre of much interest to me. Yeah, that really limited the effectiveness of the exercise. I agree with you. And, and again, the irony is we didn't, we, we disagreed on moral judgments and political judgments. We actually didn't disagree on that many factual assertions. So it was just strange to, um, um, to, for, that he was so in, intense. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't dislike this. And he, he's running a show. Yeah. He, look, he, he is the top guy. I don't know if this is true anymore. But he used to be, and he certainly is up there. He's a top political streamer. So he's basically, I have, I have some respect for the guy because he, he's kind of entrepreneurial. He, he innovated this market into existence in some way, right? The political streamer who's playing video games and then talking about world affairs. So I do have some respect for him. Uh, I think in this debate, he was more of a showman than a good faith interlocutor. Uh, look, this is why I want to debate Nathan. I mean, we, we could have a civilized exchange, Nathan. We really could. I mean, I know you're committed to this idea that I'm bad faith because I confused Stryker and Enoch. <laughs> like, I mean, just take a breath. We could have a, a good discussion about this, these issues. Um, and maybe agree on some things and disagree on other. We, we could have a good discussion if you if you want to continue to dismiss me as just a bad faith actor. And look, when I when I make mistakes, I'll I'll correct them. I, I certainly make mistakes. Um, yeah, I'll correct them. Yeah. Okay. If he doesn't want to do it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right. Great. Any any final words? Any anything you want to leave us with, Matt? No, I, I, it was good catching up, Luke. I, you always run a good interview. I, and I enjoyed the conversation. I got kind of more, I haven't slept much lately. Um, you know, I, I get like three hours of sleep at night because I'm on X so obsessively. Um, but it was, um, you know, I thought I'd sleep in the day uh, even more than I did. But uh, I was, I'm glad I woke up at uh, 12 or whatever it is. I'm sleeping really late on weekends. 
um, uh, to come on. It was you, you do a very good job interviewing, actually. I, so it was a fun exercise. Um, thank you for having me. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Great to catch up with you. Talk to you later, man. Bye. Bye. Okay. Um, let me get my act together here. Let me play some uh, John Jay, Mearsheimer, as I kind of catch my breath. Taking circle, wanted to use military force. This would have been a violation of uh, just war theory because we would have been launching a preventive war against Cuba. We certainly would have done it. And if Kennedy had not been successful at using coercion to get Khrushchev to agree to take those missiles out, he would have surely used military force. And I believe almost every American would have thought that that was just, that we had a right to eliminate this existential threat to the United States in 1962. So it's this basic logic that, um, that I think one wants to keep in mind when thinking about what the Russians did. Yes, it may be a violation of just war theory or international law. But again, from a commonsensical point of view, it makes eminently good sense if you're the Russians and you think you're facing an existential threat to try to eliminate it. Are you worried about escalation? I am worried about escalation. Um, I mean, in my opinion, it can take two forms. Um, the one that scared me the most was one where the Russians were losing. Uh, let's say that the American plan bring the Russians to their knees was working. It actually worked out. <laughs> yeah, let's assume they worked out. Uh, I believe the Russians would have used nuclear weapons, or to put it in more qualified terms, it's highly likely that the Russians would have used nuclear weapons. Uh, you want to remember, Glenn, that if the Russians were to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine when they were losing, they would not be using nuclear weapons against the West, specifically against the United States. They would be using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians have no nuclear weapons of their own, so they would not be able to retaliate with nuclear weapons. And we have made it clear, uh, Macron has been especially outspoken on this, that we would not, we the West, would not use nuclear weapons in response to Russian use inside of Ukraine. Well, given that calculus, you can see where the Russians would be seriously tempted to use nuclear weapons to try to rescue the situation if they were losing, right? So the fact that the Russians are doing much better on the battlefield today, <laughs> ironically, ironically, yes, is uh, minimizes the prospects of uh, of escalation. So uh, there are beautiful people out there who bring people together, right? Introduce people, and I have not tended to live my life that way. Right? I've tended to have you know, segments in my life that were fairly well compartmentalized and so uh, I, i'd write about a particular topic but i would keep you know the people in that topic you know outside of my real life and so when when different segments of my life would collide i would feel a great deal of anxiety so for example i made most of my living from 1997 to 2007 blogging about the porn industry, yet I overwhelmingly kept people in the porn industry outside of my real life. But then I wrote a, a memoir in 2004, and the Los Angeles Press Club threw a party for me. And so people from various segments of my life came together in 2004 at this Los Angeles Press Club party, and I had so much anxiety about it 
I wasn't really able to be present or to enjoy it. So, you know, one segment of the party were people from the porn industry and they largely stuck to themselves. And then another segment of the party were, were people from my life in Orthodox Judaism and they largely stuck to themselves. And then there was a, another segment uh, of the party. The, the, the biggest segment was people who, who were writers, members of the Los Angeles Press Club. And so these different segments, particularly my Orthodox Jewish friends and my, my friends in the porn industry, like being at this, this one event, even though everyone you know, got along just fine, and even though I was able to conduct myself with the most complete academic detachment, I was, I was not able to enjoy it. I was just anxious. And this is how anxious I was. I had a wonderful opportunity as a result of this party, et cetera, to, to court a, a lovely French woman. And I, I, I failed. It was a failure on, on my part to you know, keep this process moving. And I think I wasn't my, my best self because of the anxiety of the different compartments of my life kind of falling together. I remember once I was, I was interviewing, uh, I think a, a pornographer, I think by the name of John Bone. And, and as I'm leaving my interview with him, a friend from synagogue comes through the door. A, a friend from synagogue who was completely unbeknownst to me, you know, getting financial reward, working some financial business angle in, in the porn industry. And I had no idea. I was not prepared for this. And so I like did everything I could to avoid eye contact, but we definitely saw each other. Uh, I think we had one oblique discussion about it many, many years later, but uh, we didn't discuss it. We just like, there was an oblique reference, but I didn't want to talk about it. My friend from synagogue here, you know, walking into a porn studio or, uh, something like uh, 2007, I was, with complete academic detachment, I was journalistically uh, covering a particular genre with, with uh, let's say, two orientations in the genre. And I had a nice chat on this set, even though I was operating with complete academic detachment and a nice chat with the Jewish attractive costume designer. And then two weeks ago, I run into her at a Purim event at an Orthodox synagogue. And I wasn't ready for that. What does a porn studio smell like? I have almost no sense of smell. So that didn't really, uh, register with me. Another time, there was a photographer named Holly with whom I had an on-again, off-again relationship for a few months, and uh, she went into AA. She got sober, and as part of her process, she wanted to make amends and 
you know, believe me, I had just as much reason to make amends to her. And we, we, so we met up for the, the amends process and then we decided she wanted to go to synagogue. And so I took her to a conservative synagogue. I did not want to take her to an Orthodox synagogue. I took her to a conservative synagogue for Shavuot, right? All night uh, studying Torah. And, you know, we're there for the event and we're coming out to the, you know, the social side of the spectrum. There's like a guy who subscribes to her website. It's like, oh, (laughs) Holly, what? What brings you here? So, oh, it it uh, tends to tends to make me nervous when you know, these these discordant, I guess, trying to reconcile discordant parts of myself. So, I, you know, there was some you know anxiety there as I'm trying to be both fully fair to Nathan Kaufness and fully fair to my friend Matt, and the anxiety that was coming up for me. And then my my theory about life, if you have, you know, high anxiety in one area of your life, it's, you know, all through your life, it's just that certain situations mean you can no longer escape from the anxiety. You can no longer delude yourself about the anxiety. It's just right there, right there in your in your face, and you can't get away from it. That's one scenario. The other scenario, which is becoming the more likely one, a more likely escalation scenario is if Ukraine loses, if the Ukrainian military uh, collapses or the Russians just simply start to overrun them because the Russians have larger numbers of troops and much more artillery and assorted other kinds of equipment, and the Ukrainians are being pushed back. What is the United States going to do? If, in a more extreme case, and a possible case, the Ukrainian military collapses and the Russians are overrunning most of Ukraine. What are we going to do? It's very important to remember how deeply invested we are in this war. Can we really afford to lose? Can NATO afford to lose? Anyway, I raise all of this because I think there will be a serious temptation for us to get directly involved. And given, you know, the number of foolish moves that the United States and its allies have made with regard to NATO expansion, I wouldn't be surprised if we got involved. Do I think that would be a disaster? Just imagine like American troops getting getting involved in the Ukraine war. Oh, that'd be a horrible idea. All right, another great point here from Mirshaver. 2014. Biden comes into the White House. Talking about why do so many Americans hate Russia in general and Putin in particular? January 2021. It's no accident. 13 months later. The war happens because what's happening over the course of 2021 and early 2022 is that the Biden administration is upping the pressure on the Russians regarding NATO expansion. And this is when the Russians are scrambling to try to work out some sort of diplomatic solution so that it doesn't end up in a war. So you can see that President Biden and before that, Vice President Biden has been involved in Ukrainian affairs for a long time. Now, let me come at this whole issue from a somewhat different, but somewhat related perspective. There is no question that there is profound Russophobia in this country. Uh, It's really quite remarkable. Uh, It it is uh, hard to say anything positive about the Russians or about Vladimir Putin in the present environment. And indeed, I think this has been the case for many years now. 
the question you have to ask yourself is what's driving that? You know, wh yeah. where is this coming from? I think a great deal of it has to do with the fact that many people, especially in the Democratic Party, believe that the reason that Hillary Clinton lost the election in 2016 and Donald Trump won the election is because the Russians interfered in the election and they threw the election for Trump. Had the Russians not interfered, so the argument goes, Hillary Clinton would have won. People in the Democratic Party are almost to a person unwilling to accept the argument that Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate and that Trump beat her. Uh, there is, in my opinion, hardly any evidence that the Russians were responsible for Trump's election. Uh, but nevertheless, the Democratic Party is filled with people who believe that, and many Americans believe that the Russians did uh, interfere in the election. Whether they're glad that Hillary lost or won is, is irrelevant. Uh, and uh, so that fuels the Russophobia. Uh, the other thing that I think fuels the Russophobia is the fact that Putin uh, is deeply opposed to LGBTQ issues. Uh, He's uh, quite hard line on that. And well, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I'm surprised to hear that that could be a driver uh, of this larger uh, uh, foreign policy dynamic. Well, it, it makes him a hated person. I mean, people loathe Vladimir Putin, and in effect, they loathe Russia. And, and the question you want to ask yourself is, what's driving this Russophobia? Why is it so easy to make the argument that Vladimir Putin is the devil incarnate? And the argument I'm making to you is a lot of it has to do with what happened in the 2016 election, and a lot of it has to do with uh, LBGTQ issues. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm provoked to ask you this, then. Uh, there are uh, quarters of the right of a kind of uh, nationalist, uh, Christian, even Christian nationalists that would look to Orthodox uh, uh, Russian uh, religious uh, culture as a counterpoint to the postmodern uh, overtaking of the West by all of the various isms and, and all the identity stuff and the transgender stuff and whatnot, whatnot. Um, I don't, don't know how, quite how to put it. Is, isn't there uh, a necessity to take a stand on, on something like that? And uh, uh, are the ones who are afraid of the Christian right in America uh, not right to see and, and who want to see a certain human rights mentality uh, become a global cultural reality, uh, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I don't want to take a stand myself, but I, I want to say I, I can see I, I, I can see both sides. I mean, when Tucker Carlson goes to Poland or Hungary or something like that, I mean, it, it, a lot of people are uncomfortable. In general, in interviewing, the shorter the question, the better. Uh, Glenn Lowry would have benefited from doing more preparation. ...with this kind of uh, flirting with these, these forces. So um, anyway, have, have I said enough for you to be able to respond on this theme? Well, there's no question that one can have a particular set of views on, let's say, gay rights and think that, you know, gay marriage is definitely acceptable, gay should be treated equally and so forth and so on. You can have very liberal views on these issues. Uh, and I would put myself in that category. Uh, but then the question is, how do you deal with other countries where they have different views? Um, I mean, here in the United States, we firmly believe, quite correctly, that women should be treated the same as men. Uh, but what if you have another society where uh, men believe, or people in the society believe that men are different than women and women should be treated as subordinate to men. Uh, and this like is- Like Iran. Yeah, or Afghanistan. And this is hardwired into the culture, right? Uh, how do you deal with that issue? Uh, now, liberalism at its core is all about tolerance. And why is liberalism all about tolerance? Because liberalism understands, or liberalism is predicated on the assumption 
that there's no agreement on what comprises the good life. And different individuals and different societies are going to have different views on what comprises the good life. And if people in a country like Iran or people in a country like Afghanistan want a culture uh, where men dominate women or women are subordinated to men, uh, shouldn't we, as good liberals, just tolerate that? Shouldn't we accept the fact that women and men uh, have uh, the relationship between women and men uh, depends on the particular society's views? Uh, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is simply saying that the way the, Ukraine, uh, the, way the uh, Iranians and Afghanis think about male-female relations is fundamentally wrong, and we're going to go in there and change that. That's uh, not a particularly liberal view if you think about what liberalism is all about. But then again, one could argue liberalism is all about equal rights, and uh, uh, we therefore have a moral responsibility to go in and change uh, the culture in countries like Iran and Afghanistan. And where you stand on that uh, issue, you know, how you think about liberalism affects how you think about American policy around the world. I tend to believe that the United States should stay out of the business uh, of how other countries run their politics and what their cultural life looks like. Uh, I'm willing to intervene. In so I've uh, reached out to John J. Mishimer on a couple of occasions to try to interview him, and uh, he has not responded. Here he is this uh, past week on Judge Andrew Napolitano's show. Uh, look, the fact is, inside Greater Israel, and Greater Israel uh, includes uh, the Gaza Strip and, and the West Bank, you have about 7.3 million Palestinians and 7.3 million Jews. In, in a country with that kind of uh, demographic distribution, there is simply no way you can have equal rights for the Palestinians and the Israeli Jews because you would eventually end up with a Palestinian state and there would be no more Jewish state. So there's no room for equal rights. And that means that you end up with a brutal occupation. And when you have a brutal occupation, what you end up doing is dehumanizing the victims. And there's a very powerful tendency inside of Israel, and this is certainly not true among all Israelis, but among Israelis on the right especially, to dehumanize the Palestinians. And dehumanizing the Palestinians is necessary for lots of people because it provides a rationale for the occupation, for keeping the Palestinians down. So I think given the present situation in Israel, talking about equal rights or treating people equally, whether they're Jewish or whether they're Palestinian, uh, has no place in the discourse. I want to take you back to uh, 1948 at the founding of the uh, state of Israel uh, with the uh, support and encouragement of the president of the United States at the time. Here he is. We had several other uh, people in the country, even among the Jews, the Zionists particularly, who were against anything that was to be done if they couldn't have the whole of Palestine and everything handed to them on a silver plate so they wouldn't have to do anything. It couldn't be done. We had to take it in small doses. You can't move uh, five or six million people out of a country and fill it up with five or six million more and expect both sets of them to be pleased. 49. But don't think that decision to recognize Israel was an easy one. I had to make a compromise with the Arabs and divide Palestine. The Jews wanted to chase all the Arabs into the Tigris and Euphrates River, and the Arabs wanted to chase all the Jews into the Red Sea. And I was trying, what I was trying to do was to find a homeland for the Jews and still be just with the Arabs. <laughs> I guess he couldn't have imagined that 75 years later, literally, this would still be going on and, and would reach the, uh, the depths of bloodshed and horror that it has. Well, I think if you think about the... Uh 
Hamas-Israel conflict today, uh, what Truman says uh, rings true. Uh, I mean, it's quite clear that Hamas would like to ethnically cleanse Israel and turn it back into a Palestinian state or make it a Palestinian state. Uh, and at the same time, it's quite clear that lots of Israelis would like to ethnically cleanse uh, the Palestinians in uh, Gaza and in the West Bank so that the demographic balance inside of greater Israel favored uh, the Jews over the Palestinians. So I think uh, basically Truman understood at the time uh, what the problem was. And uh, Talk to me about uh, NATO and uh, Western Europe. What do they expect the United States to do in order to bring about some resolution uh, of this? I don't think they have any expectations. I think all these people understand that there is no resolution to this problem. I believe that Tony Blinken and Joe Biden understand that as well. Uh, we're in a situation where there just is no solution. Is, is there um, an angle here for uh, Vladimir Putin or President Xi to uh, show some leadership? Oh, absolutely. This is mana from heaven for the two of those guys. Uh, first of all, they have been making hay out of the argument that the United States which was or has been principally responsible for trying to settle this conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis has failed. We failed, and they've been pointing that out. And they argue that if they had been more involved in the process or the international community had been more involved, we would have been successful at solving this. And then furthermore, they're arguing that now that this massive conflict has broken out, the United States is mismanaging it because instead of trying to settle the conflict, to calm the Israelis down and try and work out some sort of modus vivendi, we're just fueling the flames and making a bad situation worse. And that's an argument that resonates with people all over the planet. It resonates with people in the United States as well. And by the way, that includes a lot of American Jews, right, who yes. are very interested in settling this conflict once and for all, because this is a nightmare scenario for them as well. You have argued, as you always do, compellingly and articulately, that 30 years ago, there was one great power in the world, the United States, and now there are three. There are a variety of reasons as to how that happened. You understand them better uh, than anybody uh, I know. And the other two, of course, are uh, Russia and China. Um, is the world going to look to Russia and China to provide the leadership where the U.S. has failed? Well, to talk about the world is difficult. It's just too broad a concept. There's no question that the West Europeans and the East Europeans will continue to look for the United look to the United States for leadership because they love NATO because NATO is a security blanket for them. So we'll be fine there. But once you get out of Western Europe or the West more generally, uh, what you discover is that there's a great deal of animosity towards the United States. They think that we're hypocritical in the extreme. Uh, and uh, there's much more sympathy for the Russian position and for the Chinese position. And that's why the Russians and the Chinese are making hay in what we call the global South at our expense. I want you to listen to a, a clip from um, a young former member of the Israeli Defense Force, uh, born in New York City, He's truly Americanized, but one of those young uh, American uh, Jewish males that went to Israel to uh, fight for Israel. The, the clip is only two days old. He is referring to his military activity in the IDF in 2014. I'd like your uh, thoughts on this. His name is uh, Ben Zion. Where do I have it? Ben Zion Sanders. After we went in and we suffered our own casualties, killed also thousands of Palestinians in that uh, operation, I came out and uh, I looked and I started thinking about what we accomplished. And I saw that actually what happened was that Hamas uh, just got stronger. Um, and not only did it get stronger, it got stronger with the help of my own government. Uh, my own government 
thought that it was convenient and preferable to bolster Hamas while it uh, simultaneously delegitimized and called uh, uh, Palestinian initiatives from the Palestinian Authority at the UN diplomatic terrorism, delegitimized Palestinian human rights activists, human rights organizations, designating them as terrorist groups, meanwhile, facilitating the transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars to Gaza into the hands of Hamas. And they just got stronger. All of that for the purpose of preventing the creation of Palestinian state, uh, preventing uh, hope, really, for Palestinians to achieve the same rights and freedoms that we cherish so much for ourselves. And that is actually crushing Palestinian hope, which also plays into the hands of Hamas. I think he probably expresses a view that's shared by a lot of Israelis, not the Netanyahu government, but a lot of Israelis. I think that's true. Uh, I don't think the majority of Israelis share his view. Uh, but I think that, as we've talked about on the show before, it's important to understand that the Netanyahu government uh, is deeply committed to preventing a two-state solution. And Hamas is very useful for that purpose because Hamas is not interested in a two-state solution either. And Hamas makes it clear that they would like to control all of what is now Israel. So they're the perfect boogeyman for purposes of undermining a two-state solution. And unsurprisingly, the Netanyahu government has gone to some lengths to support Hamas. Uh, and to undermine the Palestinian Authority, which controls the West Bank, because the Palestinian Authority is interested in a two-state solution, which, of course, the Israelis are not. But nevertheless, it's important to understand that every once in a while, the Israelis like to go into Gaza. This has been the case in the past. Uh, and inflict significant punishment on Gaza, especially on Hamas. They don't want Hamas to get too powerful. The Israelis sometimes refer to this as mowing the lawn. They say that every once in a while we have to go in and mow the lawn. All of that's done for the purposes of making sure that Hamas, which is useful to them, doesn't get too powerful. Uh, this used to be called the Iron Wall. This is a concept associated with the famous Zionist uh, Zev Yabotinsky. And the idea was you could use the Iron Wall or the mailed fist to beat the Palestinians into submission. Uh, and mowing the lawn uh, is very similar to that. Uh, but the fact is, it hasn't worked, as we found out on October 7th. And as we were talking about a few minutes ago, the idea that you're going to defeat Hamas once and for all, and then the Israelis are going to live happily ever after, that's not going to happen. There so is this, is this going to end diplomatically, or is it going to end with a wider regional war? Well, I don't believe, I hope I'm wrong, it's going to end diplomatically. I believe it's just going to go on and on. And what that means is that the potential for a wider war is always there. Right. Can I say one way or the other that you are going to get a wider war? No, I don't know. We just don't know where this train is headed. But the potential for horizontal escalation is significant. Does Joe. OK, we're all in mourning for, over the death of uh, Matthew Perry, who was on the TV show Friends. And they use a clip from this TV show uh, on my 60 Minutes appearance back in 2003. So here, here I am with Matthew Perry, so to speak, in the same 60 Minutes segment. What did I do? I must have hit something on the remote. Do we pay for this? Most Americans are fascinated by it, most male Americans. But uh, they still, you know, if they had a pornographer come over and sleep in their house, they'd want to burn the sheets the next morning. Luke Ford, who spent seven years writing an Internet gossip column about the adult entertainment industry for his own Internet website, isn't sure what to make of it. It's become popular and cool, acceptable in this 18 to 25 uh, age group. My age group, I'm 37, my age group and up, we think porn is something that's shameful. <laughs> he guesses that it's an act of teenage rebellion, embracing one of society's last taboos. How many films do you think have been shot here? 500. 
Ford, who is often referred to as the Matt Drudge of adult entertainment, gave us a tour of a backyard porn set in a residential neighborhood of Chatsworth that's been used by porn directors for more than 20 years. Got a little grass shack, bamboo shack. Yeah, it's Gilligan's Island. The Old West? It's just like Hollywood. Like the porn industry itself, it becomes less glamorous the closer you get. Ready, action. If you take away the accountants and the CEOs, you're left with a small, insular world filled with renegades and outcasts who like to flaunt society's rules. Generally speaking, they come into this industry because this is the single easiest way that they can earn $1,000 in a day in two hours. It's not like we're losing people from going to medical school or business school or becoming lawyers. I'm hoping to become a star. I love sex. Love sex and money, <laughs> you know? What more can you ask for? Fill one of these out. Have a seat on okay. the sofa. Hang around the World Modeling Talent Agency on Van Nuys Boulevard in Sherman Oaks, and one of the first things you notice is that there's no shortage of men or women eager to work in the business. It's fun. I love, I think it's awesome that, you know, like, to be, like, a sex icon, I think girls argue that it's a bad thing or crazy because, you know, everybody thinks you're beautiful, everybody wants to meet you. You'll also see why Fortune 500 companies making millions off the industry don't like to be publicly associated with it. It's a tough world. Most girls who enter this industry do one video and quit. The experience is so painful, horrifying, embarrassing, humiliating for them that they never do it again. The argument... Okay, let me change, change pace here. Fear of failure. I like this as a new YouTube channel. Forest, forest. Yeah, something. to me, two things just immediately stand out. And the first is is uh, something that I, I did a short video. Okay, so Forrest Hansen, this is his YouTube channel. How to get unstuck, guys, self-efficacy, learned helplessness, and creating a growth mindset. Video on for my YouTube if people want to go and check it out. It's called our, our homeostatic base or the principle of homeostasis. We don't want to change. Yeah, family um, systems theory. Family systems theory. Families, yeah. families don't want to change. Yeah, punish our, the one who tries to change. Yeah, yeah. Our, our baseline is very stable and it's yeah. very static by and large. And so it takes a lot of effort to exert change in those kinds of stable situations, right? We don't like to move too far from what we know. And there are, you know, plenty of evolutionary yeah. plausible explanations for this. You kind of pointed to some of them. Yeah. And then the second thing that really stands out to me is just the self-fulfilling prophecy of this mm -hmm. whole thing, right? Yeah. Where the only thing that guarantees failure in the future is not trying. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing that guarantees it. And so it's so interesting to me that we will essentially concede that we will concede losing mm. because trying and failing is more painful than just giving up and losing automatically. Oh, yeah. And isn't that like, like that's, there's something about that that just stands out to me as like, if you actually think about it that way, it's like, whoa, it just makes you shake your head a little bit, right? It's not rational, but yeah. welcome to humanity. Yeah, totally. And there, that's kind of interesting because I, I think about people who are always holding back for the last battle. Mm, mm -hmm. I think about that. And if you don't fully commit yourself to something, you are not putting all your self-esteem chips on the table, mm -hmm. subject to the turn of the wheel. Mm -hmm. So you can always think to yourself, well, you know, if I'd really tried, or well, if I'd ever sent that short story in or that poem mm -hmm. in or mm -hmm. asked that other person out on a date or to marry me, yeah, it might have turned out okay. Yeah. So you're kind of preserving a certain amount of self-worth or the possibility Mm -hmm. that, well, next year, next year, mm -hmm. I'll do it next time. I think that's one reason. I think another reason 
uh, has to do with um, the negativity bias again and loss aversion. I see one of the books on your shelf is from Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah, one of my favorites. Nobel Prize winner in economics as a psychologist for his work on loss aversion. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so very often people will. What kind of person thinks that that book, Thinking Fast or Slow, is one of your favorite books? Now, I haven't read it. I read uh, Steve Saylor's review of it. So I'm coming from from a place of not a lot of knowledge, but it just seems like a, a weird book. I know it's very popular among baseball executives. They'll overvalue uh, the you know, negative consequences, and so they'll, they'll stop trying. They'll give up the positive that they plausibly could gain to avoid the risk, even though it's a small risk, of a negative event mm -hmm. related to the effort to gain the positive thing. So mm. to me, that's another thing there in mm -hmm. terms of the negativity bias. And the reason I started thinking about it, if it was picking up on what you said earlier mm -hmm. about uh, people in environments in which they have a lot of objective control over their situation, mm -hmm. they tend to be fairly open-minded and growth-oriented uh, and uh, promotion-oriented rather than prevention-oriented, mm -hmm. these two major kind of dichotomies. On the other hand, people who have much less control over their situations. And if things go badly, they can be devastating, tend to be much more conservative, mm. which is one of the explanations for why around the world, typically people who live in rural areas or countries that are particularly rural tend to be much more conservative than mm. people who live in. Ah, that's an interesting explanation. So people who live in the country have less sense of efficacy, less sense of being able to make a, a dramatic positive change in their life and and more fear of some kind of catastrophic outcome than people who live in the city. I think I need to hear this again. It's an interesting argument. Up the positive that they plausibly could gain to avoid the risk, even though it's a small risk, of a negative event mm -hmm. related to the effort to gain the positive thing. So mm. to me, that's another thing there. Mm -hmm. in terms of the negativity bias. And the reason I started thinking about it, if it was picking up on what you said earlier mm -hmm. about uh, people in environments in which they have a lot of objective control over their situation, mm -hmm. they tend to be fairly open-minded. And So do is this right? Do people living in a city generally feel like they have more control of their situation than people who live in the country? Does, does that ring true to you? And growth-oriented uh, and uh, promotion-oriented rather than prevention-oriented, mm -hmm. these two major kind of dichotomies. On the other hand, people who have much less control over their situations, and if things go badly, they can be devastating, tend to be much more conservative, mm. which is one of the explanations for why around the world, typically, people who live in rural areas or countries that are particularly rural tend to be much more conservative than mm. people who live in cities, who are also exposed to more points of view. But in these rural areas, there's so much out of your control. Mm. You know, my dad, your grandfather, grew up on a ranch in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. And during the Great Depression, it was drought for years, locusts, goodness knows what, price of beef plummeted, totally outside their control. What yeah. could they do? Of course, you would be very, very cautious and conservative mm. to try mm -hmm. to you know, minimize a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. Okay, fascinating idea. 
Let's get a few more thoughts here. This is uh, Forrest, Forrest Hansen talking with his father. Simplistic example might be something like, I'm just bad at math. Yeah. Because you've had a million experiences yeah. growing up of an incompetent teacher or an angry parent or whatever yeah. else, you know? And like, sure, there's a, there's a range of talent when it comes to different things. And there's a range of talent when it comes to math or something sure. like that. But the only thing that guarantees that you're going to keep on being bad at math is that you didn't try to improve. Yeah. So again, it becomes this very self-perpetuating thing. The assumption is that I can't do the thing. And so I don't do the thing. So what happens? Well, I can't do the thing, and it just keeps on going that way. Yeah. Another thing related to that is how are you treated for trying? Mm, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. This is a huge part of it. Yeah, yeah. totally. How are you treated when you yeah. try and don't succeed? Mm -hmm. And or how are you treated when you're feeling kind of big for your britches? Sure. Yeah. yeah. You got to sit up straight, and you got a little moxie going, and then you're suddenly people are saying, you know— Girls don't act like that. Mm. Don't, don't do that. Uh, or uh, something happens. Yeah, how you sit, how you stand, how you operate in your body is going to have a profound effect on your thinking and on your emotions, right? Upward direction through your body, you're going to you know, feel more at ease, more calm, likely a higher sense of self-efficacy than being slumped and depressed in your body happens maybe you're a little annoying because you are a little loud or sure or other you just kind of go "Ooh, i better really yeah. start buttoning it in yeah and just here if people are watching or listening so interesting to look at the uh physicality of this the embodiment mm -hmm. of this here's where mm -hmm. your partner mm -hmm. would definitely add value yeah. elizabeth about totally. this yeah from all kinds of places so the host here forrest his partner specializes in somatic therapy uh, the the role of the body in psychotherapy. Computer training and somatic therapy. But think about shame. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've really learned recently from Paul Gilbert, mm -hmm. profound professor of compassion-focused therapy and other things, he points out the underlying biology of shame in, in primates is a submission behavior. Mm -hmm. And you can see that uh, in, you know, alpha-beta dominance interactions, the beta will curl under, you know, maybe it's the canine equivalent or the simian equivalent of a dog, you know, rolling over and exposing its belly mm -hmm. as a submission behavior. So there's this, it's quite physical. It's this curling mm -hmm. over. Mm. Sure. Right. Yeah. You know? So I have often given off the vibe to people of a, a beaten dog, a, a stray dog, because I have like physically embodied the shame and the learned helplessness. And then think about, and that basically means I, I need to disappear. Mm -hmm. I'm not really here. I'm going to get off the radar, which is the opposite of efficacy. And think about what it's like to sit up a little straighter. Mm -hmm. Or if you're with people who are... Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bewildered that here I am. I, I do such profound <laughs> YouTube shows and scintillating blog posts and crackling Twitter posts. And yet... A substantial number of the people that I relate to on a regular basis uh, treat me with disrespect, and I create that. So it's like, why, why am I giving off the vibe that I can be treated with disrespect? And I, I think the answer is that I am 
using an excessive and inappropriate amount of vulnerability. Kind of being all bossy, you know? What's it like to sit up a little straighter, to get a little forward, you know? Mm -hmm to uh, activate the reticular activating system, you know, in the brainstem, which is, which is an alerting behavior. As, you know, as we came out of the forest into the savanna plains over like a five, 10 million year process back in evolution, you know, we move from, you know, we're, we're how many um, vertebrates walk upright? Mm -hmm. One. Yeah. Basically a bear can kind of sort of do it, mm -hmm. but not for very long, right? Uh, and, you know, it's not very common, and it may be a dog or a, a monkey, but not very common. Anyway, as we did that, you know, we rose up. Mm -hmm. We rose up, and people can just feel what happens when you rise up. Uh, you get more alert. You feel more present. You feel more potent. You feel get higher. Get hammer, higher. Yeah. Less like a nail. So you're you're already pointing to something that I wanted to talk about a little bit later, but we can kind of just get into it now, which is okay, how here's do you another channel I've been checking out. Hey, guys. Out. This I'm Heidi Preeb. Welcome to back me. to my channel, or what? Thanks, is going to talk about how to find the center point between making ourselves vulnerable and kind of putting ourselves in other people's hands emotionally. So I have a history of making myself excessively vulnerable. It's my uh, apparently maladaptive way of getting along with people. Here, practically speaking, and showing up for ourselves and learning to be self-protective in situations that call for it. So I kind of look at the distinction here as secure vulnerability versus reckless vulnerability. Because the term itself, vulnerability, literally translates to being susceptible to harm or attack. And this is not meant to be the end goal in and of itself, right? When Brené Brown came out with all of her work on how vulnerability helps us foster intimate relationships and closeness, it was not the act of making oneself vulnerable to harm or attack that achieves that. It's what comes afterward. It's when we learn to put ourselves in situations where that opening up and connecting with another person is received in a way that is mutually, let's say, vulnerable and connecting, and then it allows us to form those deep bonds. But it's not the act of vulnerability itself that achieves this end. It's what comes after. So sometimes when we practice vulnerability in the... I remember I saw, uh, I walked into an office. There was a very attractive woman who was the receptionist. And I was strangely attracted and repelled at the same time. Because she was beautiful. And she had a very low-cut top. So when I went to talk to her, like I just like looked right down. I, I, I'm the victim here. I mean, I just went over to talk to her and boom, looked right down her low-cut top. But then like across her chest were these tattoos. So I was impaled on the horns of a dilemma, strangely attracted and repelled at the same time. I really like Heidi Preeb's YouTube channel, yet she has all these tattoos. Wrong scenarios, it's actually going to lead to negative results. It might lead to relationship ruptures. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is how to recognize when it's safe to practice vulnerability, when it's a good idea. And we're going to start by looking at when it is not. So here are some of the signs that you might be overdoing vulnerability at the expense of your own self-protection. And we're going to talk in each case about how we can start showing up differently.
So sign one that you might be overdoing vulnerability is that when you get hurt in an interpersonal situation, you're not recovering in a reasonable time frame. So obviously there is no one way to tell what a reasonable time frame looks like when it comes to recovering. Anyway, I like this video. I like her channel. I've probably watched less than two a dozen of her videos. She's a graduate student in psychology specializing in attachment theory. And uh, this is an excellent video by Heidi Prieb. Five signs you're overdoing vulnerability. Uh, guilty as charged. I overdo vulnerability as a tactic trying to make my way in the world. All right? Does Israel share our values? A rejoinder to Sam Harris by History Speaks. Sam Harris released a video that was predictably crass on the Israel-Palestine issue. Not only condemned Hamas, understandably, but kind of clarified the whole thing as a struggle between good and evil, and more specifically as a struggle between Western values on the side of Israel, as opposed to Palestine, which represents, I guess, some kind of Bronze Age barbarism, right? He doesn't differentiate clearly between Palestine and Hamas. So let's play a little clip here where Harris kind of characterizes his view that Israel represents Western values. In the West, we have advanced to the point where the killing of non-combatants, however unavoidable it becomes once wars start, is inadvertent and unwanted and regrettable and even scandalous. Yes, there are still war crimes, and I won't be surprised if some Israelis commit war crimes in Gaza now. But if they do, these will be exceptions that prove the rule, which is that Israel remains a lonely outpost of civilized ethics in the absolute moral wasteland that is the Middle East. To deny that the government of Israel, with all of its flaws, is better than Hamas. To deny that Israeli culture, with all of its flaws, is better than the Palestinian culture in its attitude toward violence, is to deny that moral progress itself is possible. I'm going to attack this specific premise that Israel represents Western values. Does Israel share our values? It's the name of the video. I'm going to go through several issues, specifically the four parts of this essay or presentation or whatever. So my immediate response to this video is that uh, those parts of Israel that are composed of those predominantly European in genetics will tend to share European values. So the Ashkenazi elite tend to be heavily European in genetics, and they tend to share the most in common with European values. And uh, Sephardim and Mizrahim tend to perhaps, just off the top of my head, have, say, less in common with dominant European values. My second instinctive response is that this will depend a great deal on the situation. Like Western countries during times of great stress are not so Western in their values. They're not so liberal in their values. So the right of habeas corpus, right, the right to you know, be faced with uh, specific charges against you, you know, that right is frequently being taken away in Western countries such as the United States during wartime. Rights to free speech have been taken away. Uh, there's been much more discrimination against minorities during times of high stress. So German-Americans suffered a great deal in the United States during World War I and afterwards. Uh, Tories were essentially driven out of the United States after the War of Independence. So you put a nation under sufficient stress so that it feels like it's fighting for its survival, right, like Israel feels right now, and you're going to be a lot less uh, liberal 
in your values? First, discrimination against minority groups. Second, this history of abuse of migrant workers, ongoing in terms of abuse, trafficking is better. Third, extremism in politics. And fourth, denialism of past national crimes. And all of these expressions of... So when Israel is more prosperous and more safe, they're much more likely to embrace these uh, so-called Western values or humane values. Uh, Israel under stress, like any nation or individual under stress, is going to be a lot harder edged. Of Israeli culture, I will argue, discredit its claim to be a Western democracy. And another rejoinder is compared to whom? So I would think in an awful lot of ways, Israel is closer to many Western values than its neighbors, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, other Arab Islamic nations. So compared to the Arab Islamic world, I mean, I'm biased, I'm a, I'm a strong Zionist. It would seem to me that uh, Israel is far closer to Western values than its neighbors. See, contrary to Harris's predictably glib assessment of the situation. One strong premise in Western civilization, in Western culture, 21st century, that good treatment for racial and ethnic minorities is important. I mean, this premise has gone to an absurd extreme, of course, and I'll show an image of the feet washing here. <laughs> Nevertheless, a... So is there anything like Israel's uh, independent judiciary in its surrounding nations and the history and efficacy of the democratic processes that uh, have a stronghold in, in Israel. I think it, it's a history that's longer and deeper than that which has occurred in Lebanon and surrounding nations. Core and laudable value in America and in the West more generally, acknowledging the rights and dignity of the other, of the minority. The West has gone further in achieving these ideals in the other part of the world. In contrast to this, Western value of respect for minority groups, non discrimination against minority groups. Polling data confirms that Israeli Jews passionately oppose racial equality under the law and equality between Jews and non-Jews, and rather favor a Jewish ethnostate that discriminates in favor of the Jewish minority. And you can see here, polling down. So I would suspect that Ashkenazi Jews in Israel tend to have the same sort of generally liberal values that Ashkenazi Jews in the United States and Europe have, but Safari and Mizrahi Jews are going to be less likely to be Liberal. Data from 2014-2015 Pew, 79% of Jews believe Jews deserve preferential treatment in Israel, including 69% of Heloni, probably pronouncing that wrong, uh, secular Jews. This is a more benign form of discrimination, to be frank. I don't think I have a moral problem with this, but it can also be seen by the fact that... And a great comment in the chat by Autistic Merit. Even if Israel clearly did share our values, would that be sufficient reason for the U.S. to interject to the extent that they have in the conflict? I would say no. I believe that American foreign policy should operate almost exclusively on the basis of what is in the best interests of the United States, not on the basis of shared values. Overwhelming majority of Jews, secular and otherwise, would be completely uncomfortable having their child marry a Muslim or a Christian or a non-Jew. Again, I don't have a problem with this, but that does not reflect civic values in the West, which say you should marry who you love. Don't have a problem with this, but for the culture to be practicing this level of discrimination is not a Western norm. The most dramatic expression, though, of this... So I, I'm Zionist. I got my blinders on. I appreciate my friend Matt for his you know, challenging my Zionist bubble, and I appreciate his, his critiques. I think he generally conducts himself in good faith, though 
like myself, he, he's going to feel the tugs of the e-personality and that can often get the better of one. Discriminatory culture, this intolerance and practice of discrimination is support for ethnic cleansing. As you can see from these data, nearly half of Israeli Jews, nearly half say Arabs should be expelled. And notice that this is couched without qualification. It doesn't say Arabs from occupied territories, doesn't say terrorists. It just says Arabs should be expelled, transferred from Israel. 48% of all Jewish Israelis say yes. It's widespread support for ethnic cleansing. One irony of this is that Jewish Israelis tend to deny the Nekba of 1948. They deny that it was ethnic cleansing. Yet today, it's normative to favor ethnic cleansing of Arabs. Here's the second category, which discredits this claim to being a Western civilization, a Western liberal democracy, abuse of migrant workers and historical tolerance for human trafficking. I think the most dramatic proof of Israel's ethnocentrism and, and racism is the fact that just in the 21st century, as recently as 2003, I'm not saying today, but very recently, this is very recent history, human trafficking of migrants was a widespread, normalized, unpunished practice, whether for sex or labor, this was the case. Israel was one of the worst human traffickers of the world, to the point that the mainstream migrant experience was to be trafficked. The majority of migrants had their passports stolen from them by Israeli employers, but it was just like randomly stealing passports against the law in some ad hoc ways. People didn't know when they get it back. They were basically, I mean, you could say enslaved, I don't, mean, I don't want to be overly provocative, but they just had them stolen with no structure as to when they were going to get it back. A 2003 investigation by leading international human rights organizations, the International Federation for Human Rights and Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Network, these are leading human rights organizations, denounced the situation in Israel as slavery for migrant workers and found that most legal migrants had had their passports stolen by Israeli employers. And the study also indicated that Israeli police were completely indifferent to the sufferings of these poor migrants, despite thousands of complaints and the criminalization of passport retention under Israeli laws. So in response to the situation, the United States in 2001 under the Bush administration classified Israel as one of the worst human traffickers in the world, worse than Thailand, Angola, Togo, India, China, Cambodia. I mean, we're talking like sub-Saharan Africa. And in fact, the United States was threatening sanctions. At this time, the majority of victims appear to... I have never had a serious relationship or even dated for very long, a seriously tattooed woman. I don't think I've even gone to bed with a woman with a serious number of tattoos. I did have a girlfriend, maybe more than one girlfriend, with a, a tiny little tattoo on a non-public part of her anatomy. So I, I feel a visceral repulsion to tattoos. I, I'd be happy to be friends with people with tattoos. I, I mean, I don't hold it against people as in just, you know, I, I'm not going to criticize them or mock them for their choice, but it is something I just feel a, a visceral repulsion to it. Just like I, I'm sure I have many qualities that uh, many normal, healthy people will also feel a visceral repulsion against. To have been sex trafficked women. So we're not talking about migrant labor. Israel had to improve on human trafficking if it wanted to keep its. I remember I was in Israel in July 2000 and I went to the Mount of Olives because I wanted to recreate the trek that I took when I was four and a half with my Christian family, we climbed the Mount of Olives. When I was there on top of the Mount of Olives, this uh, gentleman came over and offered to show me Schindler's List uh, grave. Uh, he wanted wanted money for it. Um, you know, first he just wanted to help and help and help, and then kept asking for money. And then he, he wanted to take me to a, a brothel in Tel Aviv to partake, partake uh, in the joys of beautiful Ukrainian women. And I said, no. So 
generally speaking, Jews have more liberal views on sexuality. You'll find more open discussion of sexual topics among even Orthodox Jews than you would of, say, middle-of-the-road Protestants. And uh, prostitution is essentially legal in Israel, at least for the, the prostitutes, while in the United States, in a more Christian nation, it's generally illegal. So Jewish values, Israeli values, vis-a-vis commercial sex, and other matters of sex are different from Christian and American values. Aid Now, 22 years later, the situation is still bad, I'd say, but way better, way better. Trafficking is not normalized, it's criminalized, etc. I would never say it's normalized nowadays. The interesting question is why did things change? Part of it was concern for the victims. There was media accounts of trafficked women that resonated with Israeli television viewers. However, according to a scholarly paper by Ofer Bayou and Dana Zarhin, mainstream Israeli opinion at the time that this policy changed, the trafficking started to be punished seriously in the early 2000s. And I better accept what I think will be autistic merits critique that among Orthodox Jews, the overwhelming majority are virgins when they get married, that there's overwhelmingly a very strict sexual morality in Orthodox Judaism. And, uh, you know, Orthodox Jews, by and large, do not uh, condone sexual degeneracy. Did not regard trafficking as a human rights abuse. On the other hand, among non-Orthodox Jews, according to the most comprehensive study of American sexual habits, of which I'm aware, they tend to have, on average, about twice as many sexual partners as least nominally identifying Protestants and Catholics. Catholics of the major religions, uh, according to the University of Chicago 1994 sex survey, had the fewest partners and Jews had the most. So again, perhaps the question was... But uh, most of the Jews probably surveyed were not Orthodox. And so they were secular. And so, yes, it was a little bit like apples and oranges because the Protestants and Catholics surveyed would have, by definition, been at least moderately observant of their religion, while most Jews do not practice Judaism, at least the overwhelming number of Jews in America do not practice Judaism. Why did it change? This was sold, the anti-trafficking movement, as an effort to prevent immigration of non-Jews to Israel. It was sold as, we need to get rid of non-Jews, and if you have all these women brought in for sex trafficking, that's non-Jewish migration potentially. So let's minimize that. This is their conclusion, not mine. These are leading scholars in a leading journal about Israel studies. So the, the two big factors they point to are U.S. pressure, the threat of sanctions, and then minimizing immigration of non-Jews. And that's so in normal Orthodox Jewish life, men and women do not even shake hands. It's overwhelmingly sexually segregated that... Uh, if a, a married Orthodox woman had lunch with me, right, that would be talked about in the, just the two of us alone at a, at a kosher, alone in public at a kosher restaurant, that would get talked about. So I know married Orthodox Jewish women in, in LA, you know, very modern liberal city, they go have coffee or lunch with their brother and there's gossip about, oh, you know, why is she with this man who's not her husband? 
that's how things changed. Today, Israel's a lot better on human trafficking. It's a tier two country. It's still not great. That's still substandard, but it's much better. The trafficking of migrant labor is still a problem in Israel. Here's an example. A 2015 study from Human Rights Watch met with 10 groups of Thai farm workers in farming communities. And so they interviewed these 10 groups of Thai workers, these large groups, and they found that basically all of them are being swindled, paid below minimum wage, all of them, working long hours next to the maximum. Several groups said they only received four days of vacation. So, yeah, I it would make sense to me that, say, migrant workers might be treated worse in Israel than, say, the United States or Canada, Australia, France, Germany, England. I'm open to that being true. I suspect overall uh, migrant workers are treated better in Israel than in its neighboring Middle Eastern countries. But I don't know. A year, they were working every day of the week, 12 hours a day. Housing was primitive. So it's just widespread abuse of these people continuing. Now, I'm not saying that's everyone's experience. I found other accounts of ties who talked about, I made $1,500 a month in Israel. That was so much more than in my... I really like the, the sense of moral nuance in Orthodox Judaism. So, for example, uh, Judaism does not just have condemnation towards homosexuality. Even Orthodox Judaism has a great deal of compassion for Jews who have homosexual inclinations, uh, homosexuals in Orthodox Judaism who are not you know, out about it, uh, but people know their inclinations. They usually are not uh, shamed. If they're out about it, then they've reported to me that people have like stepped on their toes or made, made snide remarks. But... Uh, Orthodox Judaism recognizes that people have all sorts of non-kosher drives and it doesn't usually say, oh, this one particular drive that then defines you and everything else that you do doesn't matter. That's not a, a typical understanding, both on the theoretical and textual level of Orthodox Judaism and also in how it's practiced. My country, I was so happy to go there and then all these people want to come. So obviously they're people with great experience because they're people who want to come, but there is still widespread abuse. It reflects very poor civic values in the part of Israel. And again, it is not something, I don't think at this kind of systematic level, this sort of ripping people off, even if you're not like physically entrapping them, I don't believe that would happen in the United States at this kind of systematic level or in any other Western country, Canada, Sweden, etc. I'm not saying these things wouldn't happen. I'm saying it wouldn't happen at such a, a systematic scale. And by the way, MSNBC a couple of weeks ago, they did indicate that this is continuing. To sum all this up and explain why it matters, uh, trafficking was systematic, normalized, and unprosecuted essentially in Israel up to the 21st century. It was only effectively combated when the U.S. stepped in and the main PR effort. So all sorts of things go largely unprosecuted until circumstances change, public awareness is raised. So for example, uh, pretty much all adult porn shops contained considerable amounts of child pornography till 1977. So between about 1967, 1977, adult porn shops contained a great deal of child pornography because there weren't special sanctions against it. Then in 1977, the United States Congress passed a law you know, bringing very intense penalties against child pornography, and therefore child pornography ceased to be a part of the overall pornography industry. And let's bring 
Elliot Blatt, San Francisco. I'm listening. Yes, blessings, blessings from the uh, the Great Bay Area. Uh, what what a stream today, bro. Thank you, thank you, thank Rich. you for being a part of our community. <laughs> it does it kind of does feel like a community. Um, <clears throat> I did, you know, I mentioned in the chat that you didn't sort of go into HBD territory as you sometimes do when discussing this conflict. Is that by design or you felt uncomfortable doing it? Mm, I, I didn't have any written down questions regarding it. I did go into it a little bit with Nathan Kofnis uh, nine days ago. But uh, number one, Kofnis has more expertise in these areas than Matt does. And, you know, Matt doesn't have any expertise in HBD. And yeah, it's just uh, it's a pain to try to slip by the census. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Uh, I don't know. Uh, HPD for me has become the magic key, I'm afraid. And it just seems to continuously make more and more sense to me. And I don't know if this is out of intellectual rigor or some sort of emotionalism on my part, but that's how I'm seeing the world these days. And well, it's made it me a bit more careful. It's really useful. I mean, it is a really useful key. Yeah. It has great predictive value and great explanatory value. Yeah. And stereotypes in general. Stereotypes yeah. in general are generally true, not just HBD ones. That's also true. Yes, I agree. Um, uh, so anyway, yeah, this has all been very upsetting. It's been a long month. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I like Matt. I think he's interesting. He's nuanced. He's intelligent, but he's as guilty as being emotionally biased as he accuses Nathan of being. Do you agree? Um, uh, probably. Yeah. I thought that, you know, it, it is funny. It, it just shows me that, you know, I do have blind spots, you know, and I think I don't have blind spots. But, you know, I think I have been pretty much emotionally uh, off kilter and from all of this. And uh, it's been a real test for me. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it hits very, very close to home. Have you have you long felt a particular connection to the state of Israel? Uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, my my first gift I got as a very youngster was a Israeli bond. <laughs> so, in the, so my father's half of the family is Jewish. So my great-grandfather gave me a bond that was, you know, like 10 or 20-year bond, you know. So, but, you know, beyond that, I really haven't thought too much about it until 9-11. And then after 9-11, I really got interested in the topic. Uh, and, you know, I, um, you know, in those days, pre-9-11, I was kind of, I don't say a leftist, but I was kind of a, you know, I would say a left to center. Uh, and I had only ever really heard uh, the Palestinian side of the story. And then, you know, I made friends with this guy who's, um, he's uh, first generation. So his parents 
are from Israel, but he's born in America, but his parents were Israelis and his mother was in the Israeli army. And I sort of was influenced by him and his characterization of the, uh, of the issue. And his description made a lot more sense to me than that, what I was getting from the Palestinian side. And then he also pointed out to me a bunch of just outright falsehoods. There's this, once you sort of see it once and you see this sort of martyr dance that they tend to do and this sort of full embrace of the uh, martyrdom lifestyle, uh, it just makes me scratch my head and think that these people have really become quite warped. Uh, let me let me ask you a question there. Is there is it even possible to have a strong in-group identity without having a huge victimhood identity that goes right along with it? Uh, probably not. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Yes, uh, I think you probably can't. I think um, we tell stories and these stories gives our lives meaning. And, you know, I guess aggrievement is a strong story. And you sort of see it play out in even non-ethnic, like Democrats, you know, and Republicans. They sort of have victim narratives that sort of keep them together. Um, so, yes, I totally agree with you. And I'd never thought about that before until you started mentioning it. Yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of bracing because, you know, we all we all here on the channel understand that in-group identity is a good thing to have. Anyone has experienced it. They they know the pleasures and comforts that come from it. But then when I think about it, the, the more intense your in-group identity, what g inevitably goes with it is a sense of victimhood and persecution and how you know the world is kind of rigged against your your group and how you know justified your group is in trying to you know even the score right and the emotion underneath it all is resentment i think like mm -hmm. when i yeah. had a lot of personal resentment towards various members of my family and people uh i was a lot more politically um engaged and interested and especially drawn towards you know radical politics and leftist politics particularly and i think resentment is what animates all political activists but i think even more so on the on the left and it's it's we're noteworthy yesterday uh i there was a big uh you know pro-palestinian march downtown and it snarled traffic and i got caught in it Hashtag, isn't it ironic? And, <laughs> and, and uh, so, you know, so there were a lot of Palestinian activists about. And so I, I, I'd, gone, I'd gone to this restaurant and it was filled with a lot of people wearing the traditional Palestinian garb and being activists. And, you know, and I looked around and they all just struck me as the, just the typical leftist activists. You know, and today's cause was Palestine. Yesterday's could have been LGBTQ. You know, it could have been, you know, the, the archetype was there and this was just today's manifestation. And it's conservatives say what you want about them, but they don't tend to protest. Right. And I think they don't protest because they're generally content with their lot. They're generally not consumed with their, and they, they're, 
what is this word? They're, they're disciplined and their discipline has brought them some measure of comfort in their lives. And so they're not consumed with resentment the way people on the left who sort of lack sort of the economic skills to sort of put them on a positive course in life. I, I heard an interesting analogy the other day that uh, going to a protest for a leftist is like a Christian going to church that it's a way to renew your ties with your in-group, that it's, you know, largely has a, a huge social function. And any time you get together with your in-group, you know, that's overwhelmingly likely to make you happy. And so I, I just found that, that insight really helpful, that for a left-winger going to a protest, it's like a Christian going to church or a Jew going to synagogue. Yeah, it's perfectly, it makes perfect sense to me. And I think it's, um, I remember when I was like a little young leftist and the word for those were demos. They'd say, yeah. hey, there's a demo on Saturday, right? You know, it made it a, yeah. you know, it's a sort of a, you know, air of excitement about it. And, um, and it was like, did you see him at the demo? And it was discussed, you know, and you're right. That is the form of uh, community and it is a meeting place and people do need to meet sort of like if they didn't have a live stream, you know, to, to gather around every morning. What, what are people going to do today? And, and it's exciting. Like you're viscerally doing something. Think about the energy that you would get from each other. Think about the amount of hooking up that uh, comes from it, that you would, you would see your friends and you are participating in, in a very vivid and I would think, you know, largely exciting ritual. Yes, for sure. And, but there was always this nostalgia about the 60s, right? This was, you know, late 80s for me. And so everyone, there was sort of romanticism that surrounded all the protests about Vietnam, right? And we all had this nostalgia because we thought it was much better because in real life, these things were really not that exciting or interesting. And we just, I don't know, at least I did. I felt like I was missing out on the real thing that had already happened. Well, there are often quite attractive women at these things. Not today, bro. <laughs> not today. Maybe back in the 60s, yes. But I remember sort of my disenchantment with the left is like, so many of the women were just so ugly. I, I, I heard, I, yeah, I heard somewhere that Utah in general or Salt Lake City has the, the best looking women per capita in the nation. And that makes sense to me. Have you spent any time in Salt Lake City? I have. And your observation is absolutely correct. They all look like, um, they all look like they just, they're like pioneers that just got off a wagon train, you know? They, they look they amazing. Have, they're they're yeah. just gorgeous. And they ski. That's why I was telling. I, I told, you know, in the white, in, you know, the early days of the stream, I was always telling people to move to Salt Lake and take up skiing. And there you, um, it's like Xanadu. It's unbelievable. And the men and, look and good the, too. It's the, right it's the right type of good looking. They don't look slutty and cheap. No, right. It's wholesome, uplifting beauty. Right. Yes. Yes. I'm thinking of one woman in particular that was playing the guitar um on the on the side of the street you know busking um you know that's andrew wyeth you know who andrew wyeth is as a painter 
Yeah. And one of his famous paintings is of um of this woman. I forgot the name of it. Damn. But she has, you know, just straight blonde hair, very pure, wholesome looking, uh, you know. Uh, and that's what it felt like to me. It felt like an Andrew Wyeth painting. Yeah. So why you get, but I also heard that Salt Lake has some of the highest crime. Can you believe that? That that's really hard to believe. Yeah. And I almost made a bet on this and I would have lost. Uh, but there's a lot, but you know what? Uh, most of the hinterlands now are just riddled with meth. It's really almost mainstream, it seems. Hmm. Now, I think did... this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'm just more concerned about if I'm concerned about anything, it's this meth fentanyl craze that's going on. I, I'm, I'm seeing just so many devastated lives um, in downtown San Francisco now. And, you know, it used to be there always, but now it's just everywhere. And these people aren't getting off those drugs. I don't think there's any way off of those drugs. Anyway. How how is the quality of life in San Francisco at the moment? It's declining. There's no question about it. <laughs> it's declining. Um, it feels empty. I don't know. People are just not going outside. But I, I just may, maybe people have moved away. I would believe it um, if they if that were true. I haven't seen any data, but I do just know atmospherically, the sidewalks aren't full. Just seem emptier. Uh, everything just has a sort of drab, melancholic feel to it. It's hard to put your finger on. Um, but I'm not optimistic about it. I don't see it turning around anytime soon. So do you think that uh, people in the country tend to be conservative because they have less of a sense of efficacy or control over their lives? They have more of a sense of... of the, the looming possibility of disaster while people who live in cities tend to be more liberal and left and more open to new experiences because they have more of a sense of efficacy in their lives. Yeah, I, I completely disagree. The more I think about that, I think people in the country are more conservative because they're generally more content. Uh, there's not, you don't feel threats from outsiders because you don't have many outsiders. Um, and I feel like in the country, things are cheaper. You just feel like there's less risk of sort of economic catastrophe in your life because, you know, things are just cheaper and easier and you can grow a garden. You can do all kinds of sort of things to augment your survival. So I, I, I just don't buy that. Mm-hmm. And how much time in the country have you gotten to spend over the past year? A uh, fair bit. I've been driving up to, I was driving up to Napa on a regular basis, which is sort of like the country. Um, and I'd highly recommend anybody wanting to uh, escape the city to consider Napa. And I also went to the Russian River last weekend. Uh, have you ever been there? Yes, yes. I lived I lived in the Napa Valley for, yeah. for years and oh, would right. continually yes. return to it. Yeah. Um, that isn't so much a Napa. That's a, it's a fair more, it's up, you know, Santa Rosa-ish. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I've been spending a little time in the country. Uh, I, I, I toy with the idea of moving, but to me, I, you know, just the inertia just keeps me where I am. 
And uh, what have you been catching online? You're a keen observer of the the online drama world. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've gotten out of that Worski stuff. I think that stuff has run its course for me. Um, I have been watching. I've been still. Still watching some Richard Spencer, but he's really losing me now. He's teaching a course on Nietzsche, and <laughs> I don't really want to talk about films either. So I don't know. I think Richard, Richard and I are going to have to part ways. Uh, Chuck Johnson seems to have gone off the deep end in a real significant way. Uh, I actually am. I have doubts about his mental health now. I, I don't. There's something weird about somebody streaming that often. Uh, and making so many bold claims in succession. He's sort of a pet project, a pet curiosity of mine. But I'm buying some other high IQ content uh, around economics, which I've been listening to lately. Wait, what uh, about Ch Ch uh, Chuck Johnson's revelations of uh, Frank Lunds making a pass at him? Were you not titillated? <laughs> Were you not aroused? Were you not entertained? Yeah, well, it's all very entertaining, but you, you, you take it with a grain of salt. No, I've heard him say, I believe, and don't quote me, um, I think he alluded to some sexual abuse in his childhood in one of those streams um, regarding himself personally. And that would put a few pieces of the puzzle in place for me, if that were true. And uh, you, you recommend... Well, how so? Why don't you why don't you develop on that thought? Well, yeah, yeah, I think I think you know people. It's just theories, you know. But somebody who has sort of a damaged psychology from youth um, wants to put themselves out there and want to be recognized in positive ways. I think streaming has that uh, allure for people, and I think it's sort of a um, you know, it's a mode of therapy for them. Do you think that's true? Yes, definitely. And I mean, you yourself, I mean, yes. you don't think yeah. your desire to stream is necessarily, you know, born out of the most uh, healthy, uh, healthy, healthy psychology, right? Correct, correct. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, walk a type right here. <laughs> Nor does listening to streams as much as I do speak well for my... <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is no, but I think you know. I think loneliness. I think a lot of people comment on it. I think loneliness is a real thing, or isolation uh, is a real thing in the society. And people, it's not normal to live as isolated as we do. And so, streaming is a sort of natural uh, a proxy, not proxy, but a, you know, substitute for that. Do you think? Yes, and it's it's an opportunity to discuss topics and to converse in a way that you may have a lot of difficulty doing in real life. Yeah, you know, one thing, uh, that's what I was thinking about. Just the format itself, you can lends itself to uh, the ability to speak about more volatile top topics because people, if people throw a tantrum, they can be muted, right? Yeah. So uh, there, there's it, it does let you regulate a conversation, even if it goes into uh, emotionally challenging territory. So I think I don't think these conversations could happen in the real in the real world. 
they need to be done online. I think the most difficult conversations have to be done via a stream. Where there's physical, your, your, at least your physical safety is intact. And did you feel physically unsafe during the pro-Palestine protests? No. Uh, yeah, did I feel unsafe? No, mm -hmm. I didn't feel unsafe. I felt perfectly safe. That said, I was on my best behavior. I wasn't saying what I felt like saying. I wasn't shouting out <laughs> the window like I've been known to do in the past. <laughs> so uh, it was upsetting. The number of people was, there, there were, I think, a lot more people than I was expecting to see. And I found that depressing. Um, I didn't see any counter-protests. Um, and I didn't see, um, I didn't, there wasn't much racial diversity, I noticed, um, for what it's worth. Um, like it didn't look like a Black Lives Matter. Well, there aren't many black people in your bigoted, racist part of the world, San Francisco. Yeah, but we're right over the bridge from one of the uh, most Wakandan places in the world, Oakland. Right. <laughs> so, speaking of Oakland, I had an interesting story. Like, uh, there's Oakland proper, the city, right? And then you go up the hills into other parts of Oakland that are incredibly high dollar value. And I, I went to an estate sale. And I tell you the story. I went to a estate sale there. And, like, you get up and you got up a certain altitude. And then suddenly it goes from, like, you know, urban tension and everything and then you get up into this altitudes and then you have people just walking around with you know ivy league sweatshirts folded over their shoulders and they're reading the you know the wall street journal on their ipad and it's a totally different world um and sort of i noticed that you can sort of correlate wealth with altitude in the bay area the higher you go the higher the dollar that, that that's true everywhere so at a political science professor who said if you ever get lost you know climb uphill it'll be a better neighborhood <laughs> that makes perfect sense um so anyway anyway just things have been going bad for me lately luke i'm just hitting some some bad luck here and there it's sort of inconveniencing me in ways and so i don't have know you, i'm not as chipper as i usually am have you ha engaged in any inner spiritual work or introspection or any reflection because I have, uh, you know, suffered my own setbacks at times, and one will be after deduce it usually by the absence of my live streams, because it takes a heck of a lot of confidence to do a live stream. So when I have a setback and I lose that confidence, I stop live streaming or dramatically reduce it, and I engage in a lot of introspection and journaling and think about how I could do things differently and what I've learned from my setbacks. And, you know, what, what character traits need to be changed in me and what would be some protocols and procedures and policies that I could implement into my life. So, for example, I, you're going to be shocked. I suffer from a little bit of verbal impetuosity, verbal impulsiveness. And I learned one tactic for dealing with it is to write down the things that you want to say instead of blurting them out. So... Anyway, uh, any introspection on your part you feel safe to share? Um, I, well, none that I, I, I'm, 
I'm ripe for a round of introspection, what shall we say, but I've been really challenged at work lately. And it's sort of been adding to my stress level because I've had sort of a series of deadlines that I had to meet and I'm just barely making them, you know? And how much in call in today because I've just been working since your stream started this morning. So I'm just trying to catch up and it feels like I've been trying to catch up, trying to catch up. And it's sort of the, you know, the donkey and the uh, carrot, you know, I'm just never quite caught up. And maybe this is how everybody feels, but it feels like, it feels like the intensity of the world has just gotten a lot more intense. And I, I'm, I'm feeling very short with people. I'm not, I am, uh, I just feel agitated a lot. And so, yes, I, I know that I've sort of strayed off the path of, you know, healthy living. Um, but I fully intend to do some like deep decompression introspection as soon as I get through this particularly uh, difficult period. Yeah. But little and things like while I'm trying to get cut up, things like I get a flat tire, I got, I got to replace my brakes, you know. Uh, my cat gets ill, you know, all these little things and they just come at the wrong time. It's see, I feel like I'm being toyed with. Um, and I just can't seem to, uh, I just can't, I, I just need a week or two where just everything just kind of flows, bro. If things aren't flowing. And, and why do you own cats? Why? Cause mm -hmm. I, I adopted them. I grew up with cats. I've always had cats. Growing up, I just thought, always thought it was sort of part of life that that's what you did. You always had a couple of cats hanging around. So I was in the park one day. I'm walking through, and then there was a cat adoption, and I said, "Oh, what the hell? I'll just get some cats." Not realizing the magnitude of the undertaking I was I was really doing here. Um, so, but I just I made a commitment to these animals. I just said, "Oh, they're inconvenient. I just got to throw them away." I, I don't do that. Yeah, you're kind of like that with people. You have some people in your life who are not necessarily the best for you, but you don't just throw them away. No, right. I take this. I have, I don't know, maybe, you know what it is? It's the, it's the one that crosses your path, right? Mm -hmm. That's the one you're supposed to engage with. You don't go looking for problems, right? But if one crosses your path in a way that seems sort of, divinely ordained then that's what you're meant to do it's kind of superstitious but that's how we've been able to navigate that territory hmm. so you have no pets but you do like animals do you not i i love love animals but i don't want the responsibility and expense and inconvenience so uh, people i know weren't able to go to like important family occasions because they, they weren't able to locate a, a pet sitter or a place to, to board their pet. And that, that just seems like too big of a price. Yeah. I've, I've had to make a lot of compromises that way. Um, it used to, you know, it used to be easier to, um, to get pet sitters and things, but now the average person you meet on the street has some serious problems. I mean, not even on the street, but people refer you to them and they've got some sort of, they all have some sort of emotional tick that makes me doubt them. 
Do you notice that? I'm listening. Just... Hmm? Do you notice I'm, that? I'm listening. I'm thinking. T tell me yeah, more. Okay. Well, it's just like people that... When I was growing up, you know, I would have a dozen people who I feel like I could trust staying in my apartment and taking care of my cats, right? Yes. And now... I, I can I don't think I can name a single person that I meet uh, that I would actually trust to stay in my apartment and take care of my cats. And I just I I, I feel people strike me as being very different than they used to be. Now maybe this is just me being old, but I, I do see sort of a qualitative degradation among most people. They behave in very strange. I mean, I've talked to you privately about another person that just seems to behave unbelievably atrociously. And, you know, part of me is attracted to it just because I'm curious. It makes me curious, you know. These are intelligent people, by the way, but they still have behavior tics that are just so unbelievably strange and off putting. I, I just don't know how they expect to survive. Anyway. And uh, you've also participated in other live streams over the past few weeks. What do you remember? Oh, yeah. I've been calling into SJJ, Stephen James's uh, stream. Yes. I had a bit of a tangle with Duvid um, on one of those streams. And then I called into another stream and then I had a tangle with another guy that used to show up on Claire's channel. And, you know, this the, is all the, around. The gay, the gay Hindu? No, this is another guy. I don't know if I want to name him or not. Yeah, okay, really okay. Because I don't want an un unnecessary beef going, you know? Yeah. But uh, I used to sort of tolerate sort of Wignat style discourse and now it just leaves me cold. It strikes me as just so boring and repetitive and paranoid. And um, so I just sort of lost my patience with this one particular guy, maybe acted out in a way that wasn't healthy. Didn't make me look good, let's just say. So I think I embarrassed myself online. <laughs> 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 and so this is just another feeling of regret that's sort of been eating at me. Uh, uh, on top of all the other stress, you know? So Why I just, you... I need Go another ahead. week. I need just like a magic week. It just gets inserted into my life where I can just calm down and take care of a lot of stuff that needs taken care of that I've been pushing to the back. Uh, what do you think of uh, academics in training, such as this History Speaks character and his decision to have such an active uh, Twitter and YouTube account? As, as far as his own well-being and professional success? Uh, it's probably not his long-term best interest, I think. Um, but then again, I don't know if traditional academia is in his long-term best interest. It seems to be quite a tightrope. I would not feel secure. You know, it, it, let's say he does successfully complete his studies and manages to secure a position somewhere. In today's climate, it doesn't seem like uh, you're immune from being canceled. And maybe he needs, maybe academics need a YouTube channel. They might have to start thinking of their YouTube channel as their source of income. And then, 
the university jobs as a bonus. What do you about think about them apples? Wow. I, I think that's, <coughs> I, I think for 99% of academics, that's a really bad idea because the, the metrics that are rewarded in YouTube are basically the opposite ones to what are rewarded in academia. Yeah. No, uh, to me, it just seems like a very high risk, uh, a very high risk. My, did my mic cut out? No, I, you're oh, still okay. with us, bro. Okay. Uh, yeah, it just seems to me it's a really high risk profession now. Maybe I'm ordering Academia it. or YouTube? Academia. Okay. Uh, they're both, they're both high risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I think, I think. You know, you should get your cabbie license, have that in, as a backup. And I didn't feel like software is as, as secure as it used to be. You know, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've started this little sideline business thinking that, you know, just in case things go south, I have something to fall back on. So I, I feel like everything is just much more precarious than it used to be. What? I feel like go ahead. I just feel like the economy is down all around. Um, in a real way. I think it's starting to affect people's lives. So I was listening to a podcast on the book, The 4-Hour Workweek. Have you heard of that book? Yes, I hate that guy. I cannot stand him. And so anyway, he, he recommends that people sell information products. And so you may ask, I don't have any expertise. And he says, well, you just have, need to have you know more expertise than your customer. So he recommends that you develop some expertise and then you give a free talk at a university and and then you package it all up and present yourself as an expert in some area and and then sell you know an online course so do you, do you think you have any information products inside of you that you could turn into an online course and start living the life of the four hour work week i wish i did bro i wish i did but information's cheap these days you know um, when was the last time you paid for information? Oh, you uh, did. You're talking to someone who's constantly subscribing to stuff. Oh, mm, true, true enough. You, you, you uh, asked the wrong man. Well, yeah, but let's think about it. Like, it just seems like, um, what can't you find out on Google or YouTube, you know, for free? Seems like you're going into a very saturated market. No, I, I, I would feel I would, you know, this is what tells me this. <coughs> this is why I hate that guy. I think I read at least part of his book. <coughs> Excuse me. And he uh, describes how he won a martial arts contest, but he did it by like exploiting this rule, like this subtle rule in the rule book. And he sort of pushed a guy out of bounds and that was considered a victory. Um, all of this stuff, there's just this element of um, trickery to it, you know? It's not straightforward. And uh, I just think he's a bullshit artist. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, the, the easiest way to the four-hour work week is to operate a scam. Yes. Yeah, that's ultimately it. And I, I try to tell, you know, I wish I'd sort of, I internalize this pretty young, but not young enough. The real shortcut in life is that there are no shortcuts. The four-hour work week is silly, and ideas and Bitcoin and all of these scams that people 
are attracted to, and I understand why they're attracted to them, you know, good work is, is, is hard to find, you know, um, but that's why you got to start early and develop a career and don't, you know, don't piss away your twenties. Like a lot of these streamers are doing. Bro. And uh, what about the 48 rules or 48 laws of power? Have yes. You... <laughs> I've read that several times. And um, that was one of the most eye-opening books I think I've ever read. Because um, it sort of crystallized a lot of things that I'd seen and didn't understand. And then I read that book and now I, they make sense in retrospect. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I assume you've read that book. Yeah, or at least parts of it. I mean, it's very dark. Again, it's basically you're recommending a, you know, sociopathic approach to life. Well, that's actually not true. I mean, I could see why you would conclude that, but he spells this out in the introduction. You know, he's not, um, he's not, he's not uh, recommending that people, you know, take this as a playbook for life. You know. He's saying, this is how power works in the real world. These are the techniques, you know, these are the, these are the patterns uh, that you'll see how power works. And you, and he says, you cannot opt out of the game of power. People think, you know, they'll just say to themselves that they're not interested in power. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but a, that in itself is a power play. And B, if you truly don't understand how power works, you're going to get steamrolled by people who do. So you, you owe it to yourself to at least understand how power works and how to play the game. And you can decide at what level, you know, what strategy you want to employ, but there is no opting out. We're in an iron cage together, bro. <laughs> and how would you compare the ratio of value to BS in the 48 Laws of Power? Sorry to interrupt. I don't think there's, a, I don't think, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think there's anything I would consider BS in the 48 Hours of Power. I, not to say that there isn't, but uh, I think there's a lot of truth in that book. So, I think it's all true and it's all thought provoking and, um, but not all of it's comfortable. It's people think things that make them uncomfortable are untrue. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of people who think they know what's in the book, but haven't read it. But if you've actually read it and you read the introduction, uh, and you understand it, I think you're going to have a pretty favorable opinion of the book. And uh, do you listen to audiobooks? I listen to usually lectures, but not not audiobooks. Books, not like no, not books, fiction books. or anything like that. Um, oh, Nonfiction. No, I don't even. I mean, I used to, but I find books a little bit long-winded. I like yeah. more <laughs> I books like more... of BS. I understand. <laughs> well, I just used Sam to. Sam Beckman like, Freed says the same thing. <laughs> like any good book can be a blog post. <laughs> and you know you know in software you know concision is like highly prized right and so you 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 would tend to go around demanding and expecting concision out of everybody and everything and 
um, I just have no patience for long-winded preambles and extended caveats and things like that. Uh, unlike I, a Chuck, Chuck Johnson podcast. Yeah, he just gives me the dopamine right up front, you know? <laughs> no waiting. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the book question, you know, I'm impressed that people can still read books today. I, I, uh, what about live lectures? Do you get a live lectures or book readings or poetry readings? No, no, no. I should, you know, I guess, but no. I mean, <clears throat> I have, you know, it's hard for me to leave the house, you know, for any reason. <laughs> and, you know, to, to go somewhere and then to park and then to wait in line and, you know, purchase a ticket. It just doesn't. The last time I, you know, here's a funny, well, the last time I was ever going to go to a, a public lecture, I was going to see uh, Christopher Hitchens and I purchased a ticket online and I couldn't go because he died. <laughs> and that was the last time I'd ever ventured out. Well, what do you think of some of the lessons of 9-11? There's, there's maybe an, an info course that you could sell online. Like 17 lessons from 9-11 that every living human being needs to know. The lessons of 9-11. Spiritual, physical, financial, <clears throat> geopolitical, political. All right. No, rule one, don't leave the house. <laughs> uh, that's the most important lesson. Powerful. Don't get it. Number two, if you must leave the house, don't get on a plane. Uh, I don't know what spawns this, Luke. How about uh, is it a good idea to go into the Middle East and try to bring democracy? Yes. Rule number three: Don't go to the Middle East and try to bring democracy. But read about HBD instead. What about if there are countries in the Middle East that don't accord equal rights to homosexuals and women? Do we need to invade them? And at the point of a gun, install equal rights for women and homosexuals in Afghanistan. That's a big no, Luke. That is a no. Don't do that. Uh, no, of course not. The whole idea. This is why I was a Trump guy. Like, I like this. Maybe it's just I like simple things, but I, I just like the idea of the U.S. kind of pulling back and take caring, just taking care of itself for a while getting its own house in order um so no yeah i uh i don't understand the world well enough to know what the correct policy is but i just feel like we're overextended yeah okay uh great to talk to you any, right, any final words no back to work man thanks thanks okay. thanks for chatting. blessings all right, okay. blessings. blessings all right bye okay guys i love the podcast if books could kill this is if books could kill on the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Rise and grind shit. Yes. This is one of the most influential rise and grind books of the last 20 years. If he brings it back to birth rates, we're really going to have some <laughs> synergy for this podcast. I thought, like, who better to review this than a podcaster? You want to teach me about four-hour work weeks, buddy? <laughs> I'm, I'm the world's foremost expert. The Peter story. Yes. <laughs> so... 
Timothy Ferris, the author. He publishes this in 2007 when he is a 29-year-old tech entrepreneur. Okay. Uh, this is the mid-aughts. So we are experiencing a bit of a tech boom. Mm-hmm. Like Facebook and Twitter are just getting off the ground. There's sort of a rush of capital into tech for the first time since the dot-com crash. Mm. Ferris himself was an employee at a digital storage company for a bit, and then he had launched a startup hawking some scammy neurotropic supplements that oh. he called Brain Quicken. <laughs> <laughs> So it's also an accounting software when you want to stay up all night typing in your expenses. The original title for this book that he had pitched was Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit. Wait, really? Yeah. Okay. You can sort of tell that Tim is annoyed that he didn't name the book that because he has brought that up in like so many interviews. Oh, yeah. Like you, he just wants to get it out there. Like I had a cool title for the book, by the way. Yeah. It's like the guy who directed The Professional who just calls it Leon for the next like three decades. <laughs> That's Still right. mad about it. Still mad about it. So he's doing like the right wing podcast supplement grift but in the mid-aughts so he's he's a pioneer you know yeah none of this pans out quite like he had hoped um he's sort of doing well but he's worn out and he sets out to restructure his life entirely so that he can make as much money as possible while working as little as possible or at the very least start prioritizing the things in his life that he wants to prioritize it is funny how all of these books start with like someone who doesn't have a normal job they're always like (laughs) an entrepreneur or like some sort of innovator or something something basically somebody who like can disappear for days on end Uh, yeah i think it's important to understand this book as the product of a guy who basically has everything he thought he wanted but is still disillusioned right Hmm. he's an entrepreneur he says that his supplement company was making him about 70 grand a month Uh, but he still feels trapped right he's sort of worn down by the grind he's overworked he's miserable and he plans a big trip a sabbatical year traveling the world okay and he has all of these apprehensions about it but he does it anyway and as a result he sort of has a variety of revelations about how to optimize his life wait so is this eat pray love for like san francisco tech bros (laughs) there's a long section about carbs so the subtitle of this book is escape the nine to five live anywhere and join the new rich okay so i'm going to send you his little definition of the new rich like you say his little definition (laughs) definition. it's actually quite a lengthy definition and i've cut out parts the new rich are those who abandon the deferred life plan and create luxury lifestyles in the present using the currency of the new rich time and mobility this is an art and a science we will refer to as lifestyle design my journey from grossly overworked and severely underpaid office worker to member of the new rich is at once stranger than fiction and now that i've deciphered the code simple to duplicate there's a recipe from leveraging currency differences to outsourcing your life and disappearing i'll show you how a small underground uses economic sleight of hand to do what most consider impossible he is making it seem as if anyone can do this and in fact um it's something that a 29 year old tech millionaire can probably yeah, do yeah, yeah, yeah. relatively easily this is like the rich dad poor dad guy being like okay step one buy an apartment building yeah, right, in right, city, right. <laughs> experiencing a housing boom i also want to point out that you you read uh the new rich and lifestyle design but he immediately starts using acronyms for these yeah, things so it's nr and ld it's so fucking annoying. this this is something that we come across in academic articles all the time it's like you're making up acronyms and then by the time you get to the end of the abstract it's like the tmlr right. doesn't match the adt <laughs> right oh right God. now i bring that up because the entire book is also built around a dumb acronym uh deal uh, and this is his step-by-step process for becoming a member of the new rich d definition this is the section where he defines the new rich and explains how they operate e elimination where he shows you how to eliminate the notion of time management and all of the other things that are extraneous to your success a automation where he teaches you tricks to automate your work and income and l liberation where he explains how to liberate yourself from a single location and travel the globe while maintaining your lifestyle. He will not, however, liberate all of the slaves that he's going to hire over the internet to do his work for him. Oh, you've read the book? That's book two. That's the sequel <laughs> book. Okay, so let's start off with D, the D and deal for definition, uh, where he sort of talks about the new rich versus who he calls defers. A big theme of the book is that you can live like the exceedingly wealthy without being exceedingly wealthy. Yeah. He says, quote, I've chartered private planes over the Andes, enjoy many of the best wines in the world in between world-class ski runs, and lived like a king lounging by the infinity pool of a private villa. Here's a little secret I rarely tell. It all costs less than rent in the U.S. If you can free your time and location, your money is automatically worth three to ten times as much. This has nothing to do with currency rates. Whoa. Being financially rich and having the ability to live like a millionaire are fundamentally two very different things. Wait, is he just...
Okay, so terrific uh, If Books Could Kill episode here on the four-hour work week. He also did a terrific episode on the 48 Laws of Power. So I'm going to send you... Oh, the sirens in Park Slope. This is going to be a fucking problem all episode, isn't it? Welcome to New York. There's sirens a lot in New York. Has anyone talked about this? No one has. Possible. You're like, I think there's 48. How many (laughs) many are there? Early in this podcast, I used to at least look up the Wikipedia of the books you were doing. (laughs) And they're like, no, you have to be fresh. This is my whole thing, Peter. And now you do nothing. (laughs) And now I do nothing. And now I do nothing. And this is what you get. (laughs) So The 48 Laws of Power is by a guy named Robert Greene, who we will talk about later. It is published in 1998. As usual, it's basically impossible to get decent numbers on how many copies this book actually sold. But the number Uh you usually hear is between one and two million copies. It seems to have spread mostly through word of mouth among like CEO types, but then it made its way to hip hop. So there are lyrics in Jay-Z and Kanye West songs referring specifically to this book. Oh, hell yeah. And you are going to wrap them for us right now. Yeah, that's the rest of the episode. It's just a series of couplets. It also says on the Wikipedia entry that Drake is developing a series called The 48 Laws of Power, but it also says that he's developing it for Quibi. So I don't know if that Wikipedia just hasn't been updated in a while. And then according to the author, it's now been read by Fidel Castro, among other like heads of state. And this book doesn't really show up on the sort of best business books ever, like most influential self-help books. It doesn't really show up on those lists, but it does show up on a lot of lists about the best self-help advice for men. Oh, okay. So this really bounces around the sort of polite version of the men's rights activist world. This this is seen as a kind of Bible for like how to be a man okay. in the world. That's an interesting framing because now I'm picturing like 70-year-old Fidel Castro being like, how do I be a man in this world? Wearing a fedora, <laughs> doing magic tricks at the other end of the bar in LA. <laughs> okay, so this is the first paragraph of the book. The feeling of having no power over people and events is generally unbearable to us. When we feel helpless, we feel miserable. No one wants less power. Everyone wants more. In the world today, however, it is dangerous to seem too power-hungry, to be overt with your power moves. We have to seem fair and decent. So we need to be subtle, congenial yet cunning, democratic yet devious. It's a real problem. Yeah. We all want power, but we can't just be like telling people, hello, I would like more power. I immediately don't relate, I have to say. Yeah, I struggle. There are many situations where I want less power. I also am a little concerned that he seems to be portraying power as he defines it as somehow conflicting with fairness and decency. He says, we have to seem fair and decent <laughs> right off the bat. He's like, you know how we're all big pieces of shit? Yeah, I think one of the tensions that showed up for me literally like within words of starting this book was like, where in modern life are people engaged in power circles like this? Right. Yes, there's office politics. Like, you know, we, we all kind of exist within hierarchies that like on some level you have to do a little bit of like strategery. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's various other things of like maybe you want to be the president of the PTA or like you want to coach your kid's little league team and somebody else wants to as well and you got to, you know, kind of lobby a little bit. But like he makes explicit reference throughout the book and especially in the intro to like the French court, how there were all these people like around the king and you had to suck up to the king, but you couldn't like make it obvious that you were sucking up and you had to beat the other like courtiers mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of scheme and backstab and do all this kind of stuff. Like this, this sort of Game of Thrones conception of, you know, human societies. And I just don't see it. This was immediately conjuring up Game of Thrones to me. So I'm yeah, glad yeah, you said yeah. it because there's something weird about a framing where our everyday lives are a struggle for power. If you read that paragraph and it resonates with you, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, probably yeah. conceptualizing <laughs> your life as like this elaborate real politique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're actually living out a fantasy just by reading this. Right. This, this reminds me of a lot of like the watch marketing and things that are pitched at men. Okay. So we're going straight into personal attacks. <laughs> chosen deliberately peter it's like you know you're hiking mountains and you're out in the elements and you're like on a sailboat in the middle of the night trying to survive and whatever you need this watch because you're such an extreme person right maybe i should have said patagonia or something but it's like it's selling you this fantasy of your life is like much more exciting than it is right. most of the people who drive suvs are not like busting sand dunes in the middle of nowhere and going over streams man you're you keep preempting me <laughs> i i was like I, I mean as soon as you were talking about this i was thinking about those commercials of suvs out in the desert yeah yeah, yeah. an authentic <laughs> suv commercial is like you pulling into a texaco this book could have been called think like a straight man and now i do that's what you're picking up on when you, when you said think like a straight man now i have a made me think of that steve harvey book and now i have like like act like a gay boy think like a straight man (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna be the title of our book we finally do one peter with our powers combined okay so here is the end of the intro he's laying out what the book offers and kind of how it is going to work what this book is going to contain consider the 48 laws of power a kind of handbook on the arts of indirection 
The laws are based on the writings of men and women who have studied and mastered the game of power. These writings span a period of more than 3,000 years and were created in civilizations as disparate as ancient China and Renaissance Italy. Yet they share common threads and themes, together hinting at an essence of power that has yet to be fully articulated. 3,000 years. The 48 laws of power are the distillation of this accumulated wisdom, gathered from the writings of the most illustrious strategists, statesmen, courtiers, seducers, and con artists in history. <laughs> Who would you listen to if you were trying to figure out how to coach the Little League team? Oh, my God. The con artist thing. Uh, no. <laughs> right, right away, he's like, I've learned these things from con artists, and now I'm teaching them to you. I should also mention, this is a spoiler, but when he says statesman, he exclusively means dictators. Uh, he never refers to, like, Winston Churchill or anything. Right. It's like Mao, <laughs> like, over right. and over again. <laughs> and, like, Julius Caesar and shit. Right. We're not talking about the Secretary of the Treasury here. No, right? exactly. But then I think this is an important thing to know about this book, is that this book, the copy that I have, is 478 pages long. Oh, my God. It is the opposite of filler. I've never seen this. Mm -hmm. The actual chapters are, like, very into like historical anecdotes like that's most of the book is these like long historical anecdotes but then also the margins are also filled with like swahili fable quotes from philosophers and shit so it's just like this black brick of words <laughs> shining in your face for like a month on end like this was the experience of reading the book for me god that is hellish i mean the I, I will say the one thing that's great about the books that we do is that they have so much filler that you can sort of mentally skip I know, over i know and how many times have we said this that like these books so often present themselves as the sort of like inheritors of this ancient wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How Alexander the Great's conquest can teach you mm -hmm. how to get that promotion instead of Josh. I, before we get into like the sort of patterns that the book is doing, I, I want to talk about how this book works. So one thing that I will say for him is that he's a very structured thinker. Th these aren't just like a series of kind of random rants. Every law is broken up into like very clear sections. Mm -hmm. For example, law one is never outshine the master. And after each law, he gives a sort of basic premise of this law. So he calls it the judgment, right? And so he says, always make those above you feel comfortably superior in your desire to please and impress them. Do not go too far in displaying your talents or you might accomplish the opposite. Inspire fear and insecurity. Make your masters look more brilliant than they are and you will attain the heights of power. So that's what he's like about to lay out, right? Okay. And then he has these historical sections, which he calls observance of the law or transgression of the law. Mm -hmm. So for this one, he uses Galileo, who didn't quite invent, but like massively modified and improved the telescope. And when he looks up at the sky, he finds four moons of Jupiter, and no one had ever seen these before, and it was like a whole big fucking deal because people thought that everything rotated around the Earth, but here are these things rotating around Jupiter. It's, it's, it's like a massive deal. Uh -huh. And his patrons are the Medici. I didn't even know Patreon was around back then. <laughs> They're at the $10 tier, so they get the bonus moons. <laughs> and so he decides to name the four moons after his like four Medici backers. Uh -huh. He kind of goes out of his way to basically imply that like the very heavens are like recognizing right. the brilliance of the Medici. It's like, well, there's four of you and there's four of them. And and it's a much longer anecdote. Mm -hmm. So you've done this show before, Peter. You know you know how these books work. Mm -hmm. I've just told you a historical example. W what am I going to tell you now, Peter? Presumably that some of the facts contained within that example are incorrect and important. Okay, that'll do it for now. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.